Welcome to Choice Classic Radio, where we bring to you the greatest old-time radio shows. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and thank you for donating at choiceclassicradio.com. Lux presents Hollywood. Radio Theater brings you Joan Blondell, Alan Ladd, and Laird Krieger in This Gun for Hire. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. I was looking the other way when Paramount released This Gun for Hire. I thought it was just another gangster picture. Then I heard people talking about it at lunch in the studio commissary. Letters began to come in from you, asking why we didn't broadcast it. In self-defense, I saw the picture and discovered that it is not just another gangster picture. It's a prime example of how to maintain suspense in a motion picture or any other kind of drama. I discovered, too, just why this gun for hire made a new star overnight. His name is Alan Ladd. He's here tonight to co-star with Joan Blondell. And he brought another gifted member of the film cast with him, Laird Krieger. Alan Ladd has just finished a new picture at Paramount called Lucky Jordan. But he won't make another for some time to come. We'll tell you why later. This gun for hire casts Joan Blondell as a hostage, a very lovely hostage, held prisoner by a gangster named Raven. That's the part Alan Ladd plays. That's an adventure story. It's on the top rung of the ladder. And as a drama of character, it sprung a few surprises on Hollywood. It takes all kinds of plays, from comedy to drama, to make a good theater. But good plays all have one thing in common. They get as much applause from a housewife in Omaha as from a stenographer in New York. And it's that transcontinental appeal that this theater depends on, both in plays and in Lux Toilet Soap. Beauty is among the products of every state in these United States even though it may not be listed in the geography books. If you examine the list of hometowns where all of Hollywood's lovely stars come from, it proves the point. They cover the country from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And since Lux Toilet Soap always follows in beauty's footsteps, you'll find that from ocean to ocean, too, and at most of the crossroads in between. Now the curtain goes up for a thrilling drama, This Gun for Hire, starring Joan Blondell as Ellen... Alan Ladd as Raven, and Laird Krieger as Gates, with Jack LaRue as Michael. In a shabby rooming house on the San Francisco waterfront, a man climbs the creaking stairway to the second floor. On the dimly lighted landing, he stops for a moment and glances back down the stairs to make certain he's not been followed, then moves slowly toward a door. His finger reaches for a bell. At last, the door is opened on a chain. A half-hidden face peers at him through the opening. Yes? What do you want? Is your name Baker? What do you want? I was told to come here. You were supposed to give me a letter. Who sent you? A fellow named Gates. Wait a minute. 
Come in, my friend. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure there was no mistake. Sit down, friend. Oh, we got company? Yeah, get the gentleman a drink, Pearl. Sure. What do you have, mister? Nothing. We're having some coffee ourselves. Bring another cup, Pearl. All right. What is this, Baker? You're supposed to be alone. Oh, Pearl's my secretary. Don't worry. She's all right. Well, did you bring the money? It's in the briefcase. Ten thousand dollars? Ten thousand. Where's the letter? I've got it. Don't be so impatient. What did you say your name was? I didn't say. Well, I'm funny. I always like to know who I'm dealing with. It's Raven. Thank you, Mr. Raven. You know, it's lucky they sent you today. By tonight, that letter would have been on its way to Washington. That would have been too bad for your boss, wouldn't it? Especially that little part about the formula. But for $10,000, I'm willing to forgive Mr. Gates anything. Even that nasty little word he used about me. Blackmail. I don't know anything about it. You wanted a letter. You mean you don't know what's in it? Oh, you should. Then maybe you could get $10,000, too. <laughs> Here you are, see? Addressed to Senator Burnett in Washington. Subject, the preparation of bromine, formula attached, and a few remarks concerning Mr. Willard Gates. I even had the stamps on it. Airmail. Give me the letter. The, uh, money, please. I was told to get the letter first. Very well. Here. Okay. You're not a very trusting soul, Mr. Raven. But I am, you see. Yeah? Well, that's great. You... Nicely handled, my boy. I compliment you. Yeah? I'll take my cut now, Gates. Taught Mr. Baker a lesson in morality, didn't you? Ugly people, blackmailers. Only one way to pay them off. Sure you won't have a Sunday with me, Raven? Marshmallow. Very good. All I want is my cut. I'm broke. You got the letter you wanted? I want money. Oh, yes. You're through with this, mister? No, no, just a moment, young lady. There's still some marshmallow left, if you don't mind. Just leave the dish, please. I will if you'll let go my hand. Oh, it's a lovely hand. Dainty and sculptured. Yeah, I'll bet you read palms. I'm an expert. How'd you guess? I guess. <laughs> yes, Raven, my boy, my client is most grateful. He really needed that letter. I need a thousand dollars, Lewis. I have it. It's in this envelope. But I don't advise your counting it at the soda fountain. Hmm. Your boss must have plenty of letters, Case. Who is he? Oh, he's very shy. I couldn't discuss him. Hey, what is your line anyway? You're not a finger man. I'm shy, too. Have a peppermint? No. My boy, I suggest you don't open that envelope here. Is there a thousand dollars in this? Certainly. They're all tens. Didn't expect a thousand ones, did you? What's the matter? Don't you trust me? Who trusts anybody? Direct from the bank, as I promised. And all new, huh? Yes. So I see your point, of course. If the bills were bad, you couldn't very well complain to the police, could you? I'm my own police. What do you mean? What would you do? 
First, I'd find out who you're stooping for. The shy boy. Then I'd give him what I gave him. Do not. I can't stand violence. Then I'd whittle off a little of that blubber you carry around on your stomach. Such a warped sense of humor. Oh, I, I forgot. Here, Raven, a little gift for me. Two orchestra seats for the best show in town. <laughs> I ought to know. It cost me plenty. That's my one vice. Backing leg shows. Here, two on the aisle. No, thanks. Oh, go ahead. Take your girl. You must have a girl or a friend. Why? Uh-huh. Live alone, work alone. Uh, have a peppermint? No. Excellent for the digestion. Uh, Raven, tell me something. How do you feel when you kill a man? I feel fine. Uh, really? Well, uh, I'll have to be going. Goodbye, Raven. Be good. <laughs> Lieutenant Crane. Yeah, sit down. I'm Willard Gates, Nitro Chemical Corporation of Los Angeles. My firm wants to know what the police up here are doing, if anything, about the man who robbed our paymaster. We're working on it, naturally. He's been reported here in San Francisco. Don't you know that? Yes, of course we know it. That's why I'm on the case. I'm from the Los Angeles force up here on my vacation until this happens. Well, I hope you can get some results. It's been a week now since the robbery. The stolen bills are all new and all tens. Why hasn't an arrest been made? I'll tell you why. Because a man may not even be here. All we can do is wait for him to pass one of those hot bills. Now, if he does that, we've got him. I hope so. You know that Mr. Brewster, the president of Nitro, has offered a reward. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 5000 for a 20000 bundle. <laughs> That's kind of unusual. Is it? Well, it's just because Mr. Brewster is so upset over it. Well, it's his dough. Remember, we want him. Dead or alive. Preferably dead after what he did to our paymaster. And quickly, too, or we'll go higher up. Good morning, Lieutenant. Oh, Mr. Duck. Hello? Hello, Mr. Brewster. This is Gates. No, I'm still in San Francisco. I have the letter you wanted, Mr. Brewster. And the formula. Yes, I think our troubles are over. A man named Raven got it for me. Oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't worry about him. The police here are very cooperative, Mr. Brewster. I don't believe he'll even have a chance to talk. Yes, I am coming back tonight. Well, there's someone I'd like to see here first. Well, it's a girl. A theatrical agent wants me to see her act for my club in Los Angeles. Oh, but I'll be in the office in the morning, Mr. Brewster. Goodbye, sir. <laughs> Well, what do you think, Mr. Gates? The girl can dance, can't she? She's very clever. And very lovely. She'd fit right into your Neptune club, Mr. Gates. You can hire her for 150 weeks. What do you say? I say yes, by all means. Now you're talking. All right, Miss Graham, that's enough. How'd you like it, Joe? I'm your agent, honey. I always like you. What's more important, Mr. Gates here like you. You're hired, Ellen. Yeah, what for? Neptune Club, Los Angeles. I'm Willard Gates, Miss Graham. I own the Neptune Club. Your act is very charming. Thank you. I wonder if we two might have dinner together tomorrow night in Los Angeles. Dinner? Well, I don't know. Now, if you're going to work for me, Miss Graham, I think we ought to get acquainted. <laughs> well, all right, Mr. Gates. Here's my card. I'm leaving for Los Angeles tonight. Oh, call me in the afternoon sometime. Okay. Thank you. 
And thank you, Mr. Fletcher, for digging her up. For 10%, I'd dig up my wife's mother. <laughs> so, well, uh, tomorrow night, then. Tomorrow night in L.A. Goodbye, Mr. Gates. Bye. Bye, Mr. Fletcher. Yes, so long. All right, Miss Graham. He's hooked. Go change your clothes. Look, Mr. Fletcher, I don't get this. Come on, we've got to see somebody right away. Now, wait. You're no agent, I know that. All of a sudden, you take a big interest in me and tell me I ought to work for Gates. Well, that's all right with me, but I want to know what goes. What's it all about? Talk takes time. We haven't got it. Hurry up, get dressed. Come in, uh, come in, Fletcher. Right on time, I see. How are you, Senator? This is the young lady I told you about. Miss Graham, this is Senator Burnett. Senator? Oh, so you're the mystery. Oh, no mystery about me. Just a hick lawyer the voters got stuck with. <laughs> Did uh, Miss Graham get the job, Fletcher? And I think Gates is hooked. I shouldn't wonder. I am, too. Now, Senator, I have a boyfriend. She doesn't mean me. Well, goodbye, Senator. I don't think you need me any longer. Oh, thanks, Fletcher. So long, Miss Graham. Yeah. Well, Miss Graham, you look a little puzzled by all this. I am, and it's not just a little. Well, I'll try to clear it up for you. Do you know about my committee? Hmm? Do you read the papers? Yes, but I... I, Well, how about your history books? Remember Benedict Arnold? Sure. The All-American Heel. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a handful of those heels in this country today. We are trying to expose them. It's okay by me. My committee thinks Gates is one of them. Him? The nightclub angel? Well, in the daytime, he's an executive of the Nitrochemical Corporation in Los Angeles. In between times, he's been seeing men who are suspected of being foreign agents. Yet our investigators can't turn up anything definite. And, uh... That's where I come in. Yes. Will you give it a try? Well, it isn't exactly like deciding to go to a beauty parlor. Oh, worried about the boyfriend? I don't know what he'll think when he sees me with Mr. Uh, Five by Five. (laughs) I don't either. Uh, By the way, uh, who is your boyfriend? Is Uh, he here in San Francisco? uh, He is now, but he's from Los Angeles. As a matter of fact, he's in the police department there. Lieutenant Michael Crane. A police lieutenant? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, Miss Graham, this might seem strange, but if you go through with this, I wouldn't want you to tell anybody, not even your lieutenant. Well, that might be tough. He's a pretty fresh guy. You think you can handle him? Sure. What do I do, Senator? Yeah, who is it? It's me, Annie. You want me to clean up your room, Mr. Raven? Yeah, come in. After 2 o'clock, Mr. Raven, I tried all morning to get in here. Well, you're in here now. Go ahead and clean up. That cat don't help me any. Here, cat. Come on. Come on, here's your note. There ought to be a rule against cats in a boarding house. Now look what he's done. He's knocked over the milk. Get out of here, you dirty cat, you. Let that cat alone. Oh, take your hands off me. Don't ever touch that cat, do you hear? You're hurting me. Let go. Go on, beat it. Cat, look at my dress. You ripped it, you see? Beat it, I said. Ought to buy me a new one. Shut up. Here's $10. Now, get out. It's the least you can do. You and your cat. Get out. Get out. Come on, cat. Come on, I'll get you some more milk. Oh, listen, Adam, what's this about a new job? I don't have to leave San Francisco yet for a week, maybe. Why, why, it's perfect. Except for one thing, Mike. I'm going to Los Angeles. But I don't. Hello? Lieutenant Crane, Sergeant Wilson is here, and he wants to... 
I'll see him later. And don't bother me. What do you have to go to Los Angeles for? I told you, Mike, a job. That was my good news. I thought we'd be down there together. Well, uh, how long are you going to be there? I'm not sure yet. I'm I'm leaving tonight. Look, sugar. <laughs> what does it take to get you to darn my socks and cook my corned beef and cabbage and, and sort of confine your magic to one place and one customer? Oh, Michael. I would have died if you'd let me go away without saying something. I want my guy, Mike. I want a home and some kids. Well, honey, you've got your guy, but uh, I understand kids take time. <laughs> well, uh, we'll get married Sunday. How about it? Mike, I'd love to, but my job, I, I, I can't quit on them. Why not? Listen, darling, it isn't... It, it, well, it's not really the job. It's, it's something else. I'll marry you the minute you get to Los Angeles, but it must be there. Why? I can't tell you why. Well, this is a fine start. Michael, listen. Hey, Mike. Look, Wilson, not now, please. This can't wait. One of those hot bills was just passed. A new 10? Yeah, in a dress shop. Who passed it? Some girl. A guy named Raven gave it to her. He lives at the place she works. Got the address? Sure. We'll get some men over there quick. Okay. Hello? Michael. Hello, get me Dolan. Hurry up. Michael, I'm leaving on the 7 o'clock. Southern Pacific, now please. Yeah, 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 if I can. So long, Ellen. Hello? Hello? How'd they find out? Please, Mr. Raven, let me alone. How'd they trace me here? You're hurting my arm. Cops all over the place. You got them after me, didn't you? Mr. Raven. Come on, get out in the hall. Okay. Get in that phone booth. Mr. Raven. Get in that phone booth. All right, now stand in front of me so they can't see. Yeah? Yes. Now lift, lift the receiver. Pretend you're talking to someone. Yes, sir. Say, say hello. Say hello, Miss Stewart. Hello, Miss Stewart. Louder. Tell her what's up. They're after Mr. Raven. Why? Because because he passed a stolen bill in a dress shop. What do you mean, stolen? You ought to know. Talking to the phone? How'd they know it was stolen? Did you have the number of the bill? Yes, Mrs. Stewart. The, the dress shop had the number from the police department. Yes. Stolen from where? I don't know. You do know? I don't remember it. It was some chemical company in Los Angeles, a payroll. All right, now listen. Hang up here. Go out to the booth down the hall. When you get to the window, look down the street and yell, there he is. Do you understand? The back window. Yes, sir. All right, now go ahead. I'm going out the front way. You get them all back here. Remember this. If they get me, I'll get you. Yes, go sir. on. Martin, bring those men around to the back, quick! Take it to Los Angeles, please. Yes, ma'am. Department for Los Angeles. Oh, uh, hello, Mr. Gates. Leaving us? Yes, for a while. One ticket to Los Angeles. Yes, sir. Well, new bills, huh? Haven't seen Never any mind new the bills. bills. Then you take it to Los Angeles. Yes, sir. Here you are. In just a moment, Alan Ladd, Joan Blundell, and Laird Krieger will return in Act Two of This Gun for Hire. Now, let's look in at a party where the guests are being entertained by that most popular of pastimes, fortune-telling. A young lady is listening to hers. Now, let's see. You were born between January 22nd and February 19th. Then you under, are under the sign of Aquarius. That means progress ahead. And looking at you, my dear, I'd say it means romance ahead. Well, would that all fortunes were as easy to tell as a luck girl. 
A girl with the charm of smooth, radiant skin. The kind that makes keen eyes linger and admire. Yes, a lovely luxe complexion makes any woman attractive. And if your skin isn't as fresh, as soft and smooth as you'd like it to be, why not make this test? Try regularly for 30 days the Lux Soap Active Lather Facials that famous Hollywood screen stars use. Here's what they do. Just smooth the creamy Active Lather well in. Rinse with plenty of warm water, then splash with cold. Pat the face dry with a soft towel. This beauty facial leaves skin soft, flower fresh. Yes, you'll discover this simple Lux Soap Care really works. Active Lather, you see, removes stale cosmetics thoroughly. Every trace of dust and dirt. Screen stars say it's like smoothing beauty in to use Lux Soap Gentle Creamy Lather. Why not get some fine white Lux Toilet Soap tomorrow? You'll be delighted with the new loveliness this real beauty soap will give your skin. Now, our producer, Mr. DeMille. Act two of This Gun for Hire. Starring Joan Blondell as Ellen, Alan Ladd as Raven, and Laird Krieger as Gates. With Jack LaRue as Michael. Southbound from San Francisco, the night train speeds toward Los Angeles. Helen Graham is on this train, and Willard Gates, and Raven. The girl has been asleep in the coach. When she wakes up, she reaches for her purse. Glances through it quickly, and then stares at the man in the opposite seat. Are you that rogue? Come on. I know you're not asleep. Hand it over, mister. Hmm? What do you want? You know what I want. My five bucks. It was in my purse, and it was, it was the only five bucks I had. One corner was torn off. I don't know what you're talking now about. Now, mister. Don't make me call the conductor. Just hand it over, and we'll forget it. All right. Here. Thanks. I'm no pickpocket. You gotta find somebody in L.A., and I'm short of cash. I wouldn't have taken it. Oh. Well, that's too bad. I can break this. You want to borrow a dollar? I'll get along. Well, I... I hope your friend owes you something. No. No, I owe him something. I don't get it. If you're broke, how can you pay him? Oh, I can pay him. He's a fat man who likes peppermint. And you're going to pay a debt with peppermint? Yes. First I find out who his boss is. Then I pay both of them, see? No, I don't, see. Forget it. Yeah, I will. Night. Night. Long distance. I'm calling Raymond Brewster in Los Angeles. Person. What? Hello, Mr. Brewster. This is Gates. Listen, I haven't much time. I'm in Salinas on my way down. Mr. Brewster, listen. Raven is on this train. I just saw him. I don't know. You better call the police. Tell them to pick him up at the station. They can identify him. He has a deformed left wrist, like it was broken. Yes, he's traveling alone. Number six from San Francisco on time. 
Okay. Let me see your left wrist, please. All right, go ahead. Let me see your left wrist, please. Okay. Are you sure you don't want that dollar? I don't need it. That's right, I forgot. You're going to collect from the guy you owe the peppermint to. Yeah. So, okay. So long. Wait a minute. What's the matter? See those men? The cops. They're looking for me for a job I didn't do, and they're not going to get me. You're going to help. Oh, no, I'm not. Take your coat and hold up your arm. What for? I'm not... Do what I tell you. Hold up your coat and carry it like you were carrying a baby. Listen, I'm no sucker. You hear me? Yeah. You can take that gun out of my back. Makes me uncomfortable. All right. Now, go ahead. Walk. I'm with you. We're together, see? Okay. They won't stop a guy with his wife and kid unless you tip him. Don't. I won't. Don't worry. All right, just look straight ahead and keep going. Okay. All that wrist, please. Okay. Let's see your left wrist, please. Okay. Well, you made it all right. Sorry, I can't have breakfast with you, but I've got a rehearsal. You, uh... You won't be needing the baby anymore, will you? Wait a minute. I got a job to do. Well, you don't need me. Nobody knows you're here. Go ahead. Somebody does know. You know, and I don't like it. What What are you going to do? Stick with me for a while. Please. What for? I want to know where you are. Listen, I'm... I'm not... Watch me! Watch me! Shut up! Watch me! Come back here! Come here! Nitrochemical Chemical Corporation, good morning. Mr. Brewster? I'm sorry, but you can't speak to Mr. Brewster just now. He's in concert. Nitrochemical Chemical Corporation, good morning. Just a moment. Oh, I gave you a job to do, Gates. A job involving millions of dollars, and you botched it. I didn't botch it, sir. Here's Baker's letter and the formula. Raven got those, and then you let him slip through your fat fingers. Is that all? Oh, well... There's one thing. I, I don't know whether they're working together or not, but there was a girl on the train with Raven. You said he was alone. I didn't see her until this morning. You know anything about her? She's a performer I just hired for my nightclub. Apparently, you want to commit suicide. I didn't know that when I hired her. And now I'm afraid to turn her over to the police. They wouldn't believe anything Raven said, but they might believe her. You're a fool. Get down to that club of yours and take her out somehow. Find out all about her and get out of here! Yes, sir. When did you get back from Frisco? Oh, this afternoon. Faye is Ellen around? Well, uh, no, she isn't. Well, where is she? She went out to dinner about two hours ago. Two hours ago? I don't get it. Well, neither do I. She went out with Willard Gates. Gates? Yeah, that fat wolf. Where'd they go? Well, she didn't say. Well, that's great. That's fine. Thanks, Ruby. The lights on yet? No, Mr. Gates. I just called the company. The lights are off all over Hollywood. Well, bring the candles, will you, Mr. Yes, Mr. Gates. Talk to you, Miss Graham? No, thank you. You know, Miss Graham, when I was a little boy and it thundered like that, my mother used to say, God is angry at someone. He couldn't be angry at you. I don't remember breaking any commandments. You know, you're a very intriguing girl. I want to know all about this. That's a big little word, all. 
Well, thank you, girl. Have a peppermint. What? A peppermint. Go for the digestion. Try one. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, I will. You know, I looked for you on the train last night. Thought we might be in the same car. I tried the observation car, the diner, the pole. I was in the chair car. Oh, really? Isn't that uncomfortable? Uh Uh-uh, not for an old trooper. That is, of course, unless you're unlucky and your neighbor snores. Were you unlucky? Oh, no. I sat with a very charming old lady. She told me all about her farm in Iowa and how her grandmother came out in a covered wagon and she said... What's the matter? So you do know him. What? You know him. What are you talking about? You were with Raven on that train. I saw you. What have you got to do with him? He's after me. And you're helping him. He'll use that gun, the gun he used on Baker. Why did you get mixed up in this? I hate my others. But don't think I won't protect myself. Mason! Mason! Yes, sir. Oh, yes. I'll have to leave now. Oh, no, not yet. I'm sorry, Did but I... Uh, yes, my coat and purse, please. I'm leaving. Is she leaving, Mr. Gates? No, I don't believe she is. Get away from me. Get away! Let me go! That'll hold her for a while. What did you do, Mason? I tied her up and put her on the couch. You... You didn't hurt her? No, never even scratched her. We're a cinch, boss. In a couple of hours, the bridge over the reservoir will be deserted. And now, look... Don't tell me. I don't want to know anything about it. But this is a work of art. You see, the ropes come off. I tie sash weights to her ankles with soft cat gut. Please. That's a horrible word. Now, get the angle on this. She disappears two weeks, maybe three. Then the cat gut dissolves. And she floats up. No marks on her anywhere. A suicide. Now, isn't that beautiful? It's loathsome. Be sure no one sees you. Don't worry, I'll take the other car. And when they find her... Don't tell me. Okay. It's just between me and the reservoir. I'll wait down at the Neptune until you come. I I wish she had stayed in San Francisco. You know, you're all upset over nothing, boss. Eat a good dinner, it'll calm you down. Such a lovely young girl. It's revolting. Come to the club as soon as... as soon as you can. Yes, sir, what is it? I want to speak to Willard Gates. Does he live here? Who shall I say is calling? Nobody. Mr. Gates isn't at home. There's no one here but me. Yeah? I'll take a look around. I'm sorry, sir. I can't let you in. Come on. Come on. Get out of my way. You can't come in. This gun says different. Oh. All right. Now, come on. Back up. Oh, so there's nobody home but you. What's his pocketbook on the table? Uh, Mr. Gates had a guess. She left it there. <laughs> Who's that? Stay out of that room. I'm giving the orders. Open that door there. Listen. You can't walk in here and... <clears throat> All right, sister. Just a minute. There. Afraid that gag was going to choke me. All right, come on, take it easy. I'll get these ropes off you. Oh, gee, I never thought I'd be glad to see you again. What are you doing here? What's Gates got against you? He saw us on the train. He thinks I'm your girl. How'd he catch up with you? I work at his nightclub. Yeah? Where is he now? He went back there to wait. They were going to get rid of me. Yeah? You got a dressing room down there, haven't you? At the club, sure. All right, come on. 
What for? I want to talk to Mr. Gates alone. Wait, I... Now, look, I'm not going to hurt you. You treated me okay, but you do what I tell you. Come on. Just keep walking. Go right to your dressing room. Don't speak to anyone. What are you trying to do? I can't help you. Which one is it? This one here. All right, go on in. Oh, here you are. Michael. Well, where have you been? Who, who is this guy? Michael, don't. Don't hit him. Watch it, mister. I shoot awful straight. Michael. It's Raven. Do what he says. Stay where you are, mister. I'm leaving and I'm taking her out of here. Raven, huh? Let a dragnet off you, Raven. Won't do any good to hurt her, so use your head. You better stay put. Don't move out of this room until I get clear. All right, sister, back up. Back up! Hello. Hello, this is Crane. Raven just left here. The doorman said he was heading south. Send a call out, but tell him to be careful. He's got Ellen with him. Right here, Mike. Somebody reported a man and a woman headed toward the gas works. Must be them, all right. Is he in there now? He must be. We've had the whole works surrounded since 10 o'clock. Nobody's come out. How many men have you got? About 20. There's a lot of buildings and things inside those works. We go in. Oh, no, 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 no. Just watch the outside. We'll have to wait until it's light before we can do much. Well, that's what I figured. Meanwhile, send for a searchlight, just in case he makes a break. Oh, and, and get a sound truck so I can talk to him. Okay. Charlie, call headquarters and get a sound Go. You're going to help me find Gates. I yelled just once, you know. They'd come in here and get you. Even in the dark. If you do yell, it'll be just once. Okay. Look, I've been thinking. We both took a beating from the same guy, didn't we? Yeah, Mr. Gates. I think I know where he'll be in the morning. Where? Well, you've got to tell me something first. I want to know what you've got against him. I did a job for him. Paid me off in hot money so he could put me where I couldn't talk. What was the job? Well. It's your turn to talk now. But you haven't told me. Your turn now. Where is he? He's a nitrochemical. Thanks. What is that? Is that a cat? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, cat. Here. Give me a fella. What's a cat doing in this place? Oh, you're hungry. Yeah, it's hungry. But we, we ain't got nothing for you, Tuffy. Listen, Raven. It's the cops. Raven, I want to talk to you. You're trapped. You can't get out. We're moving in when it's daylight, so... We don't want to shoot unless you make us. Come on, I'll talk it over. Raven! You hear me? Raven! Yeah, I hear you. Is that your boyfriend? Why don't he lay off on me? I don't want to knock off a friend of yours. He's a policeman, and you're wanted for murder. Yeah. You killed Baker. Gates told me. That's the job you did for him. Who's the man behind Gates? That's what I'm trying to find out. Maybe I can help you. You must have some idea who it is. How much do you know about the job you did? Baker was blackmailing the guy behind Gates. He's going to send a letter about him to Washington. He gave it to me, too. What was in it? It's a paper with some kind of arithmetic on it, a formula, he called it. Like a chemical formula? Now, how do I know? Was the letter going to Senator Burnett? Huh? Yeah, yeah, that was his name. Hey, you know, you know, I'm glad this cat came in here. Cats are good luck. Hiya, fella. 
You like cats, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, they're on their own. They don't need anybody. Well, this one could do with a friend. So could you. They're trying to make me go soft. Well, you can save your oil. I don't go soft for anybody. Okay. You know, I've been figuring something. That chemical formula. Yeah? I bet I know what they're going to do with it. What? They're selling it to the enemy. So, uh... So tomorrow, maybe they'll ship it back in bombs. Hey, hey, is there somebody else? Listen, do you hear what I said? It's important. This war is everybody's business. Yours, too. Mr. Gates is still eating his peppermints. That's my business. Why don't you stop thinking about yourself for a minute? Well, who else is going to think about me? They're coming in. Keep down and don't move. Hey, Charlie, how'd you like to be worth 5,000 smackers dead or alive? I wouldn't care for him dead. Hey, you hear that? Why? You can let the cat go now. It's gone. What's the matter with you? Let it go. Uh, choked it. You couldn't help it. It's dead. It's dead and I kill it. Kill my luck. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. After a brief intermission, Mr. DeMille presents Alan Ladd, Joan Blondell, and Laird Kriegar... In Act Three of This Gun for Hire. Haven't you often heard people say something like this? I haven't met her, but I certainly like her look. Yes, we'll consider him for the job. His looks impress me. Yes, looks are important. And as a matter of fact, you can usually tell by a person's appearance a great deal about the qualities of that person. And you know that's true of soap, too. Lux toilet soap, for instance, attracts the eye with its charming, distinctive sampler wrapper. Then when you unwrap it, you notice its whiteness. And if you run your fingers over the fragrant cake, you'll find it smooth and firm to the touch. Lux toilet soap is hard milled, you see. Made to last and last. And you need never worry that Lux soap won't live up to its fine appearance. That smooth, fragrant white cake is a promise of rich, creamy lather. Active lather that's quick and abundant, even in hard water. Lather so gentle that Hollywood stars say it's like a, a caress on the skin. And they use Lux Toilet Soap daily for their million-dollar complexions. Yes, you can trust your precious complexion to Lux Toilet Soap and know that you simply can't buy a finer toilet soap at any price. It's pure and mild as only the best of ingredients can make it. And... It costs you so little because millions of cakes are sold every year. Nine out of ten screen stars use it. So don't miss out on a real beauty bargain. Get some luxurious white Lux toilet soap tomorrow. Remember, 
Lovely screen stars say... It's a real beauty soap. Here in Hollywood, we've used Lux toilet soap for years. Now, Mr. DeMille returns to the microphone. After the curtain, we'll put our stars on the witness stand. But now, here's Act 3 of This Gun for Hire. Starring Joan Blondell, Alan Ladd, and Lad Krieger. With Jack LaRue. The police searchlights play on the steel frame of the gasworks. And dark figures roam the outer fringes of the deserted buildings. Somewhere deep in the shadows are Raven and the girl he is holding as a hostage. The killer kneels on the ground, gazing at the limp and silent form of the cat. You got the break. I'd like to crawl down there with you and sleep. Why don't you get some sleep? No, good. I'd only dream. Every night I dream. I, I read somewhere about a, about a kind of a doctor, a psycho something. If, if you tell your dreams, you don't have to dream it anymore. That's right. You, you wouldn't laugh if I told you, would you? No. Oh, the woman. Dream about a woman. She used to beat me. Put the bad blood out of me, she said. My old man was hanged. My mother died right after that, and I went to live with that woman. My aunt. She beat me from the time I was three till I was fourteen. One day, she caught me reaching for a piece of chocolate. She was saving it for a cake. A crummy piece of chocolate. She hit me with a red-hot flat iron. Smashed my wrist with it, see? Grabbed her knife. I let her have it. She stuck a label on me. Killer. Shot me in a reform school and they beat me there too. But I'm glad I did. Only. Only I don't like to dream about it. Oh, it's idiot. There's nothing I can do about it. There is something you can do. Don't kill anymore. You're just killing her all over again. That's all you're doing. Look, you don't really want to get killed. You don't want to kill him. What do you want me to do? Send him some peppermints? I want you to make him spill the whole works. Who's behind him? Named everything. I want a signed confession. That's more important than killing him. It's important to your country, don't you understand me? Come on, take your hands off of me. No, please. Get away from me. Go on. Go on, get away. Ah. Uh. Raven! Raven, listen! Are you coming out? Raven, we can see now you haven't got a chance. Are you coming out? All right, then we'll come in and get you. Come ahead, Captain. He's right. You haven't got a chance. There's too many of them. Listen, I got a proposition for you. You still want that stuff engaged? Of course I do. All right, help me out of here and I'll get it for you. Help you? Oh, it was that hot air last night. That flag waving. All right, come on, make up your mind. Okay, I'll shoot it out with him and I hope your copy gets the first slug. No, wait a minute. Promise me you won't use that gun anymore. Don't kill. If you promise that, I'll help. All right. It's a deal. What do I do? You go out first, across the yard. 
Don't run as I know it's a woman. Here, take my hat and coat. Wait till they spot you, then get under something. Stall as long as you can and come up with your hands up. You want me to go now? Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. You, uh, gonna marry that carpet? Yes. Is he the right guy for you? Yes. Okay. All right, go ahead now. Get over that way, Ed. Straight out, you man. Here we come, Raven. This is your last chance. Are you coming out? Right out, come out. He's coming out, Mike. Hold your fire. Keep coming, Raven. Keep your hands up. He's moving awful slow, ain't he? Yeah, it's funny. Put the stolen, Raven. Keep moving. If he drops his hands, Mike, let him have it. Don't take any chances. Stay out in the open, Raven. Raven, get away from that pile of lumber. Hey! He's stuck behind it, Mike. All right, men, close in. Watch out, you men! Careful! Get the tear gas ready. We may have to smoke him out. There he is. He's laying down on the ground. Don't move, Raven. Don't lift a finger. Quick, Ed. All right, Raven. Stick your hands in here. Oh, wait a minute. Come on. Wait a minute. Hey, it's a girl. <laughs> Michael. Ellen. Ellen. Are you all right? Yes, I'm all right, but listen. Where is he? Where is he? Where did he go? Michael. Don't stall. You're helping him get away. Where did he go? I don't know. Hey, keep the boys moving. Cover his foot of this place. Okay. Now, look, Ellen. What's going on? Are you going to talk? Why did you help him? Where did he go? I can't tell you. Well, use your head, darling. That guy's a killer. How did you meet him? What were you doing with him? I can't tell you. This isn't a cop asking, darling. It's me. He saved my life. Where? At Gates' house. Oh, Gates. What was he doing there? I don't know. Oh, Gates, huh? So that's who he's after. Then he's headed for Nitro. All right? So are we. Hello? Hello, yes, this is Gates. Mason, where are you? Well, have they got him yet? Have they got Raven? Escaped. They had him surrounded. Well, get down here right away. I need you. Gates. One moment. Yes, Mason, I'll be expecting you. Come at once. Well, Mr. Brewster wants to see you right away. So, yes, I'll I'll be right there. Gates, what's the matter? Are you nervous about something? Nervous? No, I'll be there in a minute. All right. Hello, Miss Bailey. Yes, sir. Cancel all my appointments. I can't see anyone. Yes, sir. Don't move. <laughs> Miss Bailey. Get away from that thing. Yes, sir. Don't answer. Yes, sir. Don't let Pete cut it off. Did you call me, Mr. Get away from that desk. Listen, you can't kill me, Raven. I'm not to blame. You you wouldn't kill an innocent man, would you? It's all his fault. I was only acting as an agent. Oh. Mr. Brewster, he's the one. Is he the boss of this outfit? Yes, yes. Where is he? In that office over there. All right, come on. I want to see him. It was his fault. He wanted it done. I swear. All right, shut up. Open that door. Yes. Yes. Well, come in, Gates. What delayed you? Is that him, Brewster? Yes. What is this, Gates? Who is this man? What do you want? My name's Raven. Raven? Mr. Brewster, the police are outside. Close that door. What? Close the door, I said. Now lock it. Close the door. All right, Gates, you lock the other door. Yes. What were you saying about the police? They're outside. They want to see Mr. Brewster. They will, but not yet. We got business to do. Are you a secretary or something? Yes, I am. Well, sit down and write. Write what? What do you want him to write? The things you're going to tell me, Brewster, so you can sign it. Don't be a fool. Incidentally, you can put that gun down. There's no necessity for it. I'll hang on to the gun. What was in that letter I got from Bacon? Letter? Come on, talk. You'll have to tell him, Mr. Brewster. He'll kill you. Shut up. Suppose you tell me, Gates. It was a formula. A secret formula. Baker knew we were making be it. Be quiet. He was writing to someone in Washington to tell them. Write that down, you. Senator Burnett, huh? Yes. You fool. Oh, you're selling that formula, too? Now, wait. You look like a young man who knows a good thing, Raven. 
Now, why don't you... Come on, talk. After him. After him. Tell him he'll kill you. Stop whining. I'll tell you. The new formula. Ruth says, hold her to the highest bidder. You've just committed suicide, Gates. You got that down? Yes. All right, give me the pad. Now, uh, sign, Bruce. I will not sign it. You'll sign. Go on. Wait, listen. How much do you want, Raven? I'm a rich man. Name your price. Take that pen and sign while you still got a chance. Very well. Very well. All right. Your next case. I'll sign it. I'll sign. Mr. Brewster, put down that gun. Mr. Brewster. He's killed himself. He's killed himself. One final double cross. Now that's one out of the way. But you're still left, aren't you, Dick? No, I... I told you. I was only an agent. Believe me, it was Brewster. There's something else. You tried to kill that girl. No, no. That girl's my friend. She's not your friend. She told the police about you. Shut up. They called me up. You lied. Oh, why are they here then? She told them you were here. I promise I'll never kill again. You're the only one exception. No, no, you can't. I'm innocent. Don't. signed by Brewster and Gates. <laughs> so this was it. This is what you were trying to get, Ellen. Yes. Not much use moving this guy, Mike. He's through. Okay. Can I speak to him, Mike? Can I? Sure, go ahead. Is it very bad? No. No, it's kind of nice. Gonna rest now? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You didn't tell the cops I was here, did you? No. Okay. I didn't think so. You know, you know, when I came to that door, the cops, I didn't finish you. I know. I know. Did I do all right for you? Yes. You did fine. That's... That's good. That's good, I'm glad. Michael. Michael, he's... Come along, darling. Michael. Look. He's smiling. This gun is no longer for hire, but for the kind of acting that makes any audience applaud, we'll bring Joan Blondell, Alan Ladd, and Laird Krieger back for a curtain call. Well, thank you, Mr. DeMille. Last week, you had Dick Powell here. This week, Joan Blondell. Plus, kind of runs in the family, doesn't it? If you need a few actors for next week, Mr. DeMille, I have a suggestion. I never have enough of those, Joan. We have two children that aren't working. <laughs> Do they take direction well, John? I refuse to answer on the grounds that they might be listening. I never know what they'll say when I get home. When I came back from touring the camps in Newfoundland last month, Ellen said to her brother as I came in the door, Hooray, Mommy's home from war. <laughs> well, Joan, I think this would be a great time for us all to wish Alan Ladd the very best of 
luck in the adventure he begins tomorrow morning. Yes, by this time tomorrow, he'll be Private Alan Ladd of the United States Army. Thanks, everybody. Give us your address, Alan. We'll write you one of those new V-mail letters. I'll have to wait till I get overseas, Joe. That V-mail certainly is a swell idea for speeding up the mail, Alan. Yeah, and all you need is a special kind of stationery, which you can get free at the post office or buy at any stationery store. Write your letter on this, and then the government photographs it along with a lot of others, others and sends the film abroad. There it's blown up to readable size again. Well, the Army and Navy recommend it because it saves a fantastic amount of cargo space. 1,800 letters converted into V-mail are only about as large as, well, as large as a cake of Lux soap. <laughs> Out of 10 million letters already sent, not one has been reported lost, because the original is kept here until the film reaches the other side safely. V-mail is fast, too. It's generally sent by air at no extra charge. Well, let us know when you get to camp, Alan, and, and I'll send you a package. Let's see, yes. Uh... I'd better put some Lux soap in it. Everybody likes that. <laughs> Men like the lather, and women like it because it's so kind to their skin. We use it at our house all the time. Uh, confidentially, Joan, uh, we have Lux soap in our house, too. Assuming that you haven't got a play that fits Joan's children for next week, Mr. DeMille, what are you going to have? Next week, lad? Well, next week we have a very unusual offering in the Lux Radio Theater, and a very unusual star. You've heard of him on this radio program, on his own radio program, and with Sibber McGee and Molly. You've seen him in the... Break it up, boys. Break it up. Hot stuff coming through, coming through. (laughs) Just a moment. Well, here I am. Here I am, Mr. DeMille. Hope I'm not late. To be or not to be, that's the question. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. For just a moment, please. Who are you? Oh, Juliet, wherefore art thou, Juliet? How's that, Mr. DeMille? I think I'm going to be all right in this dramatic stuff. Where's the script, please? When do we begin? Oh, wait a minute. You're, you aren't... You're not... Oh, no, you couldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm afraid you are. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Gildersleeve. Yeah. Well, where's the script, Mr. DeMille? What kind of a part am I playing? Uh, did, uh, did you come here tonight to act? Well, I didn't come here to wash my face, as Lux would have it. Uh, Lux. <laughs> yeah. To be or not to be, a horse. <laughs> my kingdom for a horse. Well, wait a minute. Well, wait a minute. I, I, I think I ought to let you in on something, Mr. Gildersleeve. Huh? You are on this program next week. Oh, a little early, huh? <laughs> yes, but... I've got a great part for you, Mr. Gildersleeve. Oh, something dramatic, huh? Uh, that's my strong point, C.B. Heavy drama. The heavier, the better. I see myself as a lover. I hold the heroine in my arms. She looks at me. I look at her. <sighs> I kiss her. I kiss her again. And I smother her face with kisses. Uh, you sure I'm a week early, C.B.? <laughs> well... Don't worry, don't worry. We'll give you plenty of rehearsal. Rehearsal? Oh, fine. Say, tell me, uh, this part that I'm playing, what is it? Uh, Charles Boyer stuff or Gable stuff? Well, no, it's, uh, it's Gildersleeve stuff. Ooh. 
Uh, we're going to give you a part that really fits your personality. Oh. Shy, retired, unassuming, a shrinking violet. Yes. You're playing the title role in the show-off. Yes. Oh, this is going to be one of my bad days. Good night, CB. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Good night, Mr. Gildersleeve. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Now, Joan, where were we? You were going to tell us who the star is for next week. Well, uh, something tells me that won't be necessary right now. Well, well, let me review the facts. Next week, our play is George Kelly's great comedy, The Show Off. And our stars are the great Gildersleeve, alias Harold Perry, Una Merkel, and Beulah Bondi. Well, if I can find a radio wherever the Army puts me, Mr. Vanille, I'll be listening. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. And good luck to you, Alan. Ladies and gentlemen, this week brings the birthday of the President of the United States. As in recent years, there will be a public celebration of the day, with all proceeds being used in the fight against infantile paralysis. This epidemic disease is a greater enemy than ever in wartime. So won't you join the March of Dimes tonight? Give a dime or a dollar or as much as you can afford, and send it direct to the White House in Washington. Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents the great Gildersleeve, Una Merkel, and Beulah Bondi in the show-off. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying good night to you from Hollywood. Starring with Joan Blondell tonight were Alan Ladd, who is currently seen in Paramount's Star-Spangled Rhythm, and Laird Krieger, who appears in the 20th Century Fox Technicolor production, Hello, Frisco, Hello. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers, who was also in charge of music for the picture Powers Girl. Heard in tonight's play were Charles Seal as Wilson, Gloria Blondell as Annie, Norman Field as Brewster, and Arthur Q. Bryan, Vicki Lang... Paula Winslow, Jane Bierce, Leo Cleary, Jeff Corey, Fred Mackay, Boyd Davis, and Earl Keane. This is your announcer, John M. Kennedy, reminding you to tune in next Monday night to hear the great Gildersleeve, Una Merkel, and Beulah Bondi in The Show-Off. A word about food shortages. The government says that three out of four of us didn't get enough vitamins and minerals even before the war. Science tells us people who don't get enough vitamins and minerals become tired, nervous, low in resistance. So don't take chances. Take them. The amazing low-cost tablets that have the six-vitamin formula doctors endorse. Three vital minerals also. Remember VIM. It's VI for vitamins, double MS for minerals. Get that VIM's feeling. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Time now for Rocky Jordan. Brought to you today by Del Monte Tomato Products.
up from the Mosque Sultan Hassan in Cairo stands the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. The Cafe Tambourine, crowded with forgotten men, alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against the backdrop of antiquity. Del Monte presents Rocky Jordan and this week's story, Pattern for Revenge. It was getting along toward midnight, but business in the tambourine was still booming. I had just stepped over to help behind the bar when I saw her come in the front door. Young, 22 or 3 maybe. Blonde and pretty in a brown suit with hat and gloves to match. She glanced nervously around, saw what she wanted, and headed for a back table where a guy about her age was finishing up his fifth double bourbon. Right away, a big argument started, and I moved toward the front, figuring to keep out of it. But then she turned looking for help, so I waved the waiter away and went back myself. No. Oh, Jacques, please, you're not I stay here. Get out, like I said, I told you. I stay here. Anything I can do, lady? I'm most sorry, monsieur. Please, Jacques, we must go. The gentleman will help you. No, I do not need help. I know what I'm to do. What's he talking about? He does not know what he's saying. If you would assist him to a taxi. Oh, sure. All right, Jacques. Everything's all right. Come on, up we go. Do not touch me, Jordan. Come on, easy. Well, let me go, all right? Jacques, please. No, he can't hear you. Had one too many, lady. He's passed out. Oh, there's a cop back in my office. We'll put him there for a while. Uh, are you sure he will be all right? Sure. All he needs is some sleep. You just run along. I'll let you know when he feels better. Very well, monsieur. I am Roxanne Bello. Jacques is my husband. I will be at our room at the Hotel Royale. You will call then? Sure. Just don't worry. Thank you. Thank you so much. Roxanne Bellon quickly turned and went out. A couple of the waiters and I carried her husband back to the office and laid him out on the cot. I sent the waiters back to their jobs and was about to go out front again myself when the phone opened up. Tambourine, Jordan speaking. Hello, who is this? What's it about? Who are you? You do not know, then? <laughs> Why should I? Come on, get to the point. Jordan, the time is running out. Start counting the hours and the minutes. You do not know where or when it will come. Look, if this is a bum joke, cut it off. A joke? <laughs> joke? You shall learn only too soon. All right, tell me all about it. Have I not said enough? Revenge, Jordan. A debt long overdue. Payable with death. What? Hello. Hello. Oh, great. All right, hello. I can hear you, Jordan. Oh, hello, Sam. Sorry, I expected somebody else. Your agitation does not surprise me in the least. What does that mean? It means that I must talk with you, and most urgently. Well, I'm listening. At headquarters, Jordan, as soon as possible. Oh, it's a busy night here, Sam. I got customers. This is for your own good, Jordan. Now, will you come at once, or shall I send for you? Uh, all right, Sam. I'll be right over. Jordan, you were 
advised to come directly here. You look relieved, Sam. Yes, indeed I am. On second thought, I realize that I should have given you full warning. Uh, Just supposing we get to the point, huh? We shall. Just as soon as you have told me if you know of any recent threat or danger to your life. Oh, no more than the usual. Why? Well, I have here a slip of paper on which are written the names of four men of Cairo. The first three names are crossed off. I've got an idea who's the four. A moment. The men whose names are crossed off are now dead. Victims of violent murder. Where did this list come from? It was found on the body of the most recent victim only tonight. Go on. <clears throat> it is not the first list of this kind to be found. On each person killed was such a list, with each man already dead crossed off and a new name added as the next intended victim, left there undoubtedly by the murderer. Mm, somebody's playing quite a game. Yes, as you say. This is the work of a warped mentality, someone with a fixation of vengeance, perhaps. One intent not only on murder, but in striking terror into the heart of his next victim. All right, Sam, get it over with. On the list found tonight is added a new name, one yet to be crossed off. The name of Rocky Jordan. I thought so. Let me see that list. No one is to see it, Jordan. Sam, if I'm next, I gotta know something. I things. intend that the police deal with this matter in their own way. You got some ideas? None that I care to discuss at this time. In the meantime, I suggest that you act with the greatest discretion. Sure, Sam. I'll take care of myself. I fully intend that you do. I'm taking no more chances. Sergeant Greco, step in, please. At once, Captain Sabayas. Ah, hello, Greco. Ah, good evening, Mr. Jordan. Now, uh, Greco... Captain Sabayas, if you will permit me, I have given much thought to this matter of the killings... Should you see fit to assign me to the case... That I am doing. I have a task for you. You may place full trust in me. Good. Until further notice, you will accompany Jordan as his bodyguard. But, uh, Capitan... Save it, uh, Sam. Call it off. I don't need Greco tagging along. uh, uh, Capitan, uh, would not one with less experience in more important matters, a man new to the... Enough, Greco. It will be all. Your command, Captain Sabaya. At your service... Mr. Jordan. I gave it up, too, and went on out with Greco following sullenly behind. Well, if that's the way Sam wanted it, so did I. Only now I knew the threatening phone call had been nobody's joke. When we got back to the tambourine, it was closed. I unlocked the front door, and when I started inside, Greco moved to follow. Oh, no, this is as far as you go. I have my orders, Mr. Jordan. I am to stay with you. And I happen to know the law. And I say you stay here in the street unless you want to get a warrant. Very well. But I warn you, do not attempt to leave your cafe without me. I will be here waiting. (laughs) I'll sleep on it. Pleasant dreams, Greco. I started back through the cafe, not bothering to turn on the light. I was halfway back when I remembered Jacques Bellon, the drunk I'd left on my cot in the office. And I was two steps farther when it happened. Shots came from behind my office door. Right away, I was running back, slamming open the door just in time to hear somebody scramble out the back door to the alley. I don't generally go chasing after people with guns, but I got to the alley just in time to hear fleeing footsteps as the figure faded into the night. Then I heard heavier footsteps coming from the other way. Stop at once! Who's there? It's me, Greco. Step it up, will you? Mr. Jordan, I want you not to leave your cafe without oh, me. Oh, cut it, Greco. Get after that guy. He's heading for the Sharia Farah. I saw no one go that way. Take my word for it now. Get going. I have my express orders, Mr. Jordan. They are to stay with you. Yeah, it'll take more than that to win a promotion. Enough. Now I demand to know what the shooting was about. Okay, Greco, come on. We'll both find out. 
We went back inside my office through the alley door, and there I cut on a light. Yeah, my guest was still on the cot. He hadn't moved. And it wasn't hard to realize exactly what had happened. I knew that all three shots fired at close range into the body of Jacques Bellon had been meant for me. Del Monte Foods is presenting tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. Last week, you may remember, we told you the secret is out. Yes, good news for catsup lovers. Del Monte catsup is made with pineapple vinegar. I've always known Del Monte catsup was good. But what's this about pineapple vinegar? Just this. Pineapple vinegar is the secret of Del Monte catsup's marvelous flavor. Catsup experts say the finer the vinegar, the better the catsup flavor. And pineapple vinegar is superlative vinegar. Del Monte makes it, and only Del Monte has it. It isn't so much that you taste the vinegar, it's what this pineapple vinegar does for the other ingredients that makes it so important. Nobody could miss the way it brings out the best in catsup flavor, the way it accents the rich goodness of those vine-ripened tomatoes Del Monte uses, and the way it blends them into a catsup that makes the plainest food so much better. So next time you make up your shopping list... Include Del Monte catsup. You'll say to... Del Monte catsup is wonderful. I never tasted such marvelous flavor. And best of all, it costs so little for what you get. And now we take you back to Cairo and tonight's Rocky Jordan story, Pattern for Revenge. we were sure of just two things. First, that there was a maniac loose in Cairo with a well-laid-out plan for killing a lot of people. Just why was anybody's guess. Second, that I was supposed to be his next victim. Only now, Jacques Bellon, lying dead in my office, had been the innocent victim of the shots intended for me. Right away, Sergeant Greco was his officious self. He planted himself between me and Bellon and told me to call Sabaya. And I did. Only while I was on the phone, Greco didn't know I saw him quickly pry a wad of paper from the fingers of the victim, unfold it, Read it and quickly shove it in his pocket. It wasn't long until Sam Sabaya came striding in with several of his uniformed men. Stay by the entrances, all of you. Yes, Captain Sabaya Bay. Now, Greco. The victim lies here on the cot, Captain Sabaya Bay. I did not allow Mr. Jordan to touch him. That's right, Sam. Greco should win a lot and of strikes. You will keep silent until spoken to, Mr. Jordan. Yeah, maybe you'd like for me to keep quiet. A moment, both of you. Now, Jordan, about this man who is dead. Well, I'd just come in the front way when I heard the shot, Sam. When I got back here, somebody was ducking out the alley door. Greco, where were you at this time? It will interest you to know that Mr. Jordan was most uncooperative. He did not permit me to enter the building. It was his right, however... Have Greco tell the rest of it, Sam. He had plenty of chance to go after the killer. That is his story, Capitan. I saw no one. Besides, it was my task to see to Mr. Jordan's welfare. Yeah, you took care of me. Enough of this! We'll see what his pockets hold. In the meantime, Jordan, what do you know of this man? Uh, his name's Jacques Bellon. He's drinking in my cafe and got more than he could hold. I put him on the cot there to sleep it off. Never had a chance to wake up. Hmm. A card here in his wallet. Uh, you are correct about his name. And his wife's waiting for him at the Hotel Royale. What? 
Most regrettable. Oh, a small gun in his pocket. Not fired. Lots of people carry guns. As you say. You will realize now that my warning to you was well advised. Sure, Sam, but what about the rest? I want some information. Jordan, the police are quite capable. Look, look. all I know is that Jacques Ballard would be alive right now if it hadn't been for me. I'd like to see it cleared up. I can well understand your feelings, Jordan. However, you have no reason to feel responsible. Well, I don't see it that way. Look, the least you can do is give me the names of the others on that list, the others who were killed. Very well. I will read them to you. First is the name of Ali Alkar, a shoemaker. Next, El Faroum, a pasha. And finally, Benny Christian, a Coptic. Well, shoemaker, pasha, Coptic, and me, a cafe owner. They ought to mean something. But... Then you do not remember. Sam, what possible relationship could those men have with each other or to a killer? Uh, I got a hunch you know. I do, Jordan. But I've told you enough. Now, something puzzles me. Why? Were these killing, uh, according to the pattern, we would have found a new list on Jacques Bellon naming the next intended victim. There was none here, unless it was taken before I arrived. Uh, uh, by. Uh, may I presume to suggest once again that I might be of value to this case? Uh, wait a minute, Greco. You're not going anywhere. You're my bodyguard, remember? Bodyguard. Well, a most interesting change of heart for you, Jordan. But it is my full intention that he stay with you. And this time, Greco, do not let him out of your sight. Your command, Captain Sabaya. Once the killer learns of his mistake, he will most surely return again. Sam checked around the office some more, and finally the body of Jacques Bellon was taken away. That left me with a job I didn't want but couldn't escape. A trip to the Hotel Royale to see Roxanne. Greco trailed along, but now he was silent, and his glance avoided my eyes. Ordinarily, I'd have felt like laughing at him, but not this time. It was almost morning when I knocked at Roxanne's door. After a little wait, she opened the door, clutching a dressing gown around her. Oh, Monsieur Jordan, come in. You've been told, Roxanne? About Jacques? Yes, I know. Who is this with you? Oh, Nobody, just my bodyguard. Bodyguard. <laughs> oh? I had to set something straight in your mind about your husband. Please, I do not blame you. Maybe you should. Jacques had nothing to do with his death. Those shots were meant for me. For you? That's right. Somebody thought he was killing me, not your husband. But, but how can you be sure? Did you have a different idea? No, except that... Monsieur Jordan... I must confess that recently Jacques and I were not happy. You don't have to say anything you don't want to. But I must talk to someone. Jacques and I have been married but a short time. I knew little of his life before that, and it did not matter. He was very devoted. But recently a strange change came over him. He was nervous and upset, as though frightened. Frightened of what, Roxanne? I do not know. Also, he began drinking. A bottle was with him always. And he would go away at night, refusing to say where... I did everything I could. I'd been searching for him when I found him at your cafe tonight. And, as you saw, he would not come with me. Well, that must have been about something else. Believe me, if I'd known there was any danger... You need not feel that way. What is done, is done. But if I could help now with, with money... There uh... is money. And that is something else, Monsieur Jordan. Yeah? I will show you. In this drawer... 
Hey, it's a lot of cash to have lying around. Yet it is there. And I do not know where it came from. Let's just say your husband was a good provider, huh? Look, Roxanne, somehow I'm going to square all this. You need not do it for me, monsieur. Then let's just say I'm doing it for Jacques. By the time I unlocked the tambourine door, it was broad daylight. This time I let Greco come on in. I had reasons for keeping him with me for now. Just as we got inside, the phone opened up. We both headed for the office, and all at once, Greco got real busy again. It is possibly from headquarters. I will take it. Oh, no, you don't, Greco. Uh, Mr. Jordan, I insist. Hello, tambourine Jordan speaking. Uh, who is that, Mr. Jordan? Cut it, Greco. Hello. <laughs> uh, you seem to live a charmed life, Jordan. But now your luck has run out. Uh, keep talking, mister. Death can strike many times. It is quite useless for you to hope that I will fail again. Mr. Jordan, you are hiding something from me. It is my duty to know who is on that phone. Oh, no, you don't. I command you to give me that phone and keep your hands off of me. All right, Greco, take it. He's all yours. That is better. Hello. This is Sergeant Greco of the Cairo Police. Who is there? That little scuffle with Greco is what I've been waiting for. The chance to reach in his pocket and pull out the slip of paper he'd palmed off the body of Jacques Villon. I had no time to look at it before Greco turned from the phone. The caller had hung up, as I knew he would. It was my move now, but first I had to shake Greco. Right away, I was out on the street walking fast with a protesting Greco at my elbow. In a little while, I'd let him into the Chouffon Bazaar, where shops had already opened for the day and the crowds were moving in. I kept going until Greco began to puff a little, then I was suddenly running. Wait! Mr. Jordan! Stop! Greco had a way of pushing Stop people rather than trying to go around them, and he was soon floundering in the crowds far behind. When I was sure Greco was off my trail, I stopped in a doorway for a quick look at the paper I'd picked from Greco's pocket. It was all I wanted. The names were there. Ali Alkar, El Faroom Pasha, Benny Christian, and my name next. All crossed off. And a new name added below, Ahmad Najim. Well, it meant no more to me than the rest, but a phone directory told me there was just one Ahmad Najim listed in Cairo, so I was in luck. I lost no time in getting to his place on the Sharia El Mahdi. It turned out to be a poultry shop. Nobody was up front, so I tried the door to the back room. A little man with a thin beard and a fez was puttering around some big loaded chicken crates stacked high along the wall. Ah, Allah be with you, Effendi. Are you Ahmad Najim? Allah, as you say, Ahmad Najim, the poultry merchant. Oh, we met before somewhere. My name's Jordan. Jordan? Uh, your face is familiar, but at the moment I do not recall... Oh, we've got to remember. Maybe it was a long time ago. Uh, perhaps, but Effendi... Hey, wait a minute. A shoemaker, a pasha, a coptic, a cafe owner, and a poultry merchant. They all could have only one thing in common. So? A courtroom, five years ago. Oh, but of course, Effendi Jordan. Together we were key witnesses at the trial of the despicable Alex Mandel. Sure, Mandel. I should have remembered that voice. Oh, it was something truly to remember, was it not? The shouting Mandel protesting his innocence of the murders, the alibis of his lying witnesses. But then when we, the respected men of Cairo told what we knew. Mandel's fate was sealed, was it not? Sure, it was our testimony that convicted him. Yes, indeed. Such rage I will never forget. All his idle threats as they took him away. Well, they weren't idle threats, Ahmad. The murderer said many things to us in hatred, but we... we... Hey, what did you say? Alex Mandel meant every word of it. He's broken out of prison. He's loose and he's in Cairo and he's out to kill every man who had anything to do with his conviction. Oh, but that is impossible. No sane man... Would That's be... right, no sane man. Mandel's already at work. He's killed three of his prey. 
He tried for me last night. Now you're next. Oh, but it cannot be. Mr. Jordan, I, I, I will tell him. I did not wish to speak against him. I, I was forced to do it. it. It was you and the others who convicted him. Oh, I cut it, Ahmed. You think he listened to anybody? No, Mr. Jordan, you must help me. Please, Effendi, hide me somewhere. We'll do better than that. We're going right to the police. Uh, the police? That is it. Yes, yes. We will go to the police now, at once. Uh... Oh, no. Mandel. Oh, Felix Mandel. Mandel, no, do not shoot. No. In Allah's name, no. I, I did not wish to witness. Oh! As Ahmed slumped away from the door, I dived in. Mandel's gun clattered away. I slammed him against the tottering chicken crates, and then we were down and rolling. Finally, I was on top of him with my hands at his throat. I was about to end it up, and a heavy step at the door turned my head, and there was Sergeant Greco. What is going out of here? Stop in the name of the Lord. Keep away, Greco. I'll handle him. So, Mr. Jordan, it is you. Rolling like one in the streets. Get up oh, at once. stop it. Let go of me, Greco. For the last time, Mr. Jordan, get up. Greco yanked on me just enough to loosen my grip. That's when Mandel twisted from under me, grabbed the gun, and was on his feet and backing up. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jordan, the tables turn so quickly. This time I do not fail. See what you've done, Greco? Tell him, Jordan. Tell the very officious policeman who I am. He's the man you want, Greco. He even took the list of names from Jacques' body without Sabaya's knowing, hoping you could win yourself a gold star. So, you took it from me. And this man is... Yeah, Felix Mandel. He just claimed another victim there on the floor. So, I, uh... I, 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 I did not know. Well, you know now. <laughs> enough, Jordan, enough. The time is long over you. I must dispose of you now and get on with my work. There are so many. They who spoke so bravely against me in the court, but now they turn to groveling cowards in the face of death. You're not too careful who you shoot at, are you? Even innocent people like Jacques Ballon. Jacques Ballon? <laughs> innocent, you say? <laughs> Jordan, I will tell you something. Yeah. The man who so sadly died in your place was at the Café Tambourine to kill you. Are you sure about that? <laughs> of, course, of course. Did I not send him there? I wonder if his wife knew. No, 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 no. That was all I needed. His fear that I would tell her of his past life as one of my gunmen. So I sent him to do my killing. And I paid him well. I know that much now. But his fear was too much. I knew I had to follow to see that my work was done. <laughs> Is it not a paradox that Jacques Bellon should be lying in a drunken sleep where I thought I would find you? Hmm? <laughs> but, but now we stand face to face. Now I will be sure. I'd stall as long as I could. I'd been watching the chicken crates which tottered precariously behind Mandel where we'd slammed him against the wall. They needed one more push. And Mandel did it as he backed against him and raised the gun. The chicken crates began to topple, and I dodged away as they came down. <laughs> the first one caught Mandel on the head, and the rest piled on top. I moved in, grabbed the gun, dragged Mandel to his feet, but he didn't stay there. His knees crumbled, and he fell back to the floor. Then I looked around just in time to see Greco poke his head up through a broken crate. A very live rooster perched on his shoulder, picking at the tassel on his battered fez. Well, there was some crowing after that. Not from Sergeant Greco. In just a moment, Rocky Jordan returns to conclude tonight's story. You know, folks, if you were to ask your wife what she considers is the best way to start off a meal, I bet she'd say 
Why, with a chilled glass of tomato juice, of course. That's the perfect way to start a meal. And she'd be so right. The refreshing flavor of a chilled glass of Del Monte tomato juice really whets the appetite. Starts the occasion off on the right note of enjoyment. Del Monte tomato juice has just the right tang, a pleasing, sunny flavor you get only from the very best tomatoes, fully ripened right on the vine. Del Monte tomato juice is fresh tasting. Yes, indeed, all the rich flavor of fully ripened tomatoes. Del Monte tomato juice is natural tasting. Close quality control by Del Monte assures you of true, natural flavor. Del Monte tomato juice is refreshing. That's right. Real tomato flavor that makes you ask for more. Fresh tasting, natural tasting, and refreshing. That's Del Monte tomato juice. Look for the green can with the familiar red Del Monte shield. Keep several cans in the refrigerator. You'll find they come in mighty handy. Back now to Rocky Jordan. Well, all it took was a taxi ride to police headquarters. Greco, Felix Mandel, and me. Sam sent some men out to take care of the late Ahmed Najim. Greco hurried off real quick, saying he wanted to clean up. After booking Mandel and putting him on the grill for a while, Sam slammed a cell door behind him. So much for Felix Mandel, Jordan. Yeah, it about closes the book. In many ways. Jordan, you need no longer fear responsibility for the death of Jacques Bellon, knowing now that he had actually come to kill you. Then he was really one of Mandel's gang before Mandel was sent up? Yes. In fact, he spent a short term in prison himself, but it seems that since his marriage a year ago, he had tried to live a circumspect life. So Mandel broke out, came back and put him to work. Yes, the threat of what might be revealed to his wife and the offer of money were too much for the unfortunate man. Hmm. Oh, come into my office, Jordan. There are still a few questions to complete my dossier on Mandel. Oh, why not get it all from Greco? Well, oh, you, you know, it is most interesting how Greco was so anxious to get away just now. He had so very little to say. Well, you had a big night, Sam. So it seems. Now, Jordan, how did you and Greco learn that the poultry merchant, Ahmed Najim, was to be the next victim? I'm waiting. Oh, look, Sam, you've got Mandel. Isn't that enough? Well, could it be that a list of names was left on the body of Jacques Bellon and that it was kept from me? Now, why would anybody do a thing like that? <laughs> Jordan, one could hardly say that you have any great respect for Sergeant Greco. However... He tries hard. Indeed, he does. Very well. I shall ask no more questions for your sake and his, Jordan. I already promised, Sam. No more questions. <laughs> you may go, Jordan. I, I shall give uh, Greco uh, your regards. For the finest in tomato flavor, enjoy the whole family of Del Monte tomato products. Del Monte catsup and chili sauce. Del Monte tomato sauce and canned tomatoes. And Del Monte tomato juice. Remember, buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods.
Rocky Jordan, written by Gomer Cool and Larry Roman, stars Jack Moyles in the title role with Jay Novello as Sam Sabaya, and is produced and directed by Cliff Howell, with original music composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Remember, you have a date next week at the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. Same time, same station. And the story is The Man with No Name. Whenever you want a quick dessert or a wonderful salad, think of Del Monte peaches. Sliced or halved, they have a luscious tenderness, a natural sweetness you will find only in pre-ripened fruit. Yes, for truly delicious peaches, buy Del Monte, the best-liked peaches in the whole wide world. Larry Thor speaking. Rocky Jordan is presented over CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And now, the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden. Down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of the Jewels of Kali. Is that you, Kedridge? Yes. I heard a scream. Yes, so did I. It sounded like Sheldon. You'd better take a look. Yeah. Sheldon, are you all right? Sheldon? Yeah. Let me let a match. Sheldon, are you... Kentridge? What's the matter with them? Both of them. They're... dead. The Hall of Fantasy will present the Jewels of Kali in just a moment. And now for our story, entitled... The Jewels of Kali. I and obey Mother Kali. If need be, I shall follow them to the ends of the earth. And they shall know that I follow them. Peace will not have, nor quiet rest. And their days shall be lived in fear of the death of the island. One by one shall they die, and I shall return to you bearing with me the jewels of Kali. Kali! I didn't know till later why George Mayer had asked us to meet him at his cabin on the lake. Elaine and I knew that Ketridge was going to be there, but we couldn't understand why he hadn't gone to George's apartment in the city. At any rate, we wanted to hear about Ketridge's trip to India, and so Friday evening we drove out of the city, heading for the cabin. Oh, 
It looks like it's going to rain. Yeah, maybe the storm won't break till we get to the cabin. Well, I hope not. It makes it treacherous driving on wet roads. I don't think we'll have any trouble. Do you know Ketridge Lloyd? I met him once, it was all. Mm-hmm. I doubt if he'll remember me. It was a long time ago. Uh, three or four years before we were married. Hmm. There have been several stories in the paper lately about the Ketridge expedition. The reporters have been comparing it to the men who found the tomb of Tutankhamun. I know. Two of his party died before they left India and another one over here. That only leaves Ketridge and Porter. And they're saying that some kind of curse follows the members of the expedition. Well, that's superstitious nonsense, Elaine. The three who died were older men. Because they died within a few weeks of each other, the papers are having a field day. It builds up circulation. I don't know, Lloyd. I, I think there's more to it than that. Hmm? How do you mean? Mm, I don't know. It's, it's a feeling I have. A, a lot of the stories jumped from one thing to another, as, as if they were deliberately leaving something out. Something too terrible to put down. Well, here's that storm. The rain's going to slow us down. Be careful. I'd, I'd just as soon get there in one piece. Don't worry, you will. Uh, are you really serious about those stories you read? Yes, Lloyd, I, I am. I'm just as serious as I can be. I'm sure that there's a lot more behind those stories. Something that might make us think twice before going up to this cabin. Every once in a while we get a, a warning, a premonition of things to come. That's what had happened to Elaine. She didn't know what it was, but she knew that something was wrong. What she didn't know was that we would meet death up there at the cabin. It took us an hour longer than it usually did to reach George's cabin. Do you have everything? I guess so. Well, let's go then. All right. It's going to feel mighty good to get inside. Did Ketridge drive up with George? I think he's coming up by himself. Oh, well, he's not here then. Look, there's only George's car. Yeah, he'll probably get here soon. <sighs> certainly gets cold up here at night. Oh, you must have heard us drive up. Hey, hey, hi, George. Hi, George. You made it all right. Yeah? Oh, why shouldn't we? Well, the storm and all. I thought maybe you wouldn't come. Come on in. Ketridge <sighs> uh, hasn't arrived yet, has he? No, no, no. Just uh, set your things down over there. Uh, <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> Uh, maybe it's a good thing we came up here after all, George. I can get in a little fishing. Tomorrow morning, we'll go out early. Good. Now, how about a hot cup of coffee? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Well, just sit on down. I'll get it for you. All right. You uh, want some, don't you, Lane? Oh, try to stop me. I uh, wonder when Ketridge will get here. Oh, pretty soon, I imagine. Uh, take your cups. He's a pretty worried fellow. Why? Well, you saw the papers, didn't you? Yes, we we saw the stories. I'll leave this here in case you want seconds. Is there anything to those stories, George? Well, Ketridge says there is. How do you mean? Well, he says he's lucky to be alive. Why? He said something about Kali's curse. Curse? That's right. He seems to think that everyone who is in the Lost Temple is going to die. That there's no hope for any of them. What was that? An animal. A dog. Or a wolf, probably. Oh, sir. Why does he think that they're going to die? Well, probably because three of the party already have. Hmm. He and Porter are the only ones left. He seems to think there was a curse on any who defiled the lost temple of Kali, especially on those who took the jewels of Kali. This is the first time I've heard anything about jewels. What jewels? Well, Ketridge told me that the idol held a ruby in each of its four hands. His group took the jewels. And ever since, their steps have been followed by death. Kali! Listen. 
Don't get so nervous, Elaine. It's probably just a dog out in the rain. That wasn't a dog. Then what was it? I I don't know. Hey, a car just pulled up outside. Well, that must be Kettridge. Henry? Is that you? Yes, I'll be right in. Lloyd. Yes, dear. That wasn't an animal I heard. You're letting your imagination get the best of you. You're letting calm down, calm down. Well, it's so good to see you, Henry. Well, thank you, George. Ah, Henry. Henry, these are the Erskins. Uh, Lloyd and Elaine, Henry Kettridge. Uh, how do you do? How do you do? Cup of coffee, Henry? No, uh, no, thank you. What's the matter? Anything wrong? Yes, plenty. What is it? Just before I left town, I learned that Porter had died. What? Yes, that's right. Porter and I were the only ones left, and now he's dead. I'm the last one of the party left alive. That my turn is next. What about the jewels? I have them all of them with me. Porter gave me the two he had. He said he didn't want them anymore. He was afraid, and he thought that by giving them away to me, that he would escape death. But he was wrong. It didn't do him any good. That means that I am the last one that soon, perhaps within the next few hours, I'll be dead too. Return to the Hall of Fantasy in the tale of The Jewels of Kali in just a moment. Back now to the Hall of Fantasy in the tale of The Jewels of Kali. The storm seemed to be getting worse. We stood there, the four of us, in George Mayer's cabin. Our eyes were turned to Henry Kettridge, whose face was white and drawn with the fear he felt inside of him. That means that I'm the last one, that soon, perhaps within the next few hours, I'll be dead too. Do you really believe that, Mr. Kettridge? What else do you expect me to believe? There were five of us in that trip, four are dead. I'm the only one left alive. Why don't you tell us about it? It's not a pleasant tale, believe me. Tell us what happened. All right. We'd heard stories of a lost temple of Kali. As you know, the British government outlawed Kali worship many years ago. But we had heard of a lost temple some 15 miles northwest of the Indian city of Amritsar. We'd heard also that she held in each of her four hands jewels of tremendous wealth, each one a fortune in itself. We set out from Amritsar. None of us knew that we were walking to certain death. It is a particularly barren country, rocky and mountainous. We had a difficult time traveling. At length, however, we came across a valley hidden by the encircling mountains. I remember it was towards dusk. Porter and I saw it first. Kettridge, look. Yes, I see it, Porter. That must be the lost temple. Sitting down there in the center of the valley. I imagine it is. Those stories about the priceless jewels. Do you think they're true? The stories about the lost temple were true, were they? Yes, only I... What, what was that? I don't know. then for the first time. The sun had just slipped behind the mountains and the sky was quickly into ever more darker shades of blue. 
the voice seemed to filter through the air so that it seemed to come from all directions at once. We decided then to push on that night, to travel until we reached the lost temple. We reached the temple several hours later and stood there bathed in the shimmering light of the moon. I think that all of us at that moment sensed that there was something inside that temple, something that was alive and wasn't just a graven image in stone. Yet, we couldn't turn back. We walked inside the temple. No one was there save for the black and besmeared idol of Kali, who held out her four stone arms beckoning to us. We stopped before her and saw that in each of her four hands she held a huge, glittering ruby. We took the gems and left the temple. Later that night, we made camp. All of us felt that we'd done something wrong, but we knew that we wouldn't return the rubies. Sometime after we'd retired for the night, I heard the voice. But I put it down to my imagination. I must have fallen off to sleep. What woke me was Sheldon's scream. Is that you, Kedrich? Yes. I heard a scream. Yes, so did I. It sounded like Sheldon. Better take a look. Right. Sheldon, are you all right? Sheldon. Let me let a match. Sheldon, are you all Kedrich. What's the matter with them? Both of them. They're dead. Sheldon and Friedman were dead. Around their throat, we saw the ugly imprint of the stranglers, the fancy guards rope. Kali, the wife of Siva, had struck back at us. Sheldon and Friedman were the first to die. Manning was next, and tonight I learned that Porter had joined them. I'm the only one left. They all died the same way? Yes, with the fancy guards rope around their necks. Here. I'll show you the jewels. Those are the jewels of Kali. Oh, I've never seen anything so beautiful. They're so large. I'd like to examine them more closely. Don't touch them, George. To touch them means death. Who's that? Well, just the sound of an animal out in the storm. Well, I hope it was only that. You don't think they followed you out here, do you? They would follow me anywhere. Those who worship Kali. Either they would, or she would. She would? Why, you talk as if... as if you think that stone isle of Kali were alive. Yes, I do. It sounds insane, I know. But I'm firmly convinced that that stone idol lives in a way not apparent to us. And that she will demand revenge for the wrong we've done her. Now calm down, Henry. I can't be calm with the knowledge that she demands her revenge. I can't be calm when I know that she will only be satisfied when I am dead. Just like all the others. Kali! Listen. I heard that cry earlier tonight. And they followed me here. What? That's right. They followed me here. For the sound you just heard was the cry of the priests of Kali. She's out there somewhere. Somewhere in the storm. You don't mean that you believe that the, that the idol of Kali is out there in the storm waiting for you? Either the idol itself or one of her followers. Lloyd, let's take a look outside. All right. Don't go out there. No nonsense, Henry. If anything's out there, we might as well see what it is. Be careful. Don't worry about a thing. All right. You ready? Yes. Let's go. 
you think he's telling the truth? Well, there'd be no reason for him to lie to us. I still can't believe it. Well, we'll see if there's anybody around the cabin itself. If he's telling the truth... George? What? Look, over there, by the window. Oh, I don't see anything. I thought I saw someone over there. Let's take a look. All right. Now, you must have been mistaken. I don't see how. There's not even any footprints outside the wind. Wait a minute. What's the matter? Uh, this. What'd you find? It's a piece of rope. Rather a, a noose with a knot in it. Maybe Kedridge is right. Maybe someone is following him. What do you mean? Kedridge has described this noose to me before. This is the type of rope and knot the fancy guys used, Lloyd. This is the sacrificial rope of the priests of Kali. You are listening to the tale of The Jewels of Kali on this week's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to our story entitled The Jewels of Kali. Kettridge felt sure that someone was outside the cabin, hidden from us by the storm. George and I had gone outside to see if we could find anything. For a moment, I thought I saw a man standing next to the cabin by the window. When we walked over to look, we found nothing but a noose of rope. Kettridge has described this noose to me before. This is the type of rope and not the fancy guys used, Lloyd. This is the sacrificial rope of the priests of Kali. How did he get here? I don't know. Well, there are no footprints here, except ours. I thought I saw someone standing over here. I can't be sure, but I thought I saw someone. If anyone has been over here, we'd be able to see their footprints. And how did the rope get here? I don't know. Listen. Yes, I heard it too. There is someone out there. But where? You can't see anything because of the storm. We'd better get back inside. I think you're right. Let's go. Are we going to show Ketrich? Yes. I'm sorry I asked you and your wife up here, Lloyd. If I'd known anything like this was going to happen... Oh, forget it, forget it. Look. Do you see what I see? Yes. Just for a second, outlined by the lightning, it looked like the statue of a woman with four arms. Kali comes for you. Lloyd? Yes? I hear the sound of heavy, slow steps. Let's get inside. Right. See anything? Well, it's inside. Here. What's the matter, Lloyd? You, you look as if you'd seen a ghost. We found this. The strangler's rope. That's right, and. And what else? We saw something else. What did you see, man? Tell me. The lightning flashed a moment, and we saw something that looked like a statue of a woman with four arms. She reached them out to us and said, "Kali comes for you." Are you sure? Yes. What are we going to do? Maybe we'd better go out to the cars and get away from here. What do you say, George? I think you're right. You'll be insane. You wouldn't have a chance. They won't let us get away. If we go outside that door, we'll be walking to our deaths. What do you propose doing? Waiting here until they come for us? Yes. At least they won't be able to get us outside in the dark. I think we should take our chance and leave. So do I. And I agree with them. Waiting here only means certain death for all of us. If we make a run for it, we may get away. Let's get our things together and leave. All right. Yes. Stop. Huh? You're going to stay here with me. Henry, where'd you get that gun? I've carried it with me ever since I left India. We're not leaving. We're going to wait here. Don't be a fool, Ketridge. I'm not being a fool. I'm tired of running. This is the end of the trail for me. I'm not running anymore. And you're not going to either. Maybe we can get away, Henry. Maybe. I don't think so. Stay where you are, George. 
I'm warning you. Don't you think that if... The next time the bullet won't be over your head. All right, Henry. You win. Look, I don't like to do this. There's no other way. Ever since we returned to the States to split up, I've had to face this thing alone. It's only a question of time and they'll catch up with me. I can't run anymore. I can't face death alone. Maybe they won't hurt you. There's no reason why they should. After all, you didn't steal the jewels of Kali. We did. And I'm the only one of that group's left alive. They all died alone. I don't want to. I need people near me. So that when it comes, I can face my death with courage and not die like a screaming coward. All right, Henry. We give you our word. We won't run away. Thank you. Kali comes for you. It won't be long now. We have only to wait. Take a look out the window, Lloyd. See if you can see anything. Right. Do you see anything? It's so dark out there with the storm and all, I can't see. Wait a minute. The lightning. The thing is less than a hundred feet in the cabin. What? The yeah, idol, the idol. I hear it out there. It's, it's getting close to the cabin. You three... Get over to the other side of the room. I'll stay here. But we can't... There's no time to argue. Get over there quickly. What are you going to do, Henry? I'll wait for it here. Maybe the gun will stop it. Oh. It's on the porch outside. Be quiet. It's just outside the door. Be quiet. Don't move. No matter what happens. It stopped. In just the moment, it's going to quiet. Kali comes for you. Look out, Henry. Stay away from me. Stay away. Ah! Is it gone? Yes. Yes, it's gone. And it took Henry and the jewels back with it. Where did it come from? Henry believed that it came all the way from the lost temple 50 miles northwest of the Indian city of Amritsar. But what was it? That that black grinning face with the grotesque body and, and those four arms? That was Kali, the wife of Siva, the Hindu deity of destruction. If I hadn't seen it, I would never have believed it. Yes, I know, but you did see it. The stone idol was here. All the way from India, it came to fulfill the curse on those who defiled the temple. And stole the jewels of Kali. I hear and obey Mother Kali. I shall follow them to the ends of the earth. And they shall know that I follow them. Peace they shall not have, nor quiet rest. And their days shall be lived in fear of the death who creeps behind them. One by one shall they die. And we shall return, bearing with us... The Jewels of Kali. Kali! So runs tonight's tale of the unusual, the terrifying, the unknown. Join us again when next we journey down the corridors of all the fantasy to hear another strange tale of the supernatural. All characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental.
In just a moment, you'll hear James Stewart as the six-shooter, just one of the many great stars brought to you Sundays on NBC. Every Sunday, hear Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy in The Marriage, Sir Lawrence Olivier on Theatre Royal, Lawrence Tibbet with the Golden Voices, Helen Hayes, Frederick March, Rex Harrison, and Lily Palmer on the NBC Star Playhouse. All of them heard only on NBC. James Stewart as the six-shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl, its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western Territories leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. Now, in just a moment, immediately following this important announcement, you'll hear Act One of The Six Shooter. Meet the safe driver. If you know what makes him stay alive on the highways, you may be able to follow his good example. He always keeps his car in A1 mechanical condition. He shows courtesy for other drivers. He knows that speed is his greatest enemy. And most important, he knows and obeys the laws. Remember, few accidents happen with safe drivers. Are you one of them? Now, Act One of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart. I hadn't seen Mary and Dan for pretty near three years, not since they left the panhandle. So I figured as long as I was riding up through the Platte River country, I might as well swing out of my way a piece and look in on them. Now, we'd been real good friends for a long time. It was kind of like going home. And the closer I got, the more I kept thinking about it. Remembering. Kind of daydreaming. You know, riding across Prairie Flat sort of does that to you. Your horse, he kind of finds his own trail mostly, and you just slouch easy like in the saddle and listen to the hoof beats, study, regular. Things you haven't thought about for years sneak into your head. Anyhow, I, I still had a day to go, and I, I was watching out for a good spot to bed down when I saw this campfire up ahead. Well, the way I figure, human beings are always better company than coyotes, so I gave Scar a flick with the reins and headed up toward it. Whoa, easy now, boy. There we are. Easy. Well, howdy. Hiya. Uh, you, uh, you'd rather camp private? Well, climb down. Pour yourself some java. Well, thanks. Easy, boy. Wait, that smells good. Yeah. You, uh, any notion about how far it is, Walnut Creek? Oh, 20 miles or so, right? That where you're going? Yeah, yeah, I stopped over there. A couple of friends there I haven't seen in quite a while. Uh-huh. Yeah, a fellow there I ain't seen for a while, neither. That's all. Uh, hey, by George, it's good coffee. Yeah, I've been hunting him for over three years. Finally located him. 
I'm going to kill him. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, how come? Murdered my kid brother four years ago in Laredo. Shot him down in the street. Yeah. Well, another killing won't bring him back. Oh, nothing will bring him back. After I killed Dan Mailer, nothing will bring him back, neither. Dan Mailer? That's right, Ponce. Huh? Yeah, I know who you was. As soon as you rode up to that fire and I got a look at that gun of yours. Britt Ponce. The fellow they call a six-shooter. Well, you must have known I was a friend of Dan's. How come you told me all this? Well, I figure you'll warn him. And that's fine with me. I want him to know. Have time to get scared, you know. Maybe try to run away. I like it if he runs a while first. I'll catch up with him. You tell him that, Ponce. You tell him Red Lawson's coming to kill him. And there's nothing he can do about it. Well, thanks for the coffee. Easy, boy. Now, Lawson, I reckon Dan won't run. I'll be seeing you. Come on, boy. Come on. That's the trouble with the past. There wasn't only good things in it. It got some bad ones, too. And one of the bad ones was reaching out for Dan and Mary. I didn't know this fellow Lawson. I didn't know what he was talking about, but I did know Dan. And I knew if he'd killed somebody back there in Texas, it hadn't been murder. It was long about middle of forenoon when I rode up the dirt road between the rows of cottonwoods, turned into the yard. Old hound dog came charging around the side of the house, sounding a lot meaner than he looked. Oh, boy. Wolf Scar. Here now. Here now. Now quit it. Yeah, you don't want to bite anybody. Uh, ah, nice fella. Uh, go on. Tell him you got company. Go on, boy. Go on. Go on. The place had a good feel to it. Quiet. Peaceful. And then I remembered Lawson. Oh, I just can't believe it. Hiya, Mary. It's been a long time, hasn't it? Uh, Dan, come on up and see who's here. Hurry. He's been working in the barn fixing up one of the plows. How are you? Yeah, you Mary? haven't changed a bit, Mary, unless you're a little prettier than Oh, oh you're Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> Hiya, Dan. Oh, good. Oh, you stayed away too long. Well, things came up, Dan. You know how it is. Yeah, yeah. You, you're sure looking good, both of oh, you. Oh, feeling good, too. Settling down is what does it, Britt. Yeah, she took a good saddle man and turned him into a poor plowman. What do you think of that? That's not true, Dan. <laughs> We've got the best stand of corn west of the Omaha. What's really great, though, Britt, is peace. Peace? No more gunfighting, a range war is... Never knowing whether Dan would come home sitting up in his saddle or tied onto it. That's all in the past now. Why, Dan doesn't even wear a gun anymore. And that's the way I want it, Britt. It's the kind of life I want from... Oh, have we got a surprise for you. Oh, well, you, you know, I... Kind of hard to surprise, you know, you remember? <laughs> that's what you think. 
Come on inside. Now, don't you tell me that. Oh, no. oh you'll see, Fred. Uh, let's see. Let's see. What, if you could, one of those newfangled player pianos, oh, is that it? Oh, no. A piano. That's the most ridiculous guess I ever heard of. Well, it sure couldn't be anything that... that, that Look. Hmm? Well, well, I'll be darned. Well, uh, well, well, I'll be, well, I'll be doggone. It's a baby. It's a baby. Well, which, which kind is it, Mary? Not it. Hmm? That's oh. young Brit. He'll be a year and a half old next month. That name was Mary's idea, Brit. I sure wouldn't have wished it on it. Well, well, <laughs> well, I'll be doggone. Oh, he's all upset, hasn't had his nap out. Rich will have to look him over later. You and Dan go on outside now and let me quiet him down. Oh, sure, Mary. I can't have my namesake all upset. Are you hungry, Brit? Oh, you, I'm always hungry. You know that, Mary. Good. Got some buttermilk cornbread in the oven. Be ready in a minute. You know, Brit, Mary is right. This is a good life. I never thought I'd settle down and like it, but I sure have done it. Yeah. Yeah, Dan, uh, I guess Mary can't hear us out here, can she? Oh, she can't hear us. Why, what's the matter, Britt? I met a fellow on the trail last night, Dan. Name's Red Lawson. Lawson? Says you shot his brother in Laredo about four years ago. Lawson. Kurt Lawson. Yeah. Yeah, I did, Britt. He was one of the Bracken gang, that bunch of rustlers that pulled an ambush on me when I was working for the Circle J Ranch. Well, then... I guess I better dig out the shooting irons and go after him. No, wait a minute, Dan. Wait nothing. He's probably holed up in town. The odds will be better if I go after him instead of waiting for him to come to me. Yeah, but what about Mary? Well, that's just it. If I catch him in town, it'll keep him from coming out here. And... What about her, Britt? What do you mean? Well, she's happy now, Dan. She figures this kind of thing is all over and done with. Well, she'll sure find out different if he comes out here gunning for me. Well, maybe he won't, though. Maybe, Dan, maybe I can do something. Britt, I've always fought my own battles. But you've got Mary now. You've got the baby. And you're a lot faster with a gun than I am. Is that what you're trying to say? No, no, Dan. I, there are just other answers besides killing, that's all. But maybe we can find one any way we can try, can't we? I saddled up Scar a bit early the next morning and rode into town alone. Figured I'd have a talk with the sheriff. After all, this was his job when you come right down to it. Well, he wasn't in his office at the county jail. He was out of town for the next three days. So I walked down the main street trying to figure out what to do. I, this wasn't much of a town, Walnut Creek. It's a couple of blocks of clabbered buildings and boardwalk along the front of them, sheet iron awnings up over and nothing much stirring but the dogs. Sleepy, quiet, real nice and peaceful for everybody except me. Huh? Oh. Oh. Mary. Early bird this morning. Well, Mary, does Dan know you came into town by yourself? Well, I don't know, Britt. I'm in alone every day or two. Why shouldn't I? Something wrong, Britt? No, no, no. I just wonder, that's all. Actually, I think he was too busy to notice I'd left. You know what he was doing? Cleaning his guns. 
You're a bad influence, Briss. Well, I... I think you've started him thinking about things... Well, Ponset, how about it? You give him my message? What? Lawson. Mary, uh, I'll... I'll see you later, huh? Well, all right. Oh, now, there there ain't no need of the lady. No. Uh, Goodbye, Mary. I'll see you later, huh? All right, Briss. If you say so. Giddy up. Come on. Come on. Mary, huh? Dan's wife, maybe. I hear he's got a kid, too. Yeah, maybe you hear too much, Lawson. And talk too much, too. Maybe you don't ride enough. Well, I'll ride. When I'm through here. When I get even. Yeah, but Dan told me about that. Your brother tried to ambush him. He was in with the Bracken gang. That don't make no difference to me. He was my brother. Dan Mailer was in my place. He might feel the same way. Maybe I'll give him a chance to feel the same way. Now that I know he's got a wife, a kid. Now, Lawson, if you touch me... Yeah, yeah, I kid. know. I know a lot. But once I've done what I've come here to do, I don't care what happens afterwards. You, Dan Mailer, can make no move until I do. You see how it stacks up, Ponson? I got all the cars. He turned his back and he walked off down the street and I stood there watching him go. Knowing he was right. He did have all the cards. There was only one thing in the world he wanted. Revenge. And he didn't care what it cost to get it. Even his life. Dan and I couldn't move first and afterwards it'd be too late. Return to James Stewart as the six shooter in just a moment. When it's entertainment you're after, you'll find the very best on this station of the NBC radio network. Thursday night, for example, you'll hear Robert Young, Roy Rogers, Ralph Edwards, and Eddie Cantor, each with a great program for your listening pleasure. Robert Young on Father Knows Best, a program based on the assumption that the man of the family can put one over on the wife and youngsters. And Truth or Consequences with Ralph Edwards. When Ralph sends a contestant off on a consequence, it usually ends up as one of radio's funniest stunts. And if you like Western songs and adventures, you'll find none better than the ones you hear on the Roy Rogers Show. Then, to top it all off, hear the little-known stories of show business that Eddie Cantor tells on Show Business Show, each Thursday on the NBC Radio Network. Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett. I found Mary finally at the general store, and I stayed with her while she bought some things, and we headed back to the farm. Just like a woman, she was curious about the fellow I'd stopped to talk with, wondered why I hadn't introduced her. I had a real hard time stalling her off, but I managed to. With Dan, it was different. Dan? Are you in there, Dan? Yeah, come on in, Britt. I'm cleaning my guns. Oh, forget it, Dan. There are better ways. Yeah? You got one figured? No. No, not yet. I saw Lawson in town a while ago, Dan. 
Oh. You talked to him any? Yes, yes, I talked to him. I reckon you better stay close to Mary and the boy. Why? What do you mean? What do you mean, Britt? Did he say anything? No, not exactly. He saw Mary in town. Was it dirty? No, I didn't let him talk to her, Dan. She wondered about it, though. She'll probably ask you later. Brett settled it, then. I hadn't even thought of that side of it. Britt, I'm going after him. You wouldn't have a chance, Dan. You're selling me kind of short, ain't you? No, I, I don't mean it that way. A Lawson wouldn't draw even if you called him. That's not what he's after, don't you see? You'd have to kill him in cold blood, and I don't think you could do that, Dan. No. No, I couldn't. Not even Lawson. What are we going to do, Britt? We waited and watched. The day passed. No sign of Lawson. Nothing happened. But instead of feeling easier, we just got more keyed up. Mary didn't seem to catch on anything was wrong. And then supper was over and the night started to come on. And we just sat around talking while Mary got the baby off to sleep, singing to him and rocking him. And Katie did start chirping close. Way off toward the hills, the coyotes took up and answered them. Inside was sort of quiet and gentle. He's finally gripped it all. Yeah, yeah. He looks sound asleep. Just look at him lying. Completely helpless. And so lovable you could just eat him up. Well, I suppose he'll get himself some hair and teeth someday. Maybe look a little more human there. Dang. That's a fine way to talk about your own son. That's when I heard it. Sound outside. A horse stamped just one or two times. Like somebody was holding too tight a rein on him. Scar and Dan's stock were all in the corral. Over next to the barn. This was right up close to the house. I didn't let on to Mary or Dan. What's the matter, Bruce? You getting restless? Hmm? No, no. I, I uh, oh. No, I, it's too many years on the trail, I guess. I, you know, I think maybe I'll amble outside. I get a little fresh air. Well, watch out for the coyotes, Britt. They're growing big around here. Dangerous, too. Yeah, yeah. I'll keep an eye on Coming out of the light that way, as blind as a bat. I stopped on the porch. I waited a minute so I could get used to the dark. I stood there listening to the sounds coming out of the night. The Katie did. The coyotes. Then I heard it again. I moved around the corner of the house. It was all quiet. No sign of anybody. I drew fast and fired at the light. Then I could hear a horse getting away. Rick, you all right? Yeah, Dan. I lost. He got away. Rick, what in the name of heaven were you trying to do? Are you all right, Mary? Well, thanks to you if I am. That first shot didn't miss me or the baby by more than six inches. Well, I'm sorry, Mary. I, well, there was a coyote out there, and I, I didn't realize... Didn't it. realize, you fool. You might have killed us both, and you didn't realize... Stop it, Mary. Britt was... No, no, no. No, she's right, Dan. It's my fault. I just didn't think, that's all. Rick, I think you've worn a gun so long it's beginning to affect your mind. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Look, I, I, uh, I think maybe I'll ride into town for a while. Nobody minds. I'm, I'm awful sorry, Mary. I'll, I'll see you later. Hmm. I ought to go with him, Mary. Why? 
After a fool trick like that, he ought to be alone. Nobody should be around him. It isn't safe to be. Oh, you don't understand, Mary. You just don't... Yeah. Well, let's go back in the house. Yeah. What? Let's all go back in. Yeah. Lost. Why, why, you... Easy, Mailer. You see how it is. Gun ain't pointed at you. One crazy move and your wife will get it. All right. Let's all go inside. Go on, move. Oh. A nice place. Yes, sir. Real nice place. Got a storeroom over there? Mayor? Yes. All right. Get inside, both of you. I said get inside. Come on, Mary. Ah. That ought to hold you. Huh? Stop. Close car. Whoa, boy. Hold up here. Oh. I could hear him up on. I could hear him. Uh, I've heard a lot of horses on the trail. Enough of them to know that this one had an empty saddle on him. I read Lawson hadn't left that farm at all. I get this. I'll try to get this door open. Where is he? Nobody here. Dan. The baby. What? Where's the baby? I don't know. Dan. The Lawson was here. He waited for you to leave and locked us up. He kept coming over to the storeroom door, telling us what he was going to do. He said he'd burn the house. All kinds of things. He couldn't have got away. He was here just a minute ago. And he has the baby. Rich. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's got to come over here to the barn to get the horse. Huh? Grab your gun. Come on, Dan. Stay come here, on. Mary. Don't come out of the house. He's got the baby. This won't be easy. I know. I can't figure why he waited. He had all of us. I, I can't figure it. Yes, he's waited three years. He just wanted to enjoy it, that's all. All right, come on. We'd better separate. No use making it easy for him. Right, Bruce. Hold it. Right where you are. The moon came out from behind the cloud. I could see him now, standing right in the barn door, right in the open, like he wasn't afraid of anything. And then I saw why he wasn't afraid. He was holding a gun in his hand, not... Pointing it at us, though. It was aimed at a little bundle squirming on the hay behind him. I reckon you can see how things stand. One move and it's all over for the kid. All right, Mailer. Drop your gun. I'm the one you're after, Lawson. All right, you got me. How about leaving Mary and the baby out of it? I killed your brother. They didn't. Hey, you'd miss him, though, wouldn't you? I guess you'd miss him real bad. Who are you? you... Hey, hey. Careful, Mailer. Dan just stood there, helpless. 
hands up in the air. The moon was out full now. I knew I could get a clear sight on Lawson, but I didn't dare to draw on fire. He'd still have time to jerk that trigger. The gun muzzle was about three inches from the baby's head. All right, Ponsett. Move on over next to Mayla. I want you both where I can see you. Go on, move. I walked over and stood beside Dan. Four years, Mayla. Four years I've been dreaming about this. Now it's even better than I thought. I didn't know you'd have a family. I didn't know I'd get the six-shooter along with you. It's our fight, Lawson. Why don't you leave the rest of them out of it? I had a brother once. Four for one makes a pretty fair payoff. I kept watching his gun. It was the only chance. If it swerved for one second, I'd make a play. But it didn't swerve. And the time was running out. And then... Then I caught something from the corner of my eye. Just the bare flicker of it. It was over in the... Over at the side of the house. It, it was Mary. I made my draw. Lawson! Here! Why you... You dropped the brick. Now make sure, Dan. I right, know we've got to make sure. Oh. Is that sure enough for you? Yeah. Dan, the baby. Is he all right? Yeah, he's all right, Mary. Oh, thank you. Mary, if anybody had told me that you could do what you just did, I... Here now. I don't know. You mean after the way I've always felt about guns? And after you tried to keep all this from me? Well, I... Dan told me all about it when we were locked in the storeroom. Oh, there now, darling. It's all right now. Britt, I saw what was happening out here, and I remembered the rifle, and... Well, after all, I... I mean, there was nothing else to do. All right now, darling. About three days later, I said goodbye... But I knew I'd be coming back that way someday. Dan and Mary aren't just the kind of friends a man forgets. Dan is a tough cowpoke from the range country, all settled down and lightened. And that Mary, she was gentle and sweet, firing at a killer to save a baby's life. And that baby, you know, naming him Brett the way they'd done, you know, that's that gives you kind of a funny feeling having a baby named after you. It's kind of a good feeling. I, I figured I'd probably be telling the boys all about that when I got to Wyoming. The truce in Korea doesn't mean we should stop writing letters to our men and women in service. Mail from home is just as important now as it ever was. In some respects, it's even more important. The action, the strain, the anxieties of war can keep a soldier's mind occupied. But when the letdown comes, the time to relax, that's when morale needs a shot in the arm. Your soldier knows the shooting is over. He's done his big job, and now he wants to get home. But unfortunately, there's still a lot to keep him for a while. So don't let him down. Help keep up his morale. Write that letter today. The Six Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions.
It is based on a character created by Frank Burke. And today's transcribed story was written by Les Crutchfield. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture Thunder Bay. Others in the cast were Shirley Mitchell, Leon Ledoux, Paul Richards, and Barney Phillips. Special music for this program was by Basil Adlam. And the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious. And any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. Hal Gibney speaking. Enjoy thrilling historical adventure in Stroke of Fate tonight on the NBC Radio Network. for you the world's favorite romance. This is Orson Welles, speaking to you only after a low bow to the memory of Henry Miller and James O'Neill and all the rest of his betters who played the wonderful, mysterious gentleman from Corsica before him. Of the author, of Alexander Dumas, who wrote Monte Cristo, there is no reasonable explanation. Dumas was a rich man. We note with interest that he went bankrupt in the theater. He was a revolutionary. His grandfather was a marquis. His grandmother was a negress. He was born as Napoleon became emperor. He died in poverty as the Germans marched into France. He wrote The Count of Monte Cristo as a newspaper serial. And shortly after the last installment, a ball and a bullfight were organized for him in Seville. And finally, in Algiers, the customs man let his baggage through without examination. Such things don't and can't happen today. But then neither does Alexander Dumas himself the wildest romance of a man who could and did openly maintain at 70 numerous establishments and a literary factory as well whose quantitative output is equaled in the arts only by the fabulous studio of Rubens. It's a good story about what Dumas' pair told Dumas' feet. Father, said the inventor of Camille, I have just read your latest book. Have you, my son, said Dumas, fair? What's it about? I'm not sure I have. It's no secret and no shame either that the Chateau Monte Cristo was haunted by many ghostwriters and that its owner signed his name to more books than anyone could ever write. It is not expected of Pharaoh that he build with his own hands his own pyramids. And the mere blueprint of one Dumas plot is an airtight alibi for a whole career. Of all these plots, Out of question, the most gloriously complex, as perfect as watchworks, and as big as Pittsburgh, among all others, one Dumas plot persists as the most ingenious tall story ever perpetrated by the mind of man. 
God's vengeance on radio scriptwriters, and your indestructible delight in spite of us. Here, then, is our humble 57 minutes' worth of the Count of Monte Cristo. Just before we begin tonight's story, I want to confer the freedom of the microphone upon Ernest Chapel. Thank you, Mr. Wells. Ladies and gentlemen, just the other day I sat down in the dining car of a train. I glanced around the tables near me to see what others were having for dinner. Perhaps you've done the same thing now and then because it sort of gives you an idea, doesn't it? Well, of 16 men and women whose plates I saw there in the diner, 10 were eating chicken. And I found my pencil writing on the order card. Chicken. Right then and there, I said to myself again, it must be this liking so many of us have for chicken that accounts for the great popularity of Campbell's chicken soup. Because this soup is chicken, through and through, from its golden surface to the very bottom of the plate. Its broth fairly glistens with chicken richness. Its fluffy rice is steeped in chicken flavor. And there are tender pieces of chicken meat in it to further tempt your spoon. That's why I promise you that just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. If you haven't tried it, why don't you? Perhaps at dinner tomorrow night. And now... Oh. present the most popular man in Paris, the Count of Monte Cristo, the Baroness Montiego. I am deeply honored. Count of Monte Cristo. What is it, Mercedes? Are you ill? No. It's nothing, Fernand. Perhaps the heat of this room. Very kind of the Count to come here tonight. Will you give me your arm, Count Monte Cristo? I am honored, madame. Is it true, Count, what everyone is saying about you in Paris? What are they saying, madame? That you have seen so much. Traveled so far, suffered so deeply. I have suffered deeply, madame. Now are you happy? No doubt, since no one hears me complain. Your present happiness, has it softened your heart? My present happiness does not equal my past misery. Are you not married? I am married. No, madame. You're alone, then? I am alone. You have no sister, no father? I have nothing. How can you exist, though, with no one to hold you to life? Madame, a long time ago, I loved a girl. I was on the point of marrying her. Madame, when we were separated, I thought she loved me well enough to wait for me and even to remain faithful to my grave. When I returned, she was married. Perhaps my heart was weaker than that of most, and I suffered more than they would have in my place. That is all, madame. Can you still preserve this love in your heart? It's true we can love only one. Did you ever see her again? Never. You've forgiven her for all she made you suffer? Yes. I have forgiven her. Do you still hate those that separated you? Do you still want to punish them? They will be punished, madame. But it is not I who will punish them. It is their own past. Mm-hmm. 
society had been more intrigued than it was the winter of 1834, when the mysterious Count de Monte Cristo appeared in the city of Paris. It's time now that the world should hear his story. Of the title of this man, nothing was known that winter, save that he derived it from a small and uninhabited island off the coast of Corsica. The source of his fortune was equally obscure, and it seemed inexhaustible. The paintings in his house in the Champs-Élysées were valued at seven million francs. His collection of precious stones far exceeded in value that of any of the crowned heads of Europe. Yet it was not his wealth alone that made him remarkable. At a dinner party that winter, a woman was heard to say that the Count of Monte Cristo had the look of a man who had been enclosed for a long time in a tomb. I heard her say it. For long years in solitary confinement, sharp in the hearing. The look of a man, she said, who has been enclosed for a long time in a tomb. No man but I could know how truly the lady had spoken. If to live in darkness for twenty years, in darkness and silence, underground and alone, if this is to dwell in a tomb, then the Count of Monte Cristo had dwelt in a tomb. I alone can speak of these things, for I alone know the true name of the Count of Monte Cristo. It is mine. It is Edmund Dantes. The story of Edmund Dantes begins in 1814, the year the Emperor Napoleon was a prisoner in Elba. It begins with a wedding. Edmund Dantes. Edmund Dantes, he's my son. What do you want of him? Edmund Dantes, in the name of the law, I arrest you. Arrest me? What have I done? I cannot inform you. You'll be duly acquainted with the reason for your arrest at your first examination. He's done nothing wrong. He's my son. He's a good boy. Edmund Dantes, you're under arrest. Follow me. Your name? Are you the king's prosecutor, sir? Yes, yes. My name, name is Edmund Dantes. You will kindly give me all the information in your power. You have served under the usurper Napoleon? No, sir. Edmund Dantes, it is reported that your political opinions are extreme. My political opinions? Alas, I never had any opinions. I'm hardly 20, sir. I was to be married today. What do you I... make of this? It is a letter, Monsieur Dantes. Well, read it. The king's prosecutor is hereby informed by friends of the throne and religion... But one Edmund Dantes, mate of the ship fellow, arrived this morning from Smyrna, having touched at Naples and the Isle of Elba. He has been entrusted by the usurper Napoleon with a letter to the Bonapartist Committee in Paris. This letter will be found on his person, or at his father's, or in his cabin aboard the Pharaoh. Oh, sorry, sir, I don't understand it. You know the writing? No, sir. Well, whoever wrote it writes well. Have you any enemies? Not that I know of, sir. Now, answer me frankly. Not as a prisoner to a judge, but as one man to another. 
Is there any truth in this accusation? No, sir. I swear by my honor as a sailor, oh, Go sir. on, go on. The day after we left Naples, when my captain lay dying, he gave me a package to be delivered on the island of Elba. What did you do with it? What should I have done? What every man would have done in my place. I sailed for the island of Elba. I delivered the packet and was given return a letter to be delivered to a man here in Marseille. I did exactly what my captain told me to do, sir. I landed here yesterday. That's all, sir. I see. Well, it sounds like the truth. Now, you give up this letter you brought from Elba and give me your word that you will appear at your call and you may go back to your friends. I'm free then, sir. Yes, but first, give me the letter. Here you are, sir. Very well. By the way, to whom were you to deliver this letter? To Francois Noirtier. Francois Noirtier? Yes, sir. Why? You know this man. A faithful servant of the king does not know conspirators. Have you shown this letter to anyone? To no one, sir. On my honor. No. No one knows that you are the bearer of a letter from the Isle of Elba, addressed to Francois Noirtier? Nobody, sir, except the one person who gave it to me. Why, sir? What's, What's the matter, sir? You... Give me your word of honor that you are ignorant of the contents of this letter. My word of honor, sir, but what's the matter? You're ill, sir. Can I help you? No, stay where you are, Edmund Dantes. For me to give orders, not you. I am sorry. I am no longer able, as I had hoped, to restore you to liberty. Before doing so, there are formalities to be gone through. Sir. I will try to make them as short as possible. Now, the principal charge against you, as you know, is this letter. You, You see what I do with it. You see, I destroy it. Now I can find it to the flames. You, for your goodness itself. Now then, do you trust me? Order me, sir, and I will obey. Hey, listen, this is not an order, but advice that I give you. Yes, monsieur. I shall keep you until this evening here in the Palais de Justice. Yes, sir. Should anyone else question you, do not breathe a word of this letter. I promise. You see, the letter is destroyed. You and I alone know of its existence. So if they question you about it, Deny all knowledge of it. I will, sir. It was the only letter you had? Yes, sir. I swear it. I swear it. Good. Now then, not a word to anyone, remember. Yes, sir. Your Honor. You will take this man to the guardroom and hold him there. He is to see nobody, you understand? Nobody. Yes, sir. Follow this officer, Monsieur Dantes. Later, I will give him his orders. Impossible. Take my advice, my friend. Don't brood over what is impossible. 
You'll go out of your head. Listen to me. I want to see the governor. If you don't let me see the governor someday, I'll hide behind the door. And when you come in, I'll dash out your brains with a stool. Put on the stool. Are you going to let me see the governor? No, put on the stool. Put it down. Well, do I see the governor? Yes, we'll see the governor at once. At once. Do as you think. Open the door. Open the door. By the governor's orders. Take this prisoner to the floor below. The dungeon. That's where we put our madmen. The dungeon. What? And jump. I tell you, I'm innocent. What? I'm innocent. I'm innocent. In darkness and silence, underground and alone. Every day, twice a day, morning and evening, the jailer came to my cell and put down the vile food and went away without speaking to me. My hair and nails had grown long, and my skin was white as a leper's. I'd been proud the first month. Now I began to beg. I begged to be moved from this dungeon to another. I begged to be allowed to walk around. I begged for books. Nothing was granted. I spoke to the jailer when he brought me my food. He rarely answered me. I tried to speak when alone, but the sound of my own voice terrified me. After what must have been three or four years, the governor of the Chateau d'If was transferred. The new man did not trouble to learn my name. I was no longer Edmund Dantes. I was number 37. I took to praying, but not as men pray in prosperity. In my prayers, I laid every action of my life before the Almighty. Still, I remained a prisoner. Then a deep gloom took possession of me, and then furious rage and savage thoughts of revenge, and wildly I dashed myself against the walls of my prison. I tore at my own flesh with my nails, and then... Then I began to think of dying. I swore I would starve myself to death. So every morning and every evening, I threw out through the small grated window all the food the jailer brought me. At first gaily, then thoughtfully, then with regret. I held the plate in my hand for an hour at a time, gazing at the morsel of bad meat, of tainted fish, black and moldy bread. One day I found I had not sufficient force to throw my supper out of the window. The next morning I could hardly see or hear. I knew I would dine. The day went by. I felt a stupor creeping over me. The gnawing pain at my stomach had ceased and my thirst had abated. When I closed my eyes, I saw myriads of lights dancing before them. I was on the edge of that mysterious country called death. Suddenly, a little after dark, I heard a hollow sound in the wall against which I was lying. I sat up and listened. It was a continuous scratching as if made by a huge claw, some iron instrument scraping against the stones. Then all was silent. Soon it began again. Nearer and more distinct. Perhaps it was only a workman repairing a neighboring dungeon. I soon find out. The sound continued. With my earthenware jug, I knocked against the wall where the sound came. Someone had heard me. 
I knocked, the knocks were repeated on the other side of the wall. When I stopped knocking, the other also stopped. After that, there were no more sounds. The night passed in complete silence. I never closed my eyes. Three days passed. Three long days. And never a sound. At last, on the fourth evening... Whoever it was was quite close to me now. I wanted desperately to help him, but I had nothing. No knife, a sharp instrument. I smashed my oven with a jug. That night, I moved my bed from the wall and started to scrape the plaster with a piece of the broken jug. Soon the fragments of plaster began to fall away. In three days, I uncovered a large stone. The next day, about noon, the stone began to move. Oh, my God. My God. My God, don't fail me now. Who talks of God in this place? Speak again. In the name of heaven. Speak. Who are you? A prisoner. Of what country? A Frenchman. Your name? Edmund Dantes. How long have you been here? Since the 28th day of February, 1815. You're crying. I'm innocent. And you? Who are you? I am number 27. How long have you been here? Since 1804. 20 years. All that night we worked. Then, just before dawn, a portion of the floor in my cell gave way, and from the bottom of this passage, the depth of which was impossible to measure, appeared the head, then the shoulders, and lastly, the body of the man. priest. I never learned his name. For eight years, we saw each other every day, using the tunnel he had dug through the solid rock, concealing the mouth of the passage with stones carefully fitted in place. By the sundial he had traced on the wall of his cell, we knew the hours of the guard's visit. The rest of the day, we were together. He'd been a great scholar in his day, and all that he knew, he taught me with infinite loving patience, day after day. Year after year. Then one morning, when I came down, I found him standing in the middle of the cell, pale as death. Quick, Dantes, quick. Listen to what I have to say. What is it, Father? Tell me, I'm sick. I'm dying. Help me to my bed. Yes, Father. You see, half of my body is paralyzed already. Careful. Yes. Thank you, my son. Now listen to me. Yes, Lord. All is over with me. This night or tomorrow, I will be dead. Oh, but Father, you can. I know the illness. There is no hope. And I shall never leave this place now. Before I die, there's something I want to give you. Here. Look. It's just a burned piece of parchment. But my child... It is my treasure. From this day forth, it belongs to you. Your... Your treasure? Oh, yes. 
I know what is passing through your mind at this moment. Even now, you, like like all the others. But be assured, my child, I'm not mad. This treasure exists. Have you ever heard of the great Sparta treasure? The Sparta treasure? I've heard sailors talk of it. For ten years, I worked for the house of Sparta. That paper that you have in your hand is what is left of the will of Cardinal Sparta, murdered by Rodrigo Borgia. Now, take the paper and put the two pieces together and read. On the 25th day of April, 1498, being invited to dine by His Holiness Alexander VI and fearing for my life, I declare to my nephew, Guido Sparta, my sole heir, that I have buried in a place he knows in a cave of the island of Monte Cristo, all that I possess of ingots, gold, monies, jewels, and diamonds, which treasure may amount to nearly ten millions of Roman crowns, which you will find in the farthest angle of the island cave, and this treasure I bequeath them even entirely to him as my silver says her spider. Ten million crowns. Yes. One hundred million francs of our money. Think of the good a man could do in the world with 100 million francs. Yes. The treasure is yours, my son. I bequeath it to you. Whenever you are freed, you have only to go to the island of Monte Cristo, and it will be there for you. But I have no right to it, sir. You are my son, Dante. You are the child that God sent. To console me in my captivity. Two days later, in fearful agony, he died. I closed his eyes and laid him out to rest as well as I could, and that night the governor of the prison came down to look at the boy. I watched him from my hiding place in the cell. When the cell was empty again, I went in. On the bed at full length and faintly lighted by the light of a single candle was visible a sack of coarse cloth. And in it was stretched a long and stiffened form. Quickly, I unlaced the sack, drew out the cord to the priest, and carried it through the tunnel to my cell. I laid it on my bed, turned the head to the wall, and covered it with a sheet. For the last time, I kissed the ice-cold brow. Then I went back to the dead man's cell. I could hear steps in the passage and voices as the guards came back with a stretcher. Quickly, I got into the sack and place of the corpse. I laced the sack around my body. I lay stiff, hoping that they would not hear the beating of my heart. Yeah, that's all right. That'll sink him. All right, now. 
You ready? One. Two. Wait. Wait a minute. Get near the edge. The last one was smashed on a rock, and we got the blame for it. All right. Come on, come on. Easy. Let's go. One. Two. Campbell Playhouse presentation of The Count of Monte Cristo, starring Orson Welles. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment... We shall resume our presentation of the Count of Monte Cristo. Lately, I've been speaking of the increasing numbers of good home cooks who, after years of making their own soup, have put by their kettles and are now letting Campbell's make soup for them. Tonight, I'd like you to hear from a woman who is herself one of these good home cooks. She's Mrs. Barbara Roth of 2134 24th Street, Astoria, Long Island, who has come to our studio to tell you personally what she told us in a recent letter. Will you read it now, Mrs. Ross? Ever since I can remember, we've had soup at our main meal every day. Mother and I would cook soup each Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday, a two-day supply each time. It was a big job and a long cooking procedure, but Mother has always insisted we need soup every day. About six months ago, we tried our first can of Campbell's soup. Well, the decision was unanimous in favor of Campbell's. Since that time, we've enjoyed not only the good taste of Campbell's soups, but also the easy way of preparing them. So I just don't wonder at all that people are giving up soup making at home. We've tried nearly every soup that Campbell's make and found each one such a treat we thought you were entitled to know about it. Well, thank you, Mrs. Roth. Indeed, we do appreciate knowing about it. Certainly, we at Campbell's are devoting time and care and all our skill to the making of soups worthy of a place at your table. And that's why I want to say to every other good home cook listening tonight, we'd like to make soup for you, too. If you haven't done so already, will you give us a trial? Try Campbell's chicken soup, for instance, for its deep, rich chicken flavor. Or try Campbell's vegetable soup, a soup that's practically a meal in itself. If you'll do this and let the fine flavor of these Campbell's soups speak for itself to you and your family, I'm almost certain you'll say, well, soup is one thing I no longer need make. In my home. Now we resume our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the Count of Monte Cristo, starring Orson Welles. In the late summer and fall of the year 1834, merchant vessels flying their trade between the south of France and the coast of western Italy, arrived in port with a strange story. Some miles north of the Isle of Corsica, there was a small island known as the Island of Monte Cristo. Naked and barren, 
It offered no shelter for ships, no possible place for human habitation. Even the savage Barbary pirates who infested those waters were known to avoid its rock-bound, treacherous shores. From this island, a thin column of smoke was now seen rising day after day as from a fire. And a large ship was seen standing out to sea, flying no flag. On one or two occasions, when curious merchantmen attempted to approach the island, they were greeted with a cannon shot across their bows. Then one night, the ship vanished. After that, there was no more smoke. And the island of Monte Cristo remained barren and deserted as before. of a man who had been enclosed for a long time in a tomb. Soon after landing, he inquired for an old man by the name of Dantes. And hearing that he had been dead for the past 14 years, he inquired for a tailor of the city called Cadarus. My name is Cadarus, monsieur. There are a few questions I'd like to ask you. Yes? What makes you think I can answer them or that I want to? This. Thousand francs. Yes. What are you doing? I'm tearing this thousand franc note in two, my friend. One half is yours now. Monsieur. The other half will be yours when you've answered my questions. Monsieur Caderousse, in the year 1814 or 15, did you know a young sailor by the name of Dantes? Sailor? Dantes? Yes. Why do you ask? Is he alive? No. He died in prison. Died, eh? What did he die of? What do young, strong men usually die of in prison? He died of sorrow and a broken heart. Oh, dear. And here's the strange thing. To the very end, Dante swore he was utterly ignorant of the cause of his imprisonment. So he was, poor fellow. Why do you say that? Uh, for no reason. Go on. I was with him when he died. And with his last breath, he begged me when I came to Marseille to clear his name, and he gave me the names of the people who were his friends. There are three, he said, besides my father and the girl I was betrothed to. One of them is you, Cadarus. He said that? The second man is a man called Gangla. Gangla? The third is a certain Fernand Mondiego. Mondiego? Yes. You know these men? Know them. Listen. I could tell you something about those two. Not that it would do much good now that he's dead. Who? That young fellow you were talking about. The sailor, Edmund Dante. What do you mean? It wouldn't do him much good. Just what I say. You know who sent Dante's to prison? No. Well, I do. Two men who were jealous of him. One for love and one for ambition. And you know who they were? I'll tell you. Mondiego and Dangla. I thought they were his friends. Yes, so he thought. What did they do? They denounced him to the police as a traitor. And was he a traitor? No more than you or I. But they knew he had a letter on him from the Emperor Napoleon in exile. Something his dying captain had given him and it looked bad. Which of the two denounced him? Both. Dangla was the sharp one. He wrote the letter, and Mondiego put the letter in the post. But when was this letter written? In a cafe, the night before his wedding. How do you know? Were you there? I was at the next table. They thought I was too drunk to hear them, but I heard them. They sent the letter to the magistrate, de Villefort. Villefort. If you knew all this when they arrested him, why didn't you speak? I was afraid, monsieur. I was afraid of what they'd do to me, those two. 
Dangler was the sharp one, but Mon Diego was quick with his knife. Oh, often is the time I've repented it. Well, now you've told the truth at last. But Edmund Dantes is dead. He has not forgiven me. He never knew what you'd done. He knows it now. They say the dead know everything. Yes. Alan Cutteros, another thousand francs if you tell me the truth. You say those two gave him up because they were jealous of him. That's right. Why? Why was this Danglard jealous of him? They were shipmates. Shipmates? How did you know that? You told me just now. Why was he jealous of Dantes? Danglard? Because he wanted his job. Oh. Yes. And they were mates together on the same ship. And the old captain died, and the owners made young Dante's captain, Danglar, never forgave him. And the other one, this Mondiego. What did he have against Dante's? A girl. A girl? Yes. A girl Dante's was engaged to marry. She was Mondiego's cousin, and he wanted her, too. And, well, when he got his chance to get young Dante's out of the way, he took it. I see. Now, tell me. What happened to those two... Danglar and Mondiego. Do you know them still? Where in heaven's name have you been, my friend? There isn't a man in France who doesn't know them. Danglar's a millionaire, has a banking house of his own. Baron Danglar, he calls himself now. And Mondiego's a baron, too, and a cabinet minister, and an officer of the Legion of Honor with a house in Paris a block wide. They've done pretty well for themselves, they have. And you'd think they'd remember their old friends, wouldn't you? But not they. <laughs> They send the butler out with a ten-franc note. That's what they now do. Now then, tell me. They... How about this girl Edmund Dantes was betrothed to? The girl? Yes. Mercedes? Yes. Yes, that's her name. What happened to her? Oh, that's a sad story. When Dantes was arrested, she was nearly mad with grief. Pitiful it was. Six months went by, and there was no news of him, and every day there was her mother telling her that he was dead and telling her to marry Mon Diego. She used to come to see old Dante's. Edmund is dead, he said to her. If he weren't, he would have returned to us. Then the old man died and left her quite alone. Still she waited, and still no word from him. Then, in the end, after a year, she married Mondiego. Now she's one of the greatest ladies in Paris. A year? She waited a year? What'd you say? Uh, nothing. Nothing. You say Edmund Dante's father died? Yes. Soon after his son disappeared. What did he die of? Well, if you want to know what I think, he died of starvation. Starvation? The doctor had another name for it. But I know better. He locked himself up in his room and died of starvation. day, the stranger appeared at the town hall and asked to see the prison records for the year 1815. He obtained permission to go through the case of a certain Edmund Dantes, imprisoned that he unsubsequently reported as dead. He read the examination and record and noted with surprise that the name of Francois Noitier, to whom the fatal letter had been addressed, never once appeared in it. There was a notation in the margin which read as follows, Edmund Dantes, an inveterate criminal, be kept in complete solitary confinement and to be strictly watched and guarded. It was signed Francois Noitier de Villefort. Below, in another hand, was written, Prisoner killed while attempting to escape. That night, the stranger left Marseille going north. (laughs) 
Diego Danglad Villefort. Mon Diego Danglad Villefort. Ali? Yes, master. Here are 100,000 francs. Spare no expense. Find out everything there is to know about those three. Every move they've made, every word they've said, every line they've written. Yes, Find out about their homes, their wives, their children, friends. Yes, master. Find out where they got their power, how they made their money, whom they robbed, whom they cheated, whom they murdered. Yes, One day in November, Baron Danglar, head of the banking house of that name, received a visit from a new client. The honor of addressing the Count of Monte Cristo. You have, Baron Danglars. Have you been in Paris long, sir? Since this morning. I have a letter here, sir, from the firm of Thompson and French in Rome. A letter of credit in your name. Good. Then I take it beginning today, my checks will be duly honored by your house. In this letter, there is one thing not quite clear. Indeed. According to this letter, the Count of Monte Cristo is to have unlimited credit on our house. And what is there in that simple fact that requires explanation? Merely that term, unlimited. Are you suggesting that Thompson and French are not looked upon as solvent bankers? Oh, no, no, no. It was not their solvency I spoke of, but the word unlimited in financial affairs is so extremely vague a term. To me, Baron, the word means exactly what it says. It means without limitation. Well, I assure you, sir, that up to the amount of a million... I beg your pardon. I assure you, should you at any time be hard-pressed, were you even to require a million francs... One million? Why, Baron... I always carry one or two million in some corner of my pocket. Expect me to call on you for ten or fifteen million on my first draft. Well, I admit I have hardly been... If you would prefer not to handle this account, Baron Danglar, I have letters similar to yours addressed to Bearings of London and Baron de Rothschild of the city. You need have no scruples in declining. I assure you, I never entertain... No, 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 no. You merely wish to be convinced that your stockholders ran no risk. Nothing more. Very sound, Baron Danglar. I understand they include some of the greatest names in France. Am I right? The Count de Mondiego? Eh? The Baron de Villefort? It is not generally known that... Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. Now we understand one another. I should like to draw tomorrow the sum of, shall we say, six million francs. Half gold, half notes. Six million francs? As you say... If I should require more, I'll let you know. Oh, by the way... Buy me tomorrow 10,000 shares of Austrian Commonwealth. You have some information, sir, about uh, this stuff? You will find, sir, that I never gamble, except in certainties. Master. What have you found out about these men? One, Dangla. Dangla, banker. Three times bankrupt. Convicted of using charity funds. Recently suspected of plunging heavily with the funds borrowed from his own bank. Two, Deville Four. Deville Four, formerly King's agent in Marseille, where acted as Bonapartist by under the name of Francois Noirtier. Francois Noirtier. Known to accept bribes. At present, prosecutor general of King's Court. Said to speculate with funds borrowed from Dangla Bank. Three. Mondiego. Mondiego, dismissed from naval service for theft. Tried for murder, 1816. Deserted French Army, 1824. Believed in vast heavy losses. Dangla Bank. Dangla. Feel for... Mondiego. 
What is it, Dangler? You sent for me in court. I hope it's something good this time. We need it. Just arrived. A private message for the Count of Monte Cristo from the firm of Thompson and French from Rome. They've never been wrong yet. Does he know we intercept his messages, Dangler? Who cares? What does it say? Read it, man. A secret treaty has been signed tonight. Anglo-Italian shares due sharp rise. Buy all available shares. Thompson and French. Well, we are going to buy. Dangler, I'm worried. Everything we've touched has gone wrong lately. Those Belgian bonds we bought, we lost half a million Who's on Who's is that? On whose information were they bought? Can I help it, Dangler? The government changes Those its mind. Gentlemen, gentlemen. Our situation is desperate. You've got to plunge. We have no choice. If it were not for the count of Monte Cristo's deposits, we'd have been bankrupt three weeks bankrupt. ago. Yes, you understand that? Bankrupt. If that money should be called for today or tomorrow or the next day, this bank is ruined. Dangler, I don't see what that has to do with us. You don't. You don't, eh? Well, if I go, you go. All of you. Make no mistake about that. Oh, gentlemen. What do you propose to do about this, Dangler? I propose to buy every share of Anglo-Italian that comes into this market. <laughs> With what? With what? You forget, gentlemen, that the Count of Monte Cristo has 16 million francs on deposit in this bank. Oh, yes, I see. Well, what about this message of his? Does the Count of Monte Cristo get to see it? This message, gentlemen, was lost in transmission. <laughs> Buy 300 shares of Anglo-Italians. Rarely has Paris been more intrigued than it was that winter by the mysterious Count of Monte Cristo. His wealth seemed inexhaustible. And it was said that for his carriage wheels alone he had paid one million francs. It was at the end of December that a great ball was given by the Baron Danglars. Countess de Montiego. We've missed you. In so short a time, madame. A strange thought occurs to you. Yes, madame. It seems to me that you've been gone longer than I can say. An odd idea, Count, but I... I cannot shake it off. You must think back, madame. Perhaps some half-forgotten moment in your past. My past is not forgotten. No? Then it is lost. What's lost? What have you lost? Who are you? You must forgive me, Countess. I have an appointment with your husband. Tell me who you are. Madame, I am the Count of Monte Cristo. And the world is mine. Congratulations, Dangler. I got your message. Good day's work. Tell me, how much did we buy of Anglo-Italian? 62,000 shares. 62,000? Yes. How much profit does that show? So far, Mondiego, three million. Three million? Three million, yes. And it's only a beginning. Who is selling? That I don't know. I couldn't find out. Baron Dangler? Yes. 
Count of Monte Cristo would like a word with you. Uh, tell him, tell him I can't see him. Good evening, gentlemen. A charming party. I hope I do not intrude. Ganga, the view for Mon Diego, how fortunate. Gentlemen, I'm here to say goodbye to all three of you. Goodbye. I've decided to leave Paris for a while, perhaps forever. Before I go, there are certain things I've left to do. Donna I'm in need of money. My credit on your money? books as of tonight is 16 million francs. That's about 4 million to cover certain stocks I sold short today. Oh, so. Here's a check for 10 million francs made out of cash. My carriage will be at your bank at 9 o'clock. I'll take half in gold and half in notes. But surely... I beg your pardon. Sir, such a very large sum. Yes, a very large sum. If you could conveniently wait for this money for 24 hours, or at the most, 48... I have told you, Baron Dangler, I am leaving Paris in the morning. Oh, oh, by the way, Baron, you will be interested to learn that less than an hour ago, Anglo-Italian went into liquidation. Yeah, liquidation. <laughs> this moment, that stock is worth less than the paper on which it is printed. The message. The message from Thompson and Fett. That message was sent on my instruction three days ago. You see, gentlemen, I own Thompson and French. But isn't it true about the treaty? As far as I know, Mon Diego, there was not any question of a treaty. <laughs> it means that you three gentlemen are ruined. It means that you, Gangler, have robbed the poor and the helpless for the last time. I'll prosecute you with this. I'll issue a warrant for your arrest. I don't think you will, Baron de Villefort. In the first place, that message was addressed to me. In the second place, since noon today, there has been in the hands of the Minister of Justice a complete record of the career of Francois Noitier, also known as Baron de Villefort. Spy, thief, forger, informer. Who are you? Who am I, Montego? Still, you don't know. I know you very well, Fernand Montego. And tomorrow all Paris will know you for what you are. Deserter, traitor, murderer. Who are you? What have we done to you? What have you done to me? You condemned me to a slow, horrible death. You killed my father. You deprived me of love, of freedom, of happiness. What is your name? I have but to pronounce it, Mon Diego, to strike you to my feet. Look at me, Fernand Mon Diego. I am the specter of a wretch. You buried in the dungeons of a chateau deep. You guess it now, do you not? Or rather, you remember it? For notwithstanding all my sorrows and my tortures, I show you now a face which the happiness of revenge makes young again. A face you must often have seen in your dreams since your marriage, Fernand Mondiego, with Mercedes, my betrothed. What? Yes! I am Edmond Dantes. Countess Mondiego. Yes, Your husband has been detained. There are matters of urgency which will not permit him to leave this house. May I see you to your carriage? Yes, Count. I asked you a question. I wonder if your answer was the truth. Madame? The girl who made you suffer. I asked if you had forgiven her. Yes. Yes, I've forgiven her. And those who separated you? Do you still wish to punish them? Madame, they have been punished. 
But my answer is still the same. It is not I who punished them. It was their own past. our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the Count of Monte Cristo, starring Orson Welles. In just a moment, Orson Welles will return to the microphone. Just now, I'd like another word with you on something good to eat. You know, I really believe your very first spoonful of Campbell's chicken soup will be a revelation in how fine, how deep in chicken flavor a chicken soup can be. I'm prompted to say this because I know so well from having visited Campbell's kitchens what good things are in this chicken soup and how carefully it's made. To begin with, unlike most chicken soup made at home, Campbell's use not some, but all the choice meat of selected plump chicken. But apart from this one advantage, they follow closely the old home way of making chicken soup. They simmer the broth long and slowly till every golden drop is rich with chicken flavor. And then they measure in light fluffy rice and add tempting pieces of tender chicken meat to complete your enjoyment. Now, doesn't that sound like a chicken soup you'd enjoy? <laughs> I really believe it is. And so I say, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Have it tomorrow, won't you? And now, here is Orson Welles with news of next week's story. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. The native quarter, known as the Casper. As you look at it here, it's just a few lines on the map. But the reality is something stranger than anything you could have dreamed. It's only a step from the modern city to the Casper. But when you take that step, you enter another world. A melting pot from all the sins of the earth. A crawling anthill, a jungle of houses. A labyrinth of narrow passages and winding alleys. Rotten with vermin and decay and the filth of centuries. No one knows what mysteries are hidden behind those walls. No one knows what crimes and hopes are buried in those secret courtyards. 40,000 inhabitants from all over the world. Chinese. Gypsies and Shekos, Slavs far from home, and Maltese, Negroes from every corner of Africa, Sicilians, and Spaniards, hot-blooded and quick to hate, and women, women of every age and of every shape, women caught in the net of the Casbah, the Casbah which rises like a fortress from the sea, colorful, sordid, and dangerous. There isn't just one Casper. There are hundreds, thousands. And in that labyrinth, Pepe El Moco is at home. And he's safe as long as he stays there. And uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the introduction to next week's broadcast. It's what Detective Flamaine tells the detective from Paris about Pepe El Moco one of the greatest criminals the world has ever known, who found himself one of the most successful hideouts a criminal ever unearthed. <laughs> 
said Cosba. That ought to do for the Oriental music. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Cosba is the scene of next week's broadcast. The title, which we have neglected to mention, is the name of one of the weirdest, wildest places on the globe and one of the best romantic adventure stories ever put on the screen. Algiers. You remember it from the French picture and from Walter Wanger's wonderful American picture. Our guest next week, the lovely Paulette Goddard. Please join us. Until then, till next Sunday night, until the Cosba and Pepe de Moco. At the same time, my sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, and all of us on the Campbell Playhouse remain, as always, obediently yours. <laughs> Tonight's Campbell Playhouse production of The Count of Monte Cristo. Orson Welles played the part of Edmund Dante in The Count of Monte Cristo. The part of Caderousse was played by Ray Collins. Everett Sloan was the Abbey Faria. Frank Reddick was Villefort, and George Colotis was Danglar. The part of Mondiego was played by Edgar Barrier and that of a jailer by Richard Wilson. Agnes Moorhead played Mercedes. The music for The Campbell Playhouse is arranged and directed by Bernard Herman. The makers of Campbell Soup join Orson Welles in inviting you to be with us at the Campbell Playhouse again next Sunday evening when we bring you our adaptation of that colorful and successful motion picture story, Algiers, with Orson Welles and Paulette Goddard. Remember, Campbell Playhouse, next Sunday evening. Meanwhile, if you have enjoyed tonight's presentation, won't you tell your grocer so tomorrow when you order Campbell's chicken soup? This is Ernest Chappell saying thank you and good night. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Five in my stocking feet. How big are your shoes? What size you wear? Size 902 in a triple Z. That's our daddy, the big guy. <laughs> NBC presents The Big Guy, another in the series of adventures of a very unusual detective, Joshua Sharp. Joshua Sharp works for his clients on a strictly cash basis to provide for the needs of his nearest and dearest, Josh Jr. and his daughter Debbie. To these two, Sharp is both father and mother. To his clients, he is a good detective. To Josh and Debbie, he's the friendly magician, the fabulous hero, the giant among giants, the big guy. Tonight's adventure with the big guy. The Case of the Villainous Friend. A man alone, trying to bring up a pair of youngsters, runs into a lot of unexpected problems. 
One of my most unexpected was a sudden shortage of bedtime stories. After all, you can read Grimm's fairy tales only a few hundred times before the kids begin to tire of them. And that goes for Hans Christian Andersen and all the rest of the Once Upon a Timers. I'd reached that point with Josh and Debbie, and they were getting so bored with witches and sleeping beauties that finally, for all our sakes, I tried tapping a new source. I bought a copy of Tales from Shakespeare. It was an immediate hit. In fact, it was too big a hit. That first night, I read The Tempest and Two Gentlemen from Verona, and still they didn't want me to stop. What's the next one, Daddy? Well, we'll let the next one wait, baby. You, you and Debbie have to go to sleep. But what's the name of it? Just the name of it? Uh, it's, uh, it's the tragedy of Othello. Now you just close your eyes and... Well, what about him, Daddy? Yes, Daddy, who was he? Well, he was a man, Josh. Oh, and what was the tragedy? Well, he was married to a woman named Desdemona who loved him very much. Is that a tragedy? No, the tragedy came about because he had a friend, a friend named Iago. Yes. And Iago came to a fellow and told him that Desdemona didn't love him at all. He said she loved somebody else. He was bad, wasn't he, Daddy? Oh, very. And what happened here? Well, next he... Next, a couple of shrewd articles who are trying to worm another story out of their hard-working father give him a kiss and say goodnight. And it was a good night under my roof. But elsewhere, things were happening that were fated finally to intrude on my routine and make a shambles of it. The center of these events was a boy, a boy named Frank Gollard. I'd snagged the lad in question two years ago, after he'd assisted in the armed robbery of a filling station and committed assault and battery resisting arrest. My action in the matter came as part of my contract with the Mutual Indemnity Insurance Company, and I had been in the courtroom the day the judge passed a ten-year sentence on Frank Gollard. And then, the same evening, while I was telling Josh and Debbie about Othello, inside the drab gray walls of the upstate penitentiary, Lately, Frank. Yeah, I got a letter from Lila last week. Now let's turn in half what he says. Yeah, sure, kid, in a minute. Lila. Oh, that's, that's a pretty name. Hap? Huh? How come you ask me that? Oh, I uh, heard you tossing around last night. I knew you wasn't sleeping. And I've been thinking about all the guys in this place who got somebody waiting for them. And Wondering where all them somebody's are tonight. <laughs> wondering who she's dancing with and wondering who she's drinking with. Wonder who's the kissing. Shut up. Oh, kid. I told you once, Hap. I was only wondering. She's a clean kid. Clean and sweet and straight. Oh, sure. There's a few good wrens in the world. Maybe you got yourself one of them. 
You could expect me to guess that now, could you, Frank? Man never knows about a thing like that. Man just never knows. Good night, Hap. You ain't sore on me, are you, Frank? I said good night. I don't want you to be sore on me, you hear? You hear me, Frank? Okay, I'm not sore about you. Okay, Hap. Good night, baby. Hap was his cellmate, and Hap was his friend. Big, slow, paternal Hap McLean. In for life. And not a man to talk much about the way he was to spend the rest of his natural days. It was mutual friendship, and the two found a degree of peace in each other's companionship. It was a peace, however, that was ripped to shreds with the suddenness of a thunderclap one hot night in early August. Hap had smuggled a newspaper from the prison library into the cell, and young Gollard was lying on his bunk, turning the pages. Hey, Hap. Uh, what's the matter? What's eating you, Frank? Hey, listen to this. What cute lovely whose maid is doing a ten-year stretch for armed robbery is now seeing the town inside out with more than one slick-haired Romeo? Even while I was on trial, she was rocking me. No, no, kid, take it. She was, she was. While I took the ride to this pile of stinking stone, while I prayed for every night, she was selling me out. Midnight till morning, night after night, all the way down the road. Shut up! 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 Listen to me, will you, Frank? Listen to half an oh, baby. I can't take it! I can't take it! I But he had no choice about taking it. With his friend, Hap's help, he calmed down and went on with the monotonous routine of his daily life behind the walls of the prison. And then, late one night, weeks later, in the cell he shared with Hap McLean, he found that he didn't have to take it anymore. Frank, hey kid, wake up and listen. Yeah. Listen, huh? old Hap, and listen good. You gotta get out of here. Okay. You're eating yourself alive. You gotta move loose from this place. Oh, but I can't. I can't. I'm not up for parole. Forget for the parole, baby. Hap's got it all fixed fine. You got it fixed? Yeah. Take a look, kid. Where'd you get the gun? Out of the arsenal, baby. It took me three months and a lot of doing, but I got it. And the trustee, the one in the laundry office, he's going to leave the laundry door unlocked for 20 minutes tomorrow night. There'll be a truck just outside. How did you do this, Hap? Oh, look, I've been in this can 12 years. There are ways, baby. There are always ways. You come with me? No, no. I got nothing with the outside world, kid. Hap will rest easy right here. You go on out. You can still hate. And that means you can still live. Enjoy yourself. Don't get yourself snagged, baby. It was at 11 o'clock the next night that the guard changed. Two minutes before this chosen hour, Hap McLean stood crucial guard for the appearance of any official. And the boy prepared for his venture. Where do you make for? Her apartment. You figure, Lilo's show? I'll wait till she does. What, and get nabbed off waiting? Forget it. Now, look, I'll get the grapevine and let her know that you're coming and tell her to stand by for you. There it is. Eleven o'clock, kid. Okay. Play your cagey now, baby. Hap won't be around. Look out for you. 
No point in saying thank you, Hyatt. Go on, you punk. A brain is. The boy was halfway across the prison yard when... And the shaft of a giant searchlight struck him like the lunge of an angry lion. Darting out of its glare, he took cover behind an angle of the wall. Come out in the open! Come out with your hands up! The boy fired at the guard on the watchtower. He made a dash for the laundry building and found the door unlocked to schedule. back roads on the all-night drive to the city, while the state was springing into action to retake Frank Gollard. Retake him, dead or alive. Next morning, when I walked into my place of business, my own personal private eye, Risky Skinner, was waiting for me, as usual. But today, Risky wasn't alone. A young city cop, Tom Saunders by name, had dropped in to tell me about the Gollard escape. He was little more than a rookie, this cop. Green, but enterprising. So, uh, knowing you were the man who put the finger on him in the first place two years ago, Sharp, it occurred to a few of the boys at Precinct Headquarters that you might have ideas about retaking Frank Gollard. They figure you dig up a few angles about the punk that could be maybe useful, Commander. Well, I'll be glad to do all I can. Uh, tell me, how much action is underway now? Well, the uh, state's being dragged from end to end. Even the Coast Guard's been alerted on this one. Any results yet? <laughs> so far, we've drawn a goose egg. Uh, just a second. Yeah. Sharp speaking. This is uh, Lila Goddard, Mr. Sharp. What? Frank Gollard's wife. Where are you? I'm not calling from home, Mr. Sharp. I'm afraid to go there. Why? I'll tell you why. I got a call last night from the grapevine at Goldville Prison. Yeah? Frank is on his way to my place. On the way to his own home? Hello. Hello. Mrs. Gollard. Mrs. Gollard. Hello. Hello. The wire was dead, but the news had been sensational. Leaving Risky to try to check back on the call, I found Mrs. Gollard's address in the city listings, latched onto Patrolman Saunders, and headed for Gollard's home. By 25 of 10, we were in his apartment. I was at the window and Saunders by the door. Hey, Sharp. Okay, okay. I see him. He's coming in. Great. Get ready for business. Let's uh, wait for him in the hall. All right. Easy with that door, Saunders. Here he comes. Let him get to the first landing. And for Pete's sake, stop shaking. There he is. He's carrying a gun. Hey, Saunders. No, wait. But I was too late. The green rookie, firing in panic, missed. And Frank Gollard went crashing back down the stairs, through the door, and out into the street. I didn't have to be told that once loose, Gollard would head for his wife. After all, Lila had tipped me off, and he probably knew that she was the only person on earth who had been wise to his whereabouts. The immediate deal, therefore, was to contact her without delay. It was just about this time there came a knock on the door of Warden Jameson's office at the state penitentiary, 
and a cell block guard by the name of Spears walked in with the announcement that somebody wanted to talk to the warden. Who is it, Spears? Prisoner from cell block A. He yammered till I went to see what was wrong. Yes, yeah, Spears. Well, then he told me he could retake Garlis for us, nothing flat. And I can't, Warden. Not so help me now. I'm not kidding. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I told about. you to wait out All right, Spears. To... All right, I'll talk to him. Okay, Warden. You say you can recapture Frank Gollard? And be back before morning. Who are you? Number 5,200. I mean your name. Oh, my na- uh, name is uh, Half McLean. I presume, McLean, that you can only perform this remarkable feat if you allow to be left out of the prison alone. Who wants a loan? Send spears with me with a gun, a dozen guns. Who cares? Now, look, I'm only trying to do the right thing here, Mr. Warden. That's all I'm interested in. I see. All right. We'll send spears with you. And you won't regret it. I'll tell you what. I'm telling you something, McLean. If you succeed in this mission... I'll see what can be done to secure you a full and complete pardon. No, you mean it. Don't you think you deserve it? Well, I guess I did figure something like that. I imagined you did, McLean. Spears. Yes, sir. You'll take McLean into the city. Let him do exactly as he thinks best. McLean, informer and temporary public hero, passed out of the prison walls on his errand of black treachery. Meanwhile, we were still ransacking the city for Lila, and as it turned out, Frank Gollard was doing the same. In the phone booth of a hole-in-the-wall cigar store on a side street... Yeah, she must be in a summer cottage at Riverview. Yeah, that's it. Probably where she's hiding now. Give me Riverview 534. Riverview 534. Thank you, sir. Hello? Is this you, Lila? Oh, Frank. How are you, Frank, honey? I'm fine. What's happened, Frank? I'm looking for you, Lila. Oh, honey, I just turned on the radio and heard the news. I just woke up. I've been asleep. Why did you go up to Riverview to sleep, Lila? What's the matter, Frank? Matter? Nothing. I just wanted to see you. Where are you? I'll come right into the city. Uh, stay where you are. I'll come to you. All right, sweetheart. You remember how to get here? Yeah, I remember. You were alone, Lila? Yes. A girlfriend was staying with me up until last night, but she had to get back to town. Oh, honey, I wish we could be together. I wish we never had to leave here. Stay where you are till I get there, baby. Maybe you never will. Feeling for the gun butt in his pocket, Frank Gollard ducked out onto the sidewalk and started the tortuous journey toward his final long-sought vengeance. Later in the afternoon, back at the office, Saunders and I were checking the shortwave report. You know, it, it baffles me a little, Sharp. And what does? Gollard's wife turning him in. Why? She's a gunman's doll, isn't she? Uh, no, 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 not quite. Anyway, she's not running through to form. Why not? A word around has been that she's almost arranged for his parole. Strange, huh? Yeah, very. Commander. Yeah, Risky? Well, a little luck at last. Well, that we can use. 
I think I found out where Mrs. Gowett phoned you from. Yeah? But well, I'm afraid it won't help any. Seems she rang up from a phone booth. Phone booth, huh? Where? In a place called Banner's Tavern over on Time Street, near the river. You know it? I said, do you know it, Commander? Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know it. Risky. Yeah, Commander? Go get me a cap and a sweater. Huh? A cap and a sweater. What do you want them for? To wear. I'm going to Banner's Tavern, Risky, and I want to look like one of the boys. Banner's Tavern at the foot of a wharf on the river had never been what might be called a pride to the community, and tonight was no exception. The clientele I saw at once was entirely male, except for one blonde cutie who sat alone over a glass of beer, a bright red scar of a smile on her hard face. Well, what are you looking at? What do you think, honey? Beat it. I got a boyfriend coming. Yeah? From where? That would be telling. Well, how's about a little drink till he shows? Well, I'll... (laughs) Go ahead. What do you have? How about a gin and water? Why not? What's your name, beautiful? Esther. That's all? Esther Moody. Moody? Mm-hmm. Esther Moody? Well, you ain't the doll used to kick around with Hap McLean. You know Hap? Like that. We used to operate together in North Jersey. Ah, <laughs> oh, what do you know? How's he doing these days? He's in stir. Didn't you know that? For how long? Hard to say right now. Some kind of caper in the works. Yeah? I've been trying to figure it out all night. What's the lowdown? Well, uh, lean over here. Yeah. About 11 o'clock last night, Hop sent me the word over the grapevine. Uh-huh. And he tells me to call up a certain private eye this morning, announce myself as Mrs. Gullard, and say that Frank is on his way to his wife's flat. What do you think? What do you think? I think I trusted you mighty fast, handsome. How about that little drink? Uh, how about better? Better? How about a little pinch? What? Rouse up, lady. I'm the private mean? eye you handed that runaround to this morning. I got her to headquarters. Not, however, without a set of fingernail marks down my cheek. And walked in on a bit of exciting news. It seemed the postal clerk at a place called Riverview had phoned in, giving Lila Gollard's whereabouts. The address, 21 Canton Lane, at which street number Frank Gollard had just arrived. Oh, Frank, Frank. You sounded so strange over the phone. I, I, I don't understand. What have I done? You really want me to tell you, Lila? You called the cops and told them where they could pick me up. I did, Frank? Yeah, you. Frank. Frank, how could I? I didn't even know you'd broken out. McLean got word to you at the apartment last night and told you where I'd be. But I wasn't there. I wasn't even there. Oh, that's an easy out. You turn me in and then you run for the tall timber. Frank. Frank, do you honestly believe I'd do that? I know you did it, you hypocritical swine. Oh, oh, darling. (laughs) Darling. Yeah. Hello, kid. Hap. Yeah, not all of it. I'm right here at home base. That's so I figured. 
Pap? Yeah, baby. You contacted my wife last night, didn't you? Well, sure. Sure thing. Why do you ask? I won't ask again. I gotta hang up now. Well, just a second, Frank. Uh, look, uh, I'm in the alley behind Banner's Tavern on the side by the river. You know where that is? Yeah, sure. Thanks, thanks a million. I'll see you, pal. You cheap, lying, rotten, deceitful tramp. Oh, no. No, Frank, no. Not a gun. Shut up. This is beyond begging and no place for talk. If you've got prayers to say, say them. There won't be any time later. I won't need time for prayers, Frank. I'd die before I hurt you. I don't mind losing my life, Frank. All I regret is I'll never see you again. Never. Never. It was at that moment that Risky and I drove up in front of 21 Canton Lane and heard the shots as he ran up the path to the house. That was it, Commander? Yeah. Gullard. Gullard. You blasted fool. What did you do, you crazy punk? I just killed a liar, a stoolie, and a chick. Let's go now without questions, huh? First, there's got to be a few answers given, boy. Such as? Such as? Did you know this cheat here had just about arranged to get you paroled at the next meeting of the board? You're a liar. Too bad for your peace of mind, I'm not. Not when I said that, nor when I say this. Your wife didn't call me and inform on you today, Gollard. She did, she did. No, she didn't. The call I got came from a woman named Esther Moody, who made it to help weave this net you're caught in. Moody? Esther Moody? Who's that? What's she got to do with me? She's got nothing to do with you. But I think maybe her boyfriend has. Her boyfriend? Yeah, a guy by the name of Hap McLean. <laughs> For a moment, he stared at me like a wounded animal, and then his eyes closed slowly. He shook his head wearily, as if to come out of a sick dizziness, and neither Risky nor I caught the movement of his hand as he blasted the globe, dangling from the ceiling, punches punching us into blind blackness as he crashed out through the window. Nearer dawn, in the alley behind Banner's Tavern, It's getting chilly waiting here, McLean. Where's your boy? Easy, Spears. Take it easy. He's on his way to us. Yeah. Here he comes. You sure it's him? Can't you see, Flathead? Hey, give me a gun. Let me take him in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah thanks. Now, duck behind the lamppost so we don't see you too soon. Huh? Here I am, kid. How you making it, huh? I... Killed her, huh? Yeah, sure, sure. That's what you had to do. Come on. We'll go in banners and have a few snorts. That'll set you up right, eh? Hey, Hap. Yeah. Where's the pal who was going to help me land out of the stake? Oh, uh, well, he had to go, Frank. He'll be back. I figured he was back now. That's him behind the lamppost, ain't it, Hap? i got to get him, too. Kid. Help me, kid. 
Kid, how much blood do you want on your hands, baby? Just a little more. Just a little more, you greasy, crummy stool pigeon. Pat McLean took a look into the empty, cold eyes of the boy and suddenly bolted down the alley. At the corner, McLean swung abruptly and fired. The bullet hit, and he waited for Frank Dollar to go down, but he waited in vain. The boy came toward him, head lowered, staggering. Baby, baby, don't be sore on me. I don't want you sore on me, Frank. As he spoke, McLean fired again and found himself with an empty gun in his hand. And he blinked unbelievingly as the boy swayed with the anguish of the shot. And then, steadily, he plowed forward. Half crazy with fear, McLean stumbled into the darkness until he came to world's end at the edge of the wharf behind the tavern. Oh, baby, oh, Frank, you've got to listen to your hat. You've got to listen to your happy. You can't be sore on me, baby. I'm for you, honest. Oh, don't shoot, kid. Let's talk it out there. Frank Gollard, looking like a child asleep, was dead. Stretched out on the rotten planking of the wharf when we found him. Josh and Debbie were in bed when I climbed the stairs to our flat, and knowing nothing of what was going on inside of me, they clamored for the next story in the book. The next story was Othello, and as I read the tale of the tragic death of Desdemona and Othello and the final undoing of Iago, I shuddered with a kind of recognition. At the end of the narrative, there was silence, then... And Othello killed himself, too? Yes, baby. Gee, I don't see why he had to die. He didn't know what he was doing. It's all Iago's fault, wasn't it, Daddy? Yes. Yes, essentially, it was Iago's fault. Then, then why didn't he just explain and go on living? Maybe he didn't want to, honey. Oh, you mean because he'd lost Desdemona? Is that it? Well, that's part of it. Well, what's the other part, Daddy? Don't you know? You mean he'd lost Iago, too? Yes, baby. You get the point. He'd also lost his friend. Joshua Sharp, detective, works for his clients on a strictly cash basis to provide for the needs of his nearest and dearest, Josh Jr. and Debbie. To them, he's the friendly magician, the fabulous hero, the giant among giants, the big guy. has presented another in a series of adventures of The Big Guy, played by Henry Calvin and featuring David Anderson as Josh Jr. and Joan Laser as Debbie. The script was written by Peter Barry and directed by Thomas Madigan. The music was composed and played by Jack Ward. 
Members of the cast were Jim Stevens, Merrill E. Joles, Peggy Lobbin, Bill Duckert, Linda Watkins, Lyle Sudrow, and Sandy Strauss as Risky Skinner. Your announcer is Peter Roberts. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. The American album of familiar music returns tonight over most of these NBC stations, presenting the finest in Sunday evening musical listening designed for the entire family. On Sunday, September 10th, Theater Guild on the Air will be back with more hour-long presentations from Broadway and Hollywood, featuring the most famous and talented artists of stage, screen, and radio. Three times mean good times on NBC. Ironized Yeast presents Lights Out, Everybody. It is later than you think. Lights Out brings you stories of the supernatural and the supernormal. Dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown. We tell you this frankly, so if you wish to avoid the excitement and tension of these imaginative plays, we urge you calmly but sincerely to turn off your radio now. This is Arch Ovaler. He walks the earth, the little man. You look at him and say, what can he do? But then comes war and barbarism threatens his own home and suddenly the little man towers over the earth, a figure of vengeance. This too tonight is a story of vengeance. But before we begin, Bob Stevenson wants to ask you a question. Does day's end find you so worn out and all in that you can't enjoy the evening? Are you so jittery and underweight and under par that you're losing out in your work and in your fun? Well, maybe you simply need more vitamin B and iron than you're getting from your food. And if so... Try ironized yeast tablets. These amazing little tablets are a two-way tonic. They give you both vitamin B and iron. They've been of truly remarkable help to thousands who simply needed more of these substances, help these weak, weary folks gain glorious new pep and strength, and five, ten, even more pounds of good new flesh, often in just a few weeks. Remember the name, ironized yeast tablets. And now, lights... Out, everybody. You've got ten minutes with him, Counselor. I know, I know. Well, Rogan, I understand you wanted to see me. Sit down, Counselor. I'm very busy, understand? Sit down. Yes. What's on your mind? There's always a chance, you know. The jury's been out three hours. The devil with the jury. Get me a knife. Huh? Get me a knife. A knife? Are you insane? A knife. Get me one. But, but why... You've got a chance, my, my final summation, the jury might... By deadlock? Yes, deadlock. Shut and up and listen to me. Well? When the jury comes in, he'll be there, sure. He? Mark Street. Oh. Oh, him. You still don't believe. Oh, but I, I do, I do. I definitely believe that an individual by that name does exist. Exist? He killed my wife. But, but the evidence... He killed my wife, you hear me? He killed my wife. Yes, yes, I know. No, but... you listen to me. You listen or I'll make you listen. For days you've been out there in that courtroom talking words. Words, high-sounding legal words. 
All the time you ain't believed a word I told you. All the time back of that mug of yours you've been thinking, yeah, he killed her, he killed her. I killed her. Swellest thing that ever came into a man's life. Now, Mac, I want you to Let know... Let me get that... it out of me. Marie was my wife. She, she was helping me and loving me. Guy come along who couldn't stand up being happy. He took a look at Marie and in that rat mind he must have said to himself, okay, beautiful, I'm going to get you. How and when, I don't know, but someday, beautiful, someday. That's what he said. And that's what he did. What? One night he came over. Sure, he got to be my friend. He came over and when Marie told him I was working late down at the plant, he said he'd wait for me. Business. Business of hell. What? Oh, how can I tell you? I, I can only think it in my head and remember it in my head. I hear her. I hear a dog fighting again. Fighting. I don't hear anything. Fighting, fighting. She must have clawed at his eyes. And that knife in his hand. He stabbed her once. And again, and the third time. When I got home, she had strength to whisper just two words to me. His name. And then she was dead. And he killed her. He'd frame me so I'd take the rap. Me that loved her, Mark Street. He did it. You hear me, Mark Street? But, but no trace of the man. He'll come he... back, I tell you. He'll come back now to hear that jury speak its peace. He'll come back. I know he will. That'll be my chance to get him. Get me that knife. But, Mac, listen. My knife, I got to have it. He'll be there. I can give it to him once, twice, three times the way he did to her and his face and his neck and his dirty heart dead the way she's dead, his blood wiping out what he did to her. A knife. Get me a knife. You got it. Now, Mac, everything's going to be all right. The knife, where is it? You certainly didn't think I'd really... Well, I, I mean a man in my position... You didn't bring it? Be sensible, Mac. How could I? Your wild story about revenge against a man nobody you knows... double-crossing... Mac, jury's coming in. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? We have, Your Honor. You will read the verdict? We, the jury, find the defendant is charged in the indictment. Guilty of murder in the first degree. Prisoner will rise and face the court. He's talking to you, Mac. What? The prisoner will rise. The judge, get up, Rogan. Mark Street. You're here, I know it. Mac, Rogan, have you anything to say before sentence is passed upon you? I see him. Rogan, what's the matter? Mark Street, he's here, here. Mark Street, you're here, I see you. I'll get you now. Get him, somebody. Oh, oh he's here. Mark oh. Street, I've got to get him and kill him. He framed me. He killed him. Let me go. No, no, let go of me. You can't let him get away. You see, I saw him. Mark Street, listen to me. I'll get you. I tell you, I'll get you like you got her. Three times. What's across your face and what's through the neck? What's through your heart? I'll get you, Mark Street. I swear, I'll get you. I'm asking you as a particular favor to me, Rogan, to behave yourself. Yeah. Now, every man in this cell block is a condemned man. Disturbances just make it harder for everyone concerned. 
I ain't going to be with you long, Warden. Yes, two weeks yet, my boy. I'm not going out that way. Oh. Escape, eh? I'm just telling you not to count too much on springing that trap. Don't try it, Rogan. No man's ever escaped from the death house in this penitentiary. And no man ever will. Yeah. Well, this is it, Rogan. Yeah, I wouldn't. Oh, hello, Rico. Oh, guard, open the cell door. In here, Rogan. Uh, what's the matter, Warden? Your hotel getting crowded, so you got to give me a roommate? Now behave yourselves, men. I don't want any trouble. Well, I sure wouldn't. We don't make any trouble. I hope not. See you later. The <laughs> Warden's like a schoolteacher. Huh, Rogan? How do you know my name? Yeah, there ain't much going on around here Rico Bartelli don't know. Yeah? Yeah. What do you want to know? How do you get out of here? Well, um, uh, there's two ways. Um, one through that door where you just came in with the warden. And the other through that green door down there at the other end. That's a funny door. It only opens up one way. They're not going to hang me. Uh, a lot of guys say that, but they feed the worms just the same. I'm getting out of here. Well, it's easy just to talk. I got to get out. Why? To kill you crazy? Well, never mind. To me, it don't make no difference just so long as you help me. I told you Rico about telling those lots of things. Well, listen to this. I know a way to crack this place. You're just talking. A guy in my spot don't just talk, my friend. Me, I ain't got time for talk. Yeah? They think they're going to hang me three days from now. Oh. Yeah, that's why when I say something, I mean it. For you, too. If you got the guts. I'm listening. Look, every day, four o'clock, they'll let me and you out in the room down there that they call an exercise room. We're supposed to walk up and down and get exercise so we'll feel good when they stretch our neck. Only you and me in the exercise room for ten minutes. No guards. They figure it's all right. Because the room ain't got nothing in it. No window. And the guard locks it up from the outside. Then how do you expect... I'm trying to tell you. In the room, there's nothing. Bare walls. Bare floor. And in the floor, there's one iron saw lab leading down to the saw that runs under this place to the river. Marie. Sure, sure. You do like I say and Marie will see you pretty quick. This water, how deep is it? Well, it's... No, no. Doesn't make any difference. I can swim in it. Yeah, not in this water, my friend. Why not? How far is it from where we can get in the sewer to the river? A mile. I can swim a dozen yeah, miles. Not in this water. Why not? Tell me why not. Hey, you guys, pipe down. Okay, screw. We're going to sleep. Tell me. Why not? Because, my friend, after the pipe that's under the exercise room goes a little way, it joins the main pipe. Well? And on the main so there's no room for swimming. The pipe's filled to the top of the water. I'll swim it anyway. And breathe what? The water? I've got to get out. Sure, you've said that before. But you ain't going to get out if you don't listen to Rico. I tell you, the water in the sewer is up at the top. Maybe half or one inch clear air up on top. Not enough to swim, my friend. But just enough to get air if you got the right thing. What? A diving rig? No. A little piece of rubber pipe that you keep in your mouth. And you stick it up out of the water so you suck in the air while you walk through the water. Over your head. Where do you get the rubber hose? Yeah. See? I got one right here. And I got another one for you. This end stuck in my mouth. This and I raise it high like this. So it sticks up out of the water and I suck up that little inch of air that's waiting up there on top. Mark Street, I'll be coming for you soon. Mark Street, what's that? 
All I want to know is you're going to break with me down the saw tomorrow. Man, you don't know what you're doing for me. Ah, shut your mouth. I do it because I can't lift a heavy saw lid by myself. But with you, we'll lift it. We'll lift it. Okay. Tomorrow, 4 o'clock, we try, huh? 4 o'clock. Ladies and gentlemen, a deep breath, please, before we go on with the story of Vengeance and Mac Rogan. Yes, and while we do so, girls, is this how you feel these strenuous war days? No, I'm not going to dance with the soldiers. I'm too tired out to enjoy it. And since I've gotten so thin and run down and on edge, nobody wants to dance with me anyway. Well, you don't look so good lately. But listen, you know Sally Blake. Well, she was underweight and weary and jumpy, too. And she found out that all she needed was more vitamin B and iron. Vitamin B and iron? I don't understand. Let me explain, miss. When you don't get enough vitamin B from your food, you may lose your appetite so you don't eat enough. Then you may lose weight and lose your pep. Or you may not get all the good out of your food. And when you don't get enough iron from what you eat, you may be weak and pale and washed out. Oh, dear. If more vitamin B and iron is what I need... I suppose I've got to take some disagreeable medicine. Sally didn't. She took ironized yeast tablets. She says they're a cinch to take. Just pleasant little tablets. And you should see Sally now. She feels so peppy, and she looks like a million. That's easily explained, too. Ironized yeast gives you vitamin B plus iron. So when you need them, it helps two ways to step up your weight and pep and sparkle. Try ironized yeast if more vitamin B and iron is what you need. Then see if pretty quick you aren't saying... Well, I feel grand now. And since I've gained these nice pounds, I guess I look good, too. That handsome sergeant's always phoning me lately. Ironized yeast sure is wonderful. And now, back to Lights Out. This is the day and the time for the two condemned men to make their try for freedom. Plenty of exercise, boys. Won't be long now. Sure, screw. Well exercised. Rico. Rico. The floor, there's no sewer lid in it. What, do you think they got a label on it or something? Uh, quit talking. We've got to move fast. Show me for the love of heaven. Okay, okay. Keep your pants on. Yeah. You see this circle on the floor? Yeah. That's a lid. It's covered with cement just like the floor. Mother in heaven, all that weight, how we lift it out. Keep quiet. Yeah. I got something that'll do the work. A cold chisel. I told you, Rico Bartelli's a smart guy. This little piece of steel cost me plenty. But I got her and she's gonna get me right out of here. Now listen. Yeah. Look. I stick the chisel in the crack. I push up. The cover it comes up a little bit. Then you stick your fingers underneath. Okay. I got it. There. Now get your fingers under. Yeah. Okay. Now lift. Lift. Uh, lift. Lift. You're crushing my fingers. Don't make noise. God, don't make any noise. Fingers, mother of mercy. My fingers, get that lid off me. I'll get it up again. Uh, I'll get it up. God, I'll hear you. Look, guy on the roof. Get the lid up. Yeah. Oh. There. 
Devil with my fingers. Let's go. Okay. You drop down there first. I don't know how deep the water is. Here it goes. Rogan. Is it all right down there? Yeah. Come on. Okay. Yeah. Water's not so deep. It's only up to my waist. Which way now? This way. Come on. So blasted dark. Right out of the way. Ah. Yeah. The pigs. Faster. Lead the way faster. I can't go too fast. Main sewer is someplace along here. I might fall in. Okay. Well. Yes. Thanks. Keep going, keep going. Yeah, it's black, I can't see nothing. I'll make a run. Shut up, bud. Shut up. The water, don't you feel? It's moving faster. Yeah, you're right. That means the main saw's up ahead. Come on. Don't get so excited. Why shouldn't I? The main pipe's ahead. Yeah, the main pipe's ahead. That means we're going right. Oh, I'm not afraid of drowning. I can't drown. I've got to kill him first. I can't drown. Oh. Ah, it doesn't matter to you. Come on. Wait a minute. Give me my piece of rubber hose first. Rubber hose? Yeah, sure, like you told me to breathe through in the main sewer. Give it to me now in case the water separates us. Give you what? What's the matter with you? Me? Tell me what's up. Sure. Sure, why not? I only got one piece of rubber hose. But, Rico, you said... What I say and what is, that's two different things. I got one. For me. And me? You. You help me lift up the solid. Okay, that's swell. Now, if you want to go out and knock off that guy you always talk about, okay, I ain't stopping you. Take a swim for yourself. Give me that piece of hose. You better take that swim while you're still healthy, my friend. Give me that hose. Stay back from give me. Give it to me. Okay, I'll give you a... Oh, my arm. Cold chisel trying to knife me. Get out. Devil, I got you now. Oh, I am. Yes, your arm, Rico. Bending it to make you bend over. Bend over, Rico, over. Get that head of yours under the water. Drink it, Rico. Fill your double-crossing lungs with a drink. I've got the chisel and the hose. Now you take that swim that you were gonna give me. Now, Mark Street, I'm coming after you. Hey, now, but shut the door. We're closed, see? Might as well scram. One o'clock's closing hours in this town. Help me. Hey, hey, what's the matter with you? Mark. Street. Huh? 
What's that you said? Mark. Street. Where is he? Mark Street? Oh, you mean that lanky chiseler that... Why, uh... I, uh... I didn't know exactly. I mean, I... Well, I... I ain't seen the guy recent. Where? Where is he? Hennessy's place. Yeah, that's it. I remember hearing a couple of the boys saying he moved in up there. Say, say, wait a minute, fella. Don't you want a drink? Don't you want me to get... Well, is that a note? Walks right out on me. I wonder what in the... Gee. Ain't that a funny thing? It ain't rained around here for a week. And the guy's clothes were soaking wet. Disturbing the peace. Well, what's the matter? Tell me. Tell you what? What's the matter? You drunk? What do you want? Mark Street. Mark Street? Is that what you said? They told me. He's staying here. He was staying here, you mean? He's gone? That's all right. He's gone. Tell me. Where? Where is he now? He's down six feet in the Rosamonte Cemetery. Mark Street. He's died last week. Good night. Mark Street died last week. <laughs> no. no, Mark Street, you can't cheat me that way. Rosamont Cemetery said... All right, Mark Street. I'm coming out to you. Yes. Where's John Burton? Hello. It's so dark. So dark if only the moon would. Ah, now I can see. Yeah. Well, that's my beloved wife. No, 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 not you. Mark Street, where are you? Where? So many graves, white stones, moonlight, so many dead. If you are here, I'll find you. Here lie the mortal remains of Henry Owen. Oh, no. I've got to find you, Mark Street. I've got to. Maybe this one. Here lies... Mark Street. I found you, Mark Street. I found you. All these dead, I found you. But are you dead? I must know. I will 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 know. The coffin. The coffin. 
Oh, and down to you at last, Mark Street. Now I'll know. Oh, they've covered you well. If it is you. Yes. It is you, Mark Street. Cheated me. Oh, no. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's other... Maybe in another world beyond this one. A world of dead. Where you are now. I'll go there. I'll go there. I'll get you there. Rico's cold chisel in my hand. I'll shove it in my heart and then I'll be just like you. You hear me, Mark Street? It's Mac. Mac Rogan talking to you wherever you are. I'm coming to you. I heard you calling me. Mac Rogan. It is you, Marie. I heard you. I can hardly see. I don't know where I am, but I heard you. You got your wish, my darling. What? Look. There in front of you. Mark Street. Mark Street at last. No. No, let me go. The dead can't kill the dead. Let me go. And the knife. The knife you killed her with is in my hand. The knife. At last, Mark Street, I'll give you what you gave her. No, no. Once in the face. No. Twice. A third time. Now. Go back to your grave, Mark Street. And I'll... Go to mine. Whew, Mr. Obler, do you really think that revenge can go beyond the grave? I like to think that it doesn't. I like to think that murder and mercy find equal rest in peaceful death. Well, I'm interested in next week's story. You go back to California to do that one. What's it going to be about? It's a long postponed tale. I started to do it three times in this program, and each time something happened. I'll tell you of those postponements in a moment, after you finish what you want to tell us. Well, briefly, folks, if it's vitamin B and iron shortage that's keeping you thin and weak, tired, washed out, and really only half living, then do try ironized yeast tablets right away. They give you both vitamin B and iron. They cost but a few pennies a day, and they're sold on this no-risk, money-back basis. If you don't quickly begin to eat better, sleep better, feel much stronger and peppier, and if you are not convinced that ironized yeast will help you gain just the good pounds you need to look your best, the cost of the first bottle will be refunded to you in full by Ironized Yeast, Box IY, Rowing, New Jersey. Just be sure you get the one and only Ironized Yeast. Always ask for it by its full name, Ironized Yeast. And look for the big IY on the package and on each tablet. And now, what about this postponed story, Mr. Obler? Well, we all start things we don't finish. Now, before I started a word and stuttered and didn't finish it. 
And that reminds me of something that you folks may not have finished. I'm referring to your war stamp book. Ah, don't say what again and turn that dial. You know that boy who used to live up the street from you who's in that flying fortress? He can't turn any dials and get out of there when the shrapnel gets close. He's got to keep on. And so how about you and that war stamp book? How long since you put another stamp in it? Remember, four 25-cent stamps will buy a hand grenade. Fifteen 50-cent stamps buy an anti-tank mine. Six 25-cent stamps a winter combat helmet. Yes, your money in war stamps can actually save the life of an American soldier. Here's another way to look at it. War stamps earn no interest. War bonds, on the other hand, do. They pay you back $4 for every three. So looking at it either way as a dollar investment for your future, or better yet, an investment in a free world, you'd better put those spared dimes and quarters to work against the axis for victory and for you. In the future, well, it'll mean a future of a free world. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in next Tuesday again for Archobler's eerie story, He Dug It Up, a strange tale inspired by a visit to pre-war England. And if you need more vitamin B and iron, be sure to try ironized yeast, the one and only ironized yeast with the big letters IY on the package and on each tablet. Time waits for no man these days, not even for a man to shave. Speed is mighty important. So why not enjoy the quick, comfortable shaves that you get with Mole Brushless Shaving Cream? A quick yet comfortable shave. Quick because you can spread Mole over your face as fast as you can move your fingertips. Quick because Mole forms a protective film between your skin and your razor. Gives your razor something to ride on. Thus your razor just seems to skate over your skin but your whiskers come off close and clean. Comfortable because Mole's protective film helps guard you from nicks and cuts. So why not try Mole today? This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Chesterfield. Chesterfield packs more pleasure because it's more perfectly packed thanks to Accuray. They satisfy the most. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad. Transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job. And it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. 
You know this fellow riding in, Morgan? He's a stranger for sure, Abe. Mm. That brand on his horse, I can't even read it. Good horse, though. Yeah. Get down, stranger. Who are you men? We're the Curry brothers. We own this ranch. How far is it to Dodge? Sixty miles, if you ride in a straight line. I want some grain for my horse. Where is it? Look, stranger, we got no grain. We're fresh out. Now, Abe, if he wants a little grain... And then he can act more polite about it. Oh, ain't I been polite enough for you? Maybe I ought to change my ways just for you. What are you, anyway? Some kid who thinks he's a man just because he's wearing a gun for the first time? Mister, I've been wearing a gun eight years, ever since I was 16. That makes you 24 and still a kid that ought to be taken out to the shed. You aim to take me out, mister? Somebody ought to. A lot of men have tried. I guess it's your turn now. Go ahead, you're wearing a gun. Oh, now, we won't have any fighting. You watch your temper, Abe. The kid don't mean nothing. The name's Tom Clegg. I ain't a kid. All right, Clegg. Forget it. You too, Abe. Well. Say you're sorry, mister. Say what? You heard me. Are you crazy? Maybe this will help you. Now draw. No, Abe. Abe, don't move, mister. You killed him. You killed my brother. Well, he hardly got his hand on his gun. Why don't you try me? Abe wasn't no gunfighter. Neither am I. Then I'll tell you what. You practice a little. I'll be in Dodge for a spell. Come see me. Say, there is a good-looking horse, Mr. Dillon. Now, which one, Chester? That big bay, that young fellow just getting off of there. Oh? Well, ain't he? Well, I wasn't looking at the horse, Chester. Oh, you know that fellow? Yeah, maybe. What are you people staring at? Aren't you Tom Clegg? What? Matt Dillon. Yeah, Las Cruces about eight years ago, wasn't it? Exactly eight years ago. I've changed some since then, Marshal Dillon. Yeah, I'm a Marshal. Uh, this Chester Proudfoot, Clegg. How do you do? Hello. Well, Marshal, I suppose you're remembering how I didn't dare draw on that fellow in Las Cruces. You were smart not to. He'd have killed you, sure. I left there. I went out by myself. I practiced for two years, every day. I got pretty good with a gun, Marshal. Did you? That fellow's dead now. I went back and I killed him. Uh, it wasn't much of a quarrel, Clegg. I don't need much, Marshal. Oh, I've killed a lot of men since then. But don't you worry about me. They always draw first. Are you telling me you've turned gunman, huh? I've got me a pretty fair reputation in New Mexico. And now you want to be known in Kansas. That's why you came here. I didn't say that. I know you're kind, Clegg. I ought to. I've killed enough of them. <laughs> Not me, Marshal. You ain't going to kill me. 
I'm too fast for you and I'm too smart. I'll show you someday. That whistling man, Bobby Haggard, really started something. Tonight, the Calypso Boys join in. Ready, amigos? Packs more pleasure. Packs more pleasure. Chesterfield packs more pleasure. Because Chesterfield's more perfectly packed. It stands to reason a cigarette made better and packed better, smokes better, tastes better. And Chesterfield is more perfectly packed by Accuray. This electronic miracle removes human error in cigarette manufacture. So Accuray Chesterfield is firm and pleasing to the lips, mild yet deeply satisfying. Yes, Chesterfield gives you something no other cigarette can give you. Chesterfield packs more pleasure because Chesterfield's more perfectly packed. To the touch, to the taste, Chesterfield packs more pleasure because it's more perfectly packed. By Chesterfield, mild, yet they satisfy the most. Chester. Yes, sir, I'm coming, Mr. Dillon. What was it you wanted? You all threw out, sir? Well, I'm through the one I was trying to open that back door again. I guess it won't never get fixed properly unless we just build us a new. <laughs> well, Morgan Curry. All right, come on in, Morgan. Hello, Chester. Where's Abe at? It's about Abe. I come to see the marshal. Uh, is something wrong, Morgan? Marshal, you've known me and Abe a long time. I sure have. Would you say I'm a man who tells lies? You know the answer to that, Morgan. Then I'll say it short. A fellow rode up to the ranch day before yesterday, and him and Abe got into a little argument, but Abe was about willing to call it off when this fellow slapped him. And Abe went for his gun, huh? He never had a chance, Marshal. This fellow was the fastest man I ever seen. Did he say his name, Morgan? Tom Clegg. Yeah, I thought so. He's a killer, Marshal. He made Abe draw. That's what he means about being smart. No man can take being slapped. That ain't self-defense, Marshal, and he can't claim it is. The law says he can, Marshal. Look, Marshal, I ain't a coward. You know that, but... There's no use my facing him. He'd kill me easy as he did Abe. Now, what good would that do? I wish I could help you, Morgan. Well, it ain't just me, Marshal. It's all the men he's going to kill before he's through. Somebody's got to stop him. Somebody will. Someday. Now, before he kills any more men. It's like poisoning a wolf. Don't you see that? Morgan, I'm a lawman. When Tom Clegg breaks the law, I'll go after him. But until he does, there's nothing I can do. I don't know if you're fast enough for him, Marshal. But you're the only man I do know who might be. I'm not hired to gun men down, Morgan. 
He's got to be killed. Well, I'll admit the world would be better off without him. You said something about his being smart. Now, he claimed that. And we'll see how smart he is. Marshal, Tom Clegg's going to die, no matter what. He's going to die. Now one's my limit, Kitty. One? Oh, you're expecting trouble. I didn't say that. One beer said it. <laughs> you know me too well, Kitty. But you're right about my expecting trouble. Well, I already knew about that. I've watched Morgan Curry following Clegg in and out of here for two days now. I don't know what Morgan has in mind, Kitty, but I'm sure he doesn't plan to shoot Clegg in the back or anything like that. Well, he isn't even carrying a gun. Yeah, I know. He just stands around at a distance and sort of keeps an eye on Clegg. It's driving him crazy. But Morgan's not carrying a gun has made Clegg helpless to do anything about it. Maybe he's trying to get him into a fist fight, Matt. Ah, Clegg wouldn't fight him, Kitty. He knows he'd get torn apart. Uh, beats me what he's up to. Well, I wish Morgan would go home and forget about it. Maybe it's you he's trying to shame, Matt. Me? What for? Uh, for not doing anything about Clegg murdering his brother. It was murder, Kitty. Abe drew first. The way I heard it, Clegg made him draw. And I don't care what the law calls self-defense. Well, I have to, Kitty. I have to care. Yeah. I know, Matt. Well, there they are. What? Clegg. He just went to the bar. Morgan will be along directly. Yeah. Well, you keep an eye on him, Kitty. Me? Keep an eye on him? I got to ride out into the country tomorrow. I'm leaving before dawn so as I can get back early in the afternoon. Well, then you better get to bed. Good night, Matt. I'll see you tomorrow, Kitty. Sure. Marshal! I want to talk to you. I'll go ahead, Clegg. Talk. It's about him. Huh? Oh, Morgan. Hey, uh, Morgan. What are you calling him for? You want me, Marshal? Yeah. Clegg here wanted to talk to me about you, Morgan. I thought maybe you ought to hear it, too. Sure, he can hear it. I want him to stop following me around, that's all. Oh, why tell me that, Clegg? Because you've got to stop him. Me stop him? He isn't breaking any law. He ain't wearing a gun. A dirty coward. There's no law that a man has to wear a gun. It's know. making me jumpy. I don't like being stared at all the time. You got a guilty conscience about something, Clegg? You shut up. Why don't you take your gun off and shut me up, Clegg? You hear him, Marshal? You see what a coward he is? I can't help you, Clegg. Lock him up, Marshal. Go on, lock him up. You heard me. <laughs> yeah, I heard you. Then do it. Not very likely. All right. You're wearing a gun. Are you a coward, too, Marshal? Uh, Morgan, come outside. I want to talk to you. Okay, Marshal. You're both cowards. That's what you are, cowards. 
Why didn't you kill him in there, Marshal? That was your chance. I'm not a gunman, Morgan. I'm a lawman. Won't you ever understand that? Maybe I'm beginning to. Look, Morgan, it's no use. I'm not going to fight Clegg. Now, you can't use the law for your own revenge. That's not what it's for. Now, why don't you forget this and go back home? Marshal, do you think I'm a coward because I won't put on a gun and let him kill me? I don't know what to think, Morgan. You seem to be doing all the thinking these days. My brother Abe was murdered, Marshal. He was murdered. I'm sorry, Morgan, but there's nothing I can do now. Good night. Are you listening to Gunsmoke in your favorite easy chair or out driving? Oh, there you are, in the kitchen. Say, do you want to make whatever you're doing more enjoyable? Have a Chesterfield. Enjoy Chesterfield's better taste and mildness. You see, Chesterfield packs more pleasure because it's more perfectly packed. A more perfectly packed cigarette gives you an open, easy draw that unlocks all the better taste and mildness of fine tobaccos. And Chesterfield, made by exclusive Accuray, is more perfectly packed, with an even distribution of tobacco from one end of your Chesterfield to the other. Firm and pleasing to the lips, mild, yet deeply satisfying. Remember, to the touch, to the taste... Chesterfield packs more pleasure because Chesterfield's more perfectly packed. Buy Chesterfield. Mild, yet they satisfy the most. Everybody, Chester. Why is the town so quiet this afternoon? Everybody seen you riding in, I guess. Huh? They've been waiting for you to get back. Waiting for me? Why? I told them you'd be back early afternoon. There's trouble here this morning, Mr. Dillon. You mean a shooting? Yes, sir. Morgan? Yes, sir, it was Morgan. Yeah, so he put on a gun after all, huh? No, sir, he was unarmed. What? He ain't dead, though. At least not yet. He's up at docks. Where's Clegg? Clegg must have saw you ride in, too. He's standing across the street now. Behind you there. Ah. Well, I won't keep him waiting. I hear you shot another man, Clegg. He deserved it. Did he? I warned him about following me around. It drove me half crazy. So you stopped him? He slapped me. No man can take that. No. Not even his brother Abe could. <laughs> Say, I plumb forgot about that. You told me once how smart you are, Clegg. I guess you forgot about that, too. What do you mean? Morgan was unarmed. You gonna try to put me in jail, Marshal? 
I'm going to try. Now you're forgetting. I also told you I'm too fast for you. Maybe you are. I'm arresting you, Clayton. Keep your eyes on mine, Marshal. I want to see the look in them when it hits you. That's the best part. Now? the shots, Matt. I see Clegg still lying there. Not if he's got any friends that can move him. I doubt if he has. A man like that. Uh, I guess not, Doc. You did it the only way possible. I was trying to arrest him, Doc. I didn't walk out there to shoot him down. How's Morgan? With two bullets in him, he's doing as well as might be expected. How oh, meaning what? He's dying, man. Yeah. Now, let's go see him. Matter of fact, there's no reason at all he should have lived this long. I can't understand it. Most men would have died on the spot, shot up the way he was. Morgan? Marshal, I heard some shooting, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, you did. Was you in it? I was. And Clegg's dead, huh? That's how you wanted it, wasn't it? That, that's how I wanted it. It's what I've been hanging on for. Morgan, you knew he'd shoot you when you slapped him, didn't you? I had him on edge, Marshal. Planned it that way. Yeah, I thought so. And you were willing to die just to get me to face him, huh? There wasn't no other way. I couldn't kill him myself. Well, I can't say I admire your thinking. But you're sure not a coward. He murdered my brother... He murdered me the same way. But we got him anyway. Didn't we? Didn't we? Well, he... He was right. He won. Even if he had to die to do it. Yeah. But you know something, Doc? I feel like a hangman. He made an executioner out of me. And I don't like it. I understand that, Matt. I... But you'll forget it. You'll forget it. In time. Yeah, sure. One more thing to forget.
our star, William Conrad. Chesterfield packs more pleasure because Chesterfield's more perfectly packed. A cigarette made better and packed better, smokes better, tastes better. And Chesterfield is more perfectly packed by Accuray. This electronic miracle removes human error in cigarette manufacture. So Accuray Chesterfield is firm and pleasing to the lips. Chesterfield, mild, yet they satisfy the most. On the frontier, bands of marauding Indians weren't too uncommon. And next week, during an attack, three people are killed. But not by the Indians. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Ray Kemper and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Vic Perrin, and John Daner. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Take a tip from the L&M people, the people who have put the pleasure back into cigarette smoking. Take the L&M Miracle Tip, the tip that lets all the flavor of superior tobaccos come rich, come clean, come easy. Once you light up an L&M, you'll understand why we say they're so good to your taste, so quick on the draw. It's the pure white Miracle Tip that adds so much to your enjoyment. So make today your Big Red Letter Day. Change to L&M. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Sam Spade, Detective Agency. Me, sweetheart. Sam! I heard you were hobnobbing with a wealthy set of our city. If what I was doing is their idea of hobnobbing, F, I'm glad I'm in the lower income brackets. What do you mean? What happened? I will only reveal that, Effie, in the intimate secrecy of our office. Was it that bad? Worse, F, emotions ran amok. Passions were strewn from Fisherman's Wharf to the peninsula. <gasps> Hatreds festooned the very air. And... There was jealousy, too. My. It was positively lurid, as they say. Well, do, you, do you think it's all right for me to, to hear it? Well, I'll expurgate it a little, F. I'll water it down to your strength. I'll use monosyllabic instead of polysyllabic words, and so on. Now, Sam, I want you to tell me everything you think I should hear. And then, just a little more. It's a deal, F. Prepare yourself for listening, and I will shortly make my entrance with a saga of society skullduggery. The lowdown on the uptown and all that. Now, if we need a name for it, why not call it the Vendetta Caper? Or the Revenge of Monte Christoph? Transcribed for NBC, William Spear, radio's outstanding producer, director of mystery and crime drama, brings you the greatest private detective of them all in The Adventures of Sam Spade. Sam, I'm right here. Mm. Let me take your coat. Well, Effie, isn't this sufficient of you? Now, be quiet and give me your coat. All right. All right, thank you. Now, I've oiled your chair so it won't squeak. Sit down. Well, you make me feel like an emotional invalid, but it's wonderful. And here. Oh, will miracles never cease? A double. Well. It's eight-year-old stuff. I had Friskin's drugstore send it up. 
Applejack, it's called. Applejack. Well, what brought it on, Eph? Why this particular polishing of the Applejack? Well, uh... Come on, out with it. No, I, I just thought... Well, you've been working with the rich people, and maybe you were handsomely compensated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my back salary? Uh. You're not mad, Sam? Well, as it happens, I did make a few dollars, and uh, yours will be the first account settled. Oh, Sam! So... It wasn't me. It was the money all the time. No, Sam. No, I just... I accept your apology. To Lieutenant J.F. Randall, San Francisco Police Department, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the revenge of Monte Christoph. Monte Christoph? Uh, Is this a historical drama? Christoph. C-R-I-S-T-O-F-F. Oh, wow. Monte. M-O-N-T-Y. And it's still a historical drama. Dear Lieutenant, Revenge is an old-fashioned motive, but when you get it raw and distilled, as in the Gosden affair, it's new all over again. This was the slow-burning, deliberate kind of passion that starts smoldering way back in the forgotten days and explodes among some people who never knew they were living over a keg of dynamite. It was yesterday morning that the distant sputtering of the fuse began to be heard by a man named Chandler Gosden. You know him, the hulking rich boy, the electrical appliance scion who took up professional boxing for a while. I think he was billed as Gold Plate Gosden, a society scrapper. And he was doing well, too, until a right cross by someone who needed the money more than he did sent him back to clipping coupons. Spade? Yeah? I'm Chandler Gosden. Well, I recognize you. What do guys like you charge? Well, it depends on the job. Investigation. $60 a day and uh, any unusual expenses. Cheap? Well. Do you guys have some kind of a code, huh? Code? You know, like doctors. Do you keep things in confidence? Well, most of us do, including me. Yeah, I don't suppose it'd make any big difference if it got out. I'm not afraid of him. I'd just as soon punch him in the mouth as look at him. Who? Monte Christoph. Heard of him? No, no. Moved into the peninsula, my neighborhood. Bought the Major Dunhill place. Oh, yeah, I know the estate. Must have cost plenty to buy. 250000 I hear. Mm-hmm. What's money these days? Everybody's got it. Yeah, isn't it awful? It's a tax scheme, I suppose. Ever since he moved into that ark of a house, he's been throwing parties. They're a cross between the last days of Pompeii and a Polish wedding. Hmm. He invites hundreds of guests, everybody who is anybody. Disgusting. But uh, it seems legal so far. He's been there four months throwing parties, inviting everybody in the phone book. Everybody but me. Well, maybe he just doesn't like you. What are you talking about? I'm one of the best-liked guys in the peninsula. Everybody likes me, little kids, cops, the guys at the country club. I never had an enemy in the world. Besides, I got Virginia. Oh, who's she? My wife. Oh. One of the sweetest little girls that ever came down the pike. Well, my apology. She was a bald one. Oh. The year I married her, she was the social catch of the year among the women. Really? Yeah. So was I among the men. Well. Well, look, I got to tell you some more. A month ago, one of my company warehouses burned down. Somebody slipped up and the fire insurance hadn't been renewed. I lost $350,000. Mm-hmm. Guess who had lunch with my insurance man a week before the fire? Monte Cristo. You got it. Next thing is, the rumor gets around that the Gosden Electrical Company is on the verge of bankruptcy. Well, of course it isn't. Absolutely not. Huh? A gossip columnist reports that I'm going to close up shop and beat it to South America with what dough is left. Then when the stock prices start dropping, somebody suddenly buys them up so fast they disappear overnight. Some corporation I never heard of called the, the Dantes Corporation. I see. And then all my friends start getting unfriendly. As soon as I show up, everybody stops talking. Act as if there's some big secret about me that I don't know. And they've all been to Monte Cristo's parties lately. That's right. The week after he arrived in town, all these things started happening. Now, what I want to find out is why. I don't even know the guy, but he's making a big change in my life. 
Well, it sounds like you're entitled to know. I don't know how far I can get. The best I can do is find out who he is, where he comes from, who his friends are, all those things. Okay, you're hired. Now find out everything about this Monte Cristo. I gotta know what's going on. Mm. Huh? Oh, sorry, Chandler. I wasn't able to get here when you said. The traffic was absolutely unbelievable. Cars, cars everywhere. They must be giving cars away these days. Everybody has one. I think we should get a helicopter. Mr. Spade, my wife, Ginny. Well, how do you do, Mrs. Gosden? Chan, I hope you haven't lost your head and blabbed everything to him. I told you these sort of men weren't trustworthy. I beg your pardon, madam? Look, Ginny, I told him, and he's a good guy. Well, if you just want to go around giving your life secrets... Oh, shut up, will you? I'm the man of the house. Really? And I suppose I count for nothing? Oh, oh, forget it. Spade, I'm depending on you. Don't let me down. You wouldn't think a millionaire would be hard to biograph, but I came up with very little information on Mr. Monte Christoph. He'd arrived in town four months ago, stayed ten days at the St. Mark Hotel, then bought his house. He had a bank deposit running into seven figures. He had no known business connections, just money. The register at the St. Mark said he came from Chicago, and an airline company verified that he'd been a passenger aboard one of their ships from the Windy City. This was as far as I'd delved when my place of business was entered by a man in powder blue livery. You, Spade? The same. Mr. Monte Christoph sent me to pick you up. I see. Up for where? For his mansion on a peninsula. Oh. He said he knew what a rough time you must be having at your present job and that he'd be glad to make the whole thing simple to you. Oh, he really said that? That's what he said. Oh. But I don't know what it means exactly. Well, I don't know what it means exactly either, but uh, there's one good way to find out. Home, James. Uh, my name is Bertuccio, sir. Bertuccio? I see. How long have they been calling you that? Well, let me see. It's about... What do you mean? I mean, it's my name. All right, all right. We'll talk it over in the car. The car was long and blue and smooth. I'm as democratic as the next guy, and I would just as soon have ridden up front with Bertuccio, but no, he wouldn't hear of it. I had to ride in a back seat with a window of bulletproof glass separating us. And thus we rode down to the peninsula. We glided down elm-shaded streets and finally through the gate of Monte Christophe's estate. The driveway was lined with spring green poplars. The mansion door was opened by a rear admiral, and I was ushered in. I wouldn't want to say that the living room was large, but I coughed once, and it was a full minute before the echo came back. A door opened somewhere, and a tan, hard-bodied man walked in across the marble floor with an outstretched hand. It was tougher than whalebone. I appreciate your coming, Mr. Spade. Mr. Christoph. Did you have a drink? Champagne? Scotch? Irish? What? Oh, anything. Whatever you like. Good. I figured you for rye. It's already ordered. Rye it is. Cigar? No, thanks. The custom rolled Havana's, made expressly to my own taste. No, thanks anyway, but I have some beat-up cigarettes here, sir. Don't try mine. The king of England, I did him a favor once. He ships them over. Uh, how is George? You drink, Mr. Spade. Oh, thank you, Bertuccio. Now, you've been investigating me. Yes. And you haven't found out anything. How'd you know, Mr. Christo? There was nothing to find out. Well, you're in. I'll do you a service and save you time and money. Well, that's a handsome offer, I accept. I was born in Michigan to a prosperous lumber family. I went to Phillips Andover in Harvard. Well. Mark's fair. I served with the Army in the recent war. Major. Military police. Wounded twice. Uh-huh. Parents died while I was in Italy. I inherited enormous lumber holdings, which I sold. Hence my bank account. I like San Francisco. 
came here and settled down. Well, you're very kind, but I don't need all this information. I have more money than a man can spend in a lifetime. And by that, I don't mean to boast. It was an accident of birth. Yes. yes. Now, Mr. Christoph, I'm only trying to find I out. I know what, what you're trying to find out. Chandler Gosden put you on my trail. Well, there's no need to deny it. And uh, what would you take to get off my trail, Mr. Spade? Well? New car, a selection of fine liquor, a better job, cash. All rather enticing, but uh, I'm afraid you've misjudged me, sir. I only work for one client at a time. Is there anything wrong with switching your allegiance? Well, I'm afraid it wouldn't be cricket. Uh, is that the way they say it at Andover? Very well. Huh. Then I'm afraid I've given you all the information I can about myself. Well, you've been very generous. But uh, just one other thing. How long did you live in Chicago? Chicago? Yes. I never lived there. But you flew here from Chicago. Oh, that. I was just there on business. Uh-huh. Well, if you say so. Berduccio is outside with a car. He'll drive you back to your office. And with that, he turned and left me. Outside, Bertuccio was waiting. Impassively, he ushered me into the limousine and started out. Only we didn't head for my office. Instead, we seemed to be leaving town. I banged on the glass between us, but Bertuccio didn't choose to answer. When we stopped at a light, I tried the doors, but they were both mysteriously locked. I was a prisoner in a moving jail. I made desperate signs to passers-by and traffic policemen I knew, but they just smiled and waved back at me. It was all very jolly. So I sat back and waited. About 20 or 30 miles out of town, we pulled onto a lonesome road and stopped. Here we are. Well, just where are we and why? Now, don't blow your top. Christoph told me to take you out here and to give you this. Oh? What's in the envelope? Money. Two grand to Big Zack. Well, that's a lot of grands. Yeah, they're going to do a lot for you. You're going to take it and keep going north. Forty-eight hours will be long enough just so you keep out of Frisco. Well, just so you know how I stand, I'm going back. You know, I was hoping you'd say that. Now I can do things my own way. pulled out a long black sap and started wielding it. The first cut just grazed my head and smashed into my shoulder. I blocked his second blow and moved in for some close work. The third time he swung at me, his arm caught an overhead tree branch, and that was his undoing. He took four or five and then went down and out. I searched him, and his billfold revealed that he was Joseph Kowalski, late of Chicago, Illinois. The cards and addresses it contained left little doubt that Kowalski was in the rackets. I threw him in the car and drove back to town and police headquarters. He was awake by then, and I had to drag him into the hall. You want him locked up, Sam? What for? Assault and battery. Assault with a deadly weapon. Assault with intent to murder. Mayhem, anything. You can't lock me up. I didn't do any of those things. Anyway, if I did do them, it was in San Martin County, not Frisco. Oh, Sam, I don't know what I can do. He's got to do something in our jurisdiction. Sure, see? All right, he picked my pocket on the way into town. Here, Kowalski. What? See, look, he's got my wallet in his hand right now. Why, of all the brazen lawbreakers, are you going to let him get away with this? Walking right into headquarters with the evidence in his hand? Oh, wait a come minute. Come on, come on, Kowalski. We go pretty hard on pickpockets in this town. I'm being framed. I want a lawyer. Get me a telephone. He was dragged away protesting. He got no sympathy from me. He started. Lieutenant Randall then teletyped Chicago to find out more about him. In about an hour, the report came back. I won't read his whole record, Sam, but he's paid for everything they say. He's clean. Huh? However, it does say he, he was the bodyguard for a man named Barney Moffat. Mm. Says Moffat was a shady business operator. Picked up several times, but nothing hung on him. Mm-hmm. He left town about the same time Kowalski did. He's listed as undesirable, but he's not wanted. Oh. Thanks, Lieutenant. If a man named Barney Moffat had a hood named Joseph Kowalski as a bodyguard and they both disappeared from Chicago at the same time, 
the obvious conclusion was conclusively obvious. I drove the limousine back to Christoph's estate. But as I parked the car, my headlights hit another car. There was someone getting into it. Mrs. Chandler Gosling. you're doing? Remember me, Sam Spade? Oh, detective. Yes. What are you following me for? What were you doing in Kristoff's house? I thought he was a, wasn't a friend of yours or your husband. Mr. Spade, get in, please. Let's talk. Okay, spill it. It's none of your business what I was doing in there. Whatever it was, I want you to forget you ever saw me. That'll be pretty hard to do. Would money help you? In this case, no. What do you care what happens to my life or Chan's or Christoph's? Because your husband's paying me to worry. All right. If I were you, I'd just forget that you ever met any of us. Because this mess we're in is so bad that nothing you or anybody else can do is going to get us out of trouble. With that, she burst out crying. and I couldn't get anything else out of her. So I let her go and she drove off. I walked up to Christoph's house, knocked on the door, and a servant opened it. Steps inside when six pairs of arms grabbed me. Some of them had fists on them. The struggle was just getting lively when Christoph appeared. All right, let him go, let him go. Hey, Well, I don't appreciate this kind of treatment, Christoph. You entered, Spade. All right, men, take a walk. Now, what's it all about? It was my orders if you ever showed up here again. Why'd you soften? I just heard about Kowalski. You managed that very well. I admire resourcefulness. How would you like to work for me? No, thanks, Moffat. Moffat? Barney Moffat, late of Chicago and the rackets. So you know, huh? Well, I wasn't sure until just now, but you've cleared up the doubt. How much do you know? Very little. Just that you were a shady operator, but nobody's looking for you or anything. Spade, I did a lot of things. Several years at tightrope walking with the law. But I never did anything that could jail me for. I have an idea you're considering doing something in the near future. What makes you say that? Well, it's a vendetta, isn't it? Monte Christophe and Bertuccio the Stewart and the Dentist Corporation. You couldn't resist the drama, could you? All from Dumas' novel. But why? Why do you want to play the count of Monte Cristo? What did Gosden do to you to merit all this revenge? Tomorrow. It'll be over tomorrow. And with that, he clutched at his heart and fell forward at my feet. are listening to the weekly adventure of radio's most famous detective, Sam Spade. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. If you've been searching for mystery on Saturday night, put away your magnifying glass and follow these clues. Dial this NBC station tomorrow evening and listen for the chimes, and then you'll be off on a perilous trip with The Man Called X, starring Herbert Marshall. And if you've been searching for music, too, on Saturday, then Eileen Wilson is your dish as she stars in your hit parade with Snooky Lanson and Raymond Scott's orchestra. And now back to The Vendetta Caper, or The Revenge of Monte Kristoff, tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. I bent over and listened to his heart. It was okay. Monte Christoph had just keeled over, apparently, from a crescendo of emotion. He blacked out. I didn't want to be held up by his henchmen, so I left the room and walked out of the house without calling anybody. I walked down the road, and good luck, there was an empty cab cruising along. At Chandler Gosden's, I found him pacing the living room in a state of physical and mental disorder. I told him what I knew. Vendetta? Why? 
I never heard of him. I never did anything to the man. Why would your wife go and see him? I don't know. Why don't you ask her? Because she hasn't been home all day, and here it is, one o'clock in the morning, she's still listening. Tell me, is there something special happening tomorrow? Christoph seemed to think that everything would be settled tomorrow. It's our annual corporation election, just a matter of form. I'm elected president, a few other people voted into office, always the same people. Well, then he must plan to swing the election his way, maybe put you in office. Huh, got a fat chance of that. I don't care how much stock he buys. Ginny owns 10%. I own 41. That's 51%. If he bought 49% of the open market, that still wouldn't be enough. We could still outvote him. You're sure you've got the stock in your sure. position? I saw it last week when I was down in the hall looking for my birth certificate. Stupid me. Forgot I don't have a birth certificate. Huh? No. That must be Edson, my lawyer. Called and said he had something on his mind. Ken. Chandler, I have bad news for you. It can wait. No, no, it can't. This is Sam Spade, Ralph Edson. How do you do? Sam Spade. Now, Chan, listen to me. All right, what's biting you? Just this. We're liable to lose that election tomorrow. What? What are you talking about? We can't. I just found out that Monte Cristo has 59% of the voting stock in Gosden Electric. 15? He can't have it. Oh, look, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If my wife sold her stock, he could have 59, couldn't he? He could. Spade. Hmm? Are you positive you saw her coming out of Christoph's house? I'm afraid I did. I'm gonna find her. I'm gonna find her, and if she sold any of her stock to Christoph, I'll kill her! I tried to dissuade him, but he brushed me and the lawyer aside and ran out of the house. I called the police and told them to try and find Virginia Gosden before her husband did. Then I went looking myself. The first place I tried was Monte Christoph's mansion. There were lights on, so I entered, gun in hand. I didn't have any time to dicker with servants and bodyguards. Christoph appeared in a matter of seconds. All right, Spade, what is it you want now? Virginia Gosden. She hasn't been here since the last time you saw her. You know where she is? I haven't any idea. Well, if you know, tell me. Her husband's looking for her with homicide in his eyes. I can't say I'm sorry. Well, that's a nice sentiment. She sold you her stock in the Gosden company, didn't she? Since you seem to know about it, yes. Why? she in love with you? I think maybe she is. And you're in love with her? She's a stupid, empty-headed nothing. I can't stand the sight of her. I hate her. I... Now hold it now. You'll knock yourself out again. Yes. Yes. Come over here. Take a good look at that. No, it's a pillow. An ordinary pillow. So? You notice how dirty it is? Yeah. Notice that it isn't even stuffed with feathers? They were too good. It's stuffed with dirty cotton rags. Well... My father's head was lying on that pillow when he died. I've kept it ever since as a reminder of who killed him. Who did? A man named Elwood Gosden. A man who cheated and lied and stole everything he had in his life. Chandler's father, huh? Yes. My father and Elwood Gosden had a hardware store once. My father invented an electric iron. Ever heard of the Gosden iron? Yeah. It should have been the Moffat iron. Elwood Gosden stole the plans from my father. Registered them first... And then drove my father out of business. He made a fortune out of it. And then went into other electrical appliances. Well, things are beginning to gel now. My father became a peddler and died poor and broke and ill. My mother died 20 years before she should have from overwork. While the Gosdens grew fat and respected on the Moffat brains. So you started your vendetta, huh? I started it the day my father died. I set out to make one thing in this world, money. And I made it in handfuls. You can look me up. Barney Moffat, Chicago. Gambling, black markets, gun running, slave trading, anything and everything that had a big profit in it. And then I set out for San Francisco 
to break that Creighton son of Elwood's and his whole family. And on the way, you lost a guy named Barney Moffat. What difference? Huh. Look, you've got money now and everything you need. Why go on with it? I don't care anything about money. I only want to use it against them. Do you know why I had all those parties? To buy stock from people. Yes. Stock in the Gosden Company. I've paid twice, three times what the shares were worth. But right now, I own 59% of the Gosden Enterprises. And tomorrow morning, when the two of us meet at the stockholders' meeting, I'm going to vote him out of office and take over the company. And then, I'm going to drive it right into bankruptcy. And you got Mrs. Gosden's stock by making her fall in love with you. I had to. Don't let's talk about it anymore. About Chandler Gosden, he's a man with a very short and violent temper. He might come gunning for you. That's just what I hope he does. Ask the man at the door to show you out. I spent most of the night trying to find Virginia Gosden with no luck. Chandler didn't return to his house, so I didn't know what he was up to. It was early the following day when I got my first report. Lieutenant Randall called me down to police headquarters. We found her, Spade. Dead or alive? Oh, about halfway in between. She was shot in the chest at close range. Hmm. Gun right up against her. But she's still living. And what are her chances? Fair. Where'd you find her? In a walk-up apartment on Polk Street. It was registered to her. Looked like a love nest, a place where she met a boyfriend or something. No weapon. I see. I figure murder attempt, her husband. We have a pickup on him right now, but so far he's vanished. Shame, fine old San Francisco family. What do you know, Sam? Well, give me a free hand for a couple of hours, will you? Maybe I can do something for this fine old San Francisco family. I had no more idea than the police where Chandler Gosden was at the moment, but I had a good idea where he might be later in the morning. I put a call into Ralph Edson, his lawyer. The stockholders' meeting of the Gosden Company was to be held at 11 o'clock at their executive offices. Edson got me in, and at five minutes to 11, Monte Christoph walked in. There were three of us. None of us spoke. We just sat around a long, polished table, alternately watching the clock and the door. At 11.3, the door opened. Chandler Gosden stood there, rumpled, red-eyed, vicious. He had a gun. The first man who moves is going to get a bullet right in the face. Chandler, for heaven's sake. Shut up. Is that the gun you tried to kill your wife with? It's the gun, but I didn't try to kill her. She did it herself because he drove her to it. Me? Yeah, you, Christopher. You were meeting her in an apartment. Don't think I've been dumb. Put the gun away and let's get down to business. Are you kidding? I got the same gun she used on herself and I'm going to use it on you. Well, stop talking and get it over with. You act as if you want me to do it. All right. Edson? Spade? Clear out of here. Doesn't use your head. I said get out of here. Now go on. Okay, but don't take your eye off him. He's got a gun in his pocket. Don't worry, I won't. You were working for him. Working for him all along. Everybody was. No, now listen to me. He wanted you to kill him. He doesn't care about himself. He just wanted you to be put away for murder. Spade, this is our affair, not yours. Now look, both of you shut up and listen. This is a tough thing to try to settle something that's been boiling up in you, Moffat, ever since you can remember. You spent all of your grown-up life trying to get back at the wrong man. It appealed to some ironical sense of yours to carry out the Monte Cristo revenge story. Now let me ask you this. You remember all about Monte Cristo and how he ruined the people who had ruined his life and how his father died heartbroken. But do you remember the end of that book? Go on. He found that he couldn't bring himself to revenge the wrongdoings of families on their innocent children. That reads good in a book, but I don't feel that way. Well, maybe you will when you hear this. What? This man right here that you've spent 20 years getting ready to ruin is not even a Gosden. Huh? 
What? He's an adopted son. Uh, Mr. Elwood Gosden adopted him from an Oakland orphanage on October 11th, 1907. I got the records to prove it this morning. I don't believe it. I would have known. Mr. Edson, you've always been the family lawyer. Isn't this true? It was a long chance that Edson would play along with it. But to bring it off, it needed the final clincher. Lawyer Edson looked at me, then looked at Chandler Gosden. He gulped her and licked his lips. It's true. It's true, Chandler. Adopted? Uh, your, your father never wanted you to know. Chandler didn't move. He just stood there stunned. But Barney Moffat sank down into a chair and buried his head in his hands. Edson and I looked at each other and waited. And finally, Christoph looked up and spoke. Start the meeting. Mr. Edson? Uh, I hereby declare the annual stockholders' meeting of the Gosden Company open. <clears throat> uh, uh, Mr. Gosden? I don't care what happens now. I bow to the majority stockholder. Oh. Uh, Mr. Christoph... I beg your pardon, Mr. Moffitt? As the majority stockholder, I vote that the chairmanship of the Gosden Electrical Corporation... Remain as it has for the past 20 years with Chandler Gosden. Period. End of report. Oh, Sam, you were magnificent. It was rather a stirring scene, wasn't it? I was good. But it was superb. It really was. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he sign over the stock and everything? Oh, he did indeed. Oh. Sam. Hmm? Do you think the world will ever get to a time when everybody has all he wants? And instead of trying to get more, everybody spends his time just... just trying to enjoy life? Well, you know best, Effie. Do you really believe that, Sam? Well, you've got to believe something. It's better than nothing. I guess. I have a theory, too, Sam. Well, spout it out. Well, if everybody in the world picks somebody else to be nice to, there'll never be any more trouble anywhere. Uh, How do you figure that? Well... Before you can be nice to somebody, you have to think nice thoughts, uh-huh. see? And once you start thinking nice thoughts, well, you can see how silly the bad ones are. Effie, come here. Huh. You know, I might just put you up as a candidate for a chair of philosophy at Columbia. Oh, Sam. Uh-huh. I know who you picked out to be nice to. Me. True. And I picked you. Uh-huh. Good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. Tonight's transcribed adventure of Sam Spade was produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade was played by Stephen Dunn, Lorene Tuttle as Effie. Script for tonight's adventure by John Michael Hayes. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbruster. Join us again next week, same time, for another adventure with Sam Spade. Tomorrow, Dennis Day and Judy Canova entertain you on NBC. Inner Sanctum Mysteries, starring Ann Seymour and Myron McCormick. Brought to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liver Pills, the best friend to your sunny disposition.
Good evening, friends. Welcome. Welcome to the Inner Sanctum. This is Raymond, your host, teller of strange tales. Come in, if you dare. Now, before we begin, a word to those of you who don't frighten easily. It'll be no disgrace if before we're finished you find yourself trembling against your will. Inner Sanctum Mysteries takes great pleasure in presenting two of America's best-known and best-loved radio artists, Miss Anne Seymour and Mr. Myron McCormick. Tonight, these two favorites of the air lanes co-star in The Man from Yesterday, an original radio mystery drama by Milton Geiger, brought to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liver Pills, the laxative with the two-way action. For over 60 years, everybody has known that the name Carter's Little Liver Pills means gentle and efficient health whenever a laxative is needed. Yes, and they know, too, that Carter's Little Liver Pills bring added relief by waking up the flow of a very important digestive juice. So take advantage of this two-way action and ask for Carter's Little Liver Pills. Do you like to have your hair stand on end? You like to feel your blood run cold? Hmm. <laughs> of course you do. Come along with me, then, to the jungle. Still and hot. Weirdly yellow in the strange light of the tropic moon. In a clearing, the African natives of Dr. Robert Rand's museum party sway to the slow throb of their drums. A few hundred yards off in the thick bush... A monstrous humpbacked shape drops silently from the trees, moves swiftly across the shadowed jungle floor. Suddenly the earth gives way under the dark, crouching monster's feet. He struggles wildly a moment and falls, disappearing into the earth. Wana! Wana run! Quick! Come quick! Ngagi, come quick. Eh? What, uh, what's up, Sangala? What's something wrong, Sangala? Wana, you come fast. Bring big gun. Oh, what is it? Ngagi. Gorilla? Where? Old man, gorilla. He fallen trap. Oh, you shouldn't go, Bob. You're fever. Where is he? Where is the gorilla? Sangala, show you. Bring big gun. You follow me. Can you see him down there, Bob? And I see him. What a fellow. What a prize he'd be for Professor Converse at the museum. A full-grown gorilla. Ruth, we've got to get this fellow home. Alive. Oh, Bob, it's dangerous. You're ill. Must you? Converse would never forgive me if I didn't. Bob. What is it? The gorilla hasn't made a sound for some time now. That's right. Turn the flashlight down there, will you, Ruth? That's very strange. Is he hurt? No. But look at him. See how he stares up at me. Yes. And such steady, knowing, intelligent eyes. Almost human. Yes. Gazing so steadily into my own. Unflinching. Unafraid. And puzzled. 
Though he's seen me before. Though he recognizes me. Is trying to remember me from somewhere. From time. Moving a great ape from where he obviously belongs to where he obviously doesn't. All right, hold it, man. Hold it. Keep the cage from swinging as it comes down to deck level. All right. Lower away. Easy. Easy, then. All right. Good. Good. That does it, man. Now cast away the lowering chains and begin closing the hatch. Right up. Tired, Bob. A little. But it's a relief to have Engaji safely stowed away down here. Engaji. It's a musical name, isn't it? It means gorilla. Well, nothing to do but keep him safe in his cage, keep him from catching cold, and feed him wild carrots and parsley. If it were for anyone but Professor Converse, I'd chuck it all right now. Sorry I started it. I... I don't like him, Gadgy. Oh, he's a gentleman and a scholar. Don't talk playful nonsense about him, Ruth. He's a killer. He is not. I happen to know. What do you mean, you happen to know? Have you been around his cage again lately? I've been teaching him a few simple tricks, if that's what you mean. What do you call a simple trick? Well, for example, shaking hands with a lady. Ruth, you haven't. I have, and is my arm torn from its socket? It is not. Ruth, don't you understand? You can't make friends with a gorilla. You can't compromise with the jungle. Ngaji is clever and he's dangerous. You'll watch with those beady little eyes of his. You'll wait with that tricky little brain of his. Until his time comes. Now, don't give him his chance, Ruth. Oh, you're not well, Bob. And so you magnify the dangers and the menace of the jungle and all that bookish stuff. All out of proportion to... Well, what... What's the matter? Look at him. He's been watching me all the time. You see how he stares at me? Never batting an eye. Never moving a hair. Watching me. Matching my gaze, stare for stare. Oh, come out of it, Bob. Been like this from the moment we captured him. Ruth? That abysmal brute knows something. Darling, this stuffy ship's hold is getting you. Let's go and feed some quinine, huh? Very well. What'll I do with Ngaji back home? That's Professor Converse's problem, and he's welcome. Up the ladder with you. All right, man. Batten her down. Bye-bye, Ngaji. So long, old man. Be good.
going, Judgy. The other hand. That's it. That's it. Ah, good fellow. (laughs) Now, the other hand. Take my left hand now. The left. That's it. Oh, careful now. Don't squeeze so hard. Hey, hey, Butch, take it easy. No, 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 no. Mustn't pull. Stop pulling, do you hear? In That's better. Now let go of the lady's hand. That's it. <laughs> now then, how about some exercise? Think you could walk around the hold here with a distinguished dame on your arm? Yeah, let's see how this chain and iron pin work on this door. <laughs> they think you can't be trained, but I know you can. <laughs> oh, this is easy. Oh, have this iron pin up in just a minute. Uh, just a patient, old fellow. Oh, here it comes. Oh. Well, better luck next time. Rookie down there, Ruth. Tell me, Bob. I was just having a word with Ngaji. Well, hurry. We've got little old New York on our horizon and anti-glass. That's very kind of you, Professor Converse, putting Ruth and me up at the museum like this. Let's go. A plenty room. Start to want to keep an eye on that fever of yours, because you won't. <laughs> well, nevertheless, Professor, we won't impose on your hospitality a moment more than it takes us to get settled again here in America. Yeah. Here's another door. After you, Rand. Thank you. This old wing is out of use, but it still has electricity. And what's more important, heat. So the zoo can build proper quarters for Ngaji. We'd better keep him in here where the temperature is even. Hmm. I've been thinking, Professor... These oak doors wouldn't be any problem at all to Engadji if he happened to get on the loose. True, true. The door closing off this old wing from the new building is really made of iron. I see. So, unless your gorillas of the armor-piercing variety, pretty safe. Here's next to the last door. This used to be our dinosaur room. A huge room. Well, here we are. Royal suite itself. Ruth, what are you doing in here? I'm talking to Ngaji. Hello, Professor. I shouldn't become too familiar with Ngaji, Mrs. Rand. Oh, he's quite gentle. You know what he does now? He takes the rings off my fingers and then gives them back. Takes the rings off your fingers? Ruth, come on, let's get out of here. Oh, all right. You're rougher than a 500-pound ape. He's a real gentleman. Look at him. Look how he presses his face between the bars. Get a closer look at me. It's been like that, sir. By George, I'll give him a good look at it. Don't get too close, Rand. Now, careful. Well, he doesn't know you well, Bob. Bob! There, you ugly brute. Take a look. Take a good, long look. Uh, Well, what do you see? (gasps) All right, all right, he missed me. Could have shattered your skull with that blow, Rand. But it's only because he doesn't know you, Bob. He does know me. He looked into my face. And he saw something. What does he see? Oh, you think he saw? Well, I'm no fortune teller. I'm only Raymond, your host here in the Inner Sanctum. But I can tell you he must have seen something. But what was it? That's the big question. Yes, and when that logy, dull, sluggish feeling tells us that a laxative may be needed, the big question is, 
What laxative will do you the most good? Lots of folks have answered the question successfully by taking Carter's Little Liver Pills. Why? Because Carter's Little Liver Pills offer help in these two effective ways. One, they help relieve irregularity in an efficient, thorough, yet gentle manner. Two, usually within a half hour after taking them, Carter's Little Liver Pills wake up the flow of a very important digestive juice. It's this vital juice that helps tone up a lazy, sluggish digestive system so that folks can lose their grouts and feel better. You better keep that in mind, friends. And next time, remember Carter's Little Liver Pills. The laxative that helps in more ways than one. All right. Do you still want to know what the man from yesterday saw when he... Looked into Rand's face? <laughs> You'll be sorry, but you asked for it. So let's go into Ngaji's cage with him now, as he listens to a strange, mysterious uh, voice. Uh, Lord of the jungle, do you hear me? Do you hear Ngaji? Do you hear the jungle speak? Ngaji. I am in the I am the jungle. Jungle. You looked into the man creature's pale eyes. Do you remember now? Do you remember that other Ingaji a thousand million moons ago? Before the pale man creature walked here? Man. Wait. Do you remember Ingaji? Remember. You fought with him in the jungle. Fought for the beautiful she. He conquered. How you hated him. Hey. He was mighty. And he was different from the others. When the others swept through the trees, that other one ran swift as the wind on the ground. Remember. Remember. Hey. You fought. The other one who was different stood triumphant in the clearing, his neck half bitten through, victorious. He who would one day be a man, man. your conqueror then, your captor now. Hey, hey, man. Where is your strength, O Ingati? Other one conquered you again, as he did a thousand million moons ago. I am strong. I am Mingaji. Yet the weak one wins. Clear. Yeah. Professor, so you know it was me. Of course. Well, that's exactly why I'm here, Professor. Getting to be a habit around here. 
There's a knocking. It must be that feverish fool ran. Oh, come now. We want you here. Well, such a thing as wearing out your welcome. You paid a thousand times by bringing us back that magnificent gorilla. I don't consider that adequate compensation. Professor, I might as well tell you. I'm sorry I ever blundered over the booth. He's just getting you again. Go to bed and take No, time. no, no. I'm afraid of him, Gadgie. Not in the physical sense. I could cope with his power, his force. But he's changed. I can't cope with, with what he's become. He infuriates and humiliates me that... That gorilla has something on me. Has me at some disadvantage that I don't understand. Got under my skin. You remember when he struck at me three weeks ago? Do I remember? Of course I do. He changed after that. When he looks at me now, he isn't puzzled. He isn't searching his memory for some clue to me anymore. He knows. He knows who I am and what I mean to him. Whatever it is, he hits me. Hits me with a dreadful, consuming energy. I don't question that, Rand. Plain enough. Have you here? He never had those tempers. Now something is tormenting him into a frenzy of hatred and defiance. Something in that secret brain of his. You'd better calm him down before he dashes out that secret brain of his. Come on, Rand. We'll talk later. Tremendous living power. Yes. You've got to admire it at first. You almost think for a moment that he represents the super race. That big, black-haired, purebred gorillas are the dominating people. And on the basis of sheer power with a certain amount of intelligence and ruthlessness, you think he ought to rule. <laughs> then you stop to think. You remember... Yes, he's pure black gorilla and powerful. But after all, he's just a gorilla. Oh, I, I thought I heard him judge you studying him. Well, you did. Your precious beast was being attentive. He's got cold running about barefooted like that, and that wouldn't do. Because Engadji might catch it from you, and that would be the end of Engadji. On second thought, perhaps you'd better run around barefooted. But, Bob, he's worth a fortune. Well, so are you. Now run along back to bed. Professor Converse and I have a chess game to play. Hey, Professor? Engadget. Engadget. Hi, old fella. I've brought you bananas. Here. No. No, I haven't got any more. What? Oh, my hand. Which one? This? Or oh, the last? Chill, pal. Take it easy, though. It's break. That's a good boy. Uh... Oh, no. Come on, Daddy. Give me back the ring. 
Come on, hand over the jewels. I'll pick them up, Ngazi. Ngazi! All right. I'll get them myself. But you won't hear the end of it. I'll show you. I've eaten your last banana for a month, and don't you forget it. Uh, Ngazi! What's the matter? Uh, oh, don't you know me? Ngazi! Uh, Professor. Hey, Scott, the fruit. There's a light in the wing. Look. The fruit, the fruit. Wait a minute, Rand. Look here. Take my revolver. I'll come along. Come on, stay here. Call for help. I can't hold him with just the revolver. Hurry!
Is it, Professor? You certainly did. Again. Again? Have you ever had the feeling that something that has just happened, it happened before, somewhere, a long time ago? A very familiar psychological phenomenon. What about it? I feel that all this has happened before. And that it will happen again. I only wonder when. And where. And who will be the victor. Then. Yeah, I can look at you. Oh, yes. You're hurt. There are the marks of teeth on your neck. An unusual birthmark. It's occurred in my family for generations. Shows up when we become excited. Is it strange, Professor? All right, friends. You can come out from under your table. Everything's all right now. Ngaji is dead, and we're safe for another 10,000 years. Good. Oh, Mr. Hurley, he and Gaji was only imaginary, so don't let him worry you. Oh, you're right, Raymond. Especially when real things can be so much more troublesome. You mean things like an irritable, sour, out-of-sorts feeling that so often warns us the laxative is needed? Yes, and that's why folks have been taking Carter's little liver pills for years. They know the name stands for Dependable Gentle Relief. Yes, and besides, folks know that usually within a half hour, Carter's little liver pills will wake up the flow of a very essential digestive juice. This juice is all important to normal, proper digestion. So why don't you take advantage of this time-tested two-way action and ask for Carter's little liver pills? Well, friends, it's uh, time to close that squeaking door to the inner sanctum until the same time next week. Invite all your friends to be here with you. It'll uh, give you courage. <laughs> the safety in numbers. Well, next week, our ghost artist... <laughs> pardon me, guest artist... Uh, ...comes with the highest credentials. He, um, he was on the horror roll at Spirit School. <laughs> Fine student. And for anyone who'd like a snap course... ...an exciting mystery reading... ...let me suggest this month's Inner Sanctum novel... ...The Murder of a Novelist. By Sally Wood. On sale at your favorite bookstore. Now, friends, here's an urgent, serious thought. Remember the Red Cross. It needs your help now more than ever. And also remember you are giving both for Christmas and for America. And your presence are United States defense bonds and stamps. Buy all you can afford today. Well, good night. Pleasant dreams, huh? Attention, armchair detectives. One way to solve a puzzling case is to keep your eyes and ears open. What valuable tip would you get from this conversation? I ought to have been home two hours ago. Got to get this order out, Tom. It's important. But I've stayed three nights this week. Well, so is everyone else. Come on, Tom. These days, well, things out. But you fellas don't feel as punk and low down and out of sorts as I have lately. I can't afford to. There's too much work to be done. So when you get the feeling slowed up and sluggish... 
Why not do something about it? Yeah? What do you suggest? Try Carter's little liver pills. Right. Then when you don't feel good, try Carter's little liver pills. They do the work of calomel, but have no calomel in them. Well, they are simple pills made of vegetable drugs. They wake up the flow of one of our most vital digestive juices. When this vital juice flows at the rate of about two pints a day, it helps to digest our food and bring back the glorious feeling that goes with regularity. Then most folks feel like happy days are here again. But be sure you get the genuine Cottage Little Liver Pills. 25 cents at all drugstores. This is the National Broadcasting Company. The Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, maker of better things for better living through chemistry, presents Randolph Scott in The Vengeance of Torpedo 8. This evening, with Randolph Scott as our star, DuPont presents The Vengeance of Torpedo 8 based on the book Torpedo 8 by Ira Wolver. The Vengeance of Torpedo 8, written by Milton Wayne and Robert L. Richards, is a story of courage out of the annals of our war in the Pacific. Randolph Scott appears on the cavalcade tonight by the courtesy of Universal Pictures, which now filming the Walter Wayne production, Gung Ho. Starring Randolph Scott as Lieutenant Harold Larson on the Cavalcade of America. This is the story of vengeance and the story of a man. It is the story of a grim item of particulars presented to the enemy and collected in fullest measure by the men of a United States Navy Torpedo Squadron and by their skipper. The name of the squadron is Torpedo 8. The name of the man is Swede Larson. And the vengeance was on behalf of 42 of its men, men who were still alive only 18 months ago. It is a day in March, 1942, at the Norfolk Naval Base. And Torpedo 8 is in the process of commissioning new TBF planes for the big job that still lies ahead. And carefully supervising every move is Torpedo 8 skipper, Lieutenant Swede Larson. Larson to Ernest. Yes, skipper. Now, hold it. I'll call you back. Here comes the captain. Well, Swede, how are they coming? Couldn't ask for better, sir. Look, Swede, I, I don't want to rush you, but, uh, well, it would help to have a rough idea... How soon do you think your boys can get these planes into mission for combat? Well, I've been doing considerable thinking about that. Of course, you know there's a lot of work involved in a job like this. Yeah, sure, I know, but there's a war on, too. Yes, sir, that's why I was thinking. I figured we could do the job by May. May? Are you kidding? No, sir, but that's about the best we can do. Do you realize that May is only two months from now? Yes, sir. And that the Navy has never commissioned a new type of combat plane in two months in its life? Nor the Army, nor any other service in any other country in the world? Well, no, sir. I didn't. Well, it's a fact. You still think you can have those ships by May? Yes, sir. Because these new ships are good. And the boys out there will need them, and the boys here know it. They'll have them ready. Okay. I'll put in a report. But there can't be much fooling around if you're going to have those planes out that fast. Don't worry, sir. We'll deliver them. Jack. Yeah, Frenchie? What do you want? Hey, I want to go to that ball game. This guy's sweet is killing us. Well, why don't you put it up to him? Well, why not? 
All he can do is say no. And he will. But tell him we'll all be dead before we fight at this rate. Uh, you're not kidding. I'm going to talk to him. Well, the last I saw of him, he was down there in the grease pit. Good luck. Hey, Swede. Hey, Swede. Yeah? Hi, Richie. Come on up for a minute. Let's have a cigarette. Be right with you. Stick you down there. Yeah. Thanks. Well, what's on your mind, kid? Well, sweet, you see, um, <clears throat> uh, fellas were kind of thinking, uh... Is something wrong? Oh, no, no, no. But, you see, they've been working pretty hard lately, nights and all. And... Don't I know it. They're a great bunch of guys, Frenchie. Yeah. Well, you see, uh, there's a ball game this afternoon. Yeah? And it would only be a couple of hours, and so they were sort of thinking... Boy, uh... would I like to go and take the wife along, too. Say, swell. Yeah, but... You know we can't as well as I do. Ah, oh, sweet. The war will keep... Okay, okay. You're the boss. I know how you guys feel. My wife came all the way from Birmingham with the kids, and now I hardly ever see her. And you know how I feel about Missy. Well, maybe you ought to see more of her, sweet. Maybe you ought to make the time. Maybe. Uh, sit down a minute, Frenchie. I want to tell you something. Yeah? What's on your mind? Look, Frenchie, I... I'm not a very smart guy. <laughs> I got the kind of brains that work slow. I found that out a long time ago. I found out that everything I did, I had to work awful hard. It's kind of the same way with this war. I'm never going to do anything smart. Ah, sweet. Never going to dope out any fancy strategy. The only thing I know how to do is work and keep on working as long and as hard as I can on the job I got. You see what I mean? Sure, Skipper. Tell the guys I'm sorry about the ball game. Ah, skip it. And we're only kidding. Who wants to see a lousy ball game? We all do, kid. But the captain's got to have these planes, and I promised him we'd have them ready. There they are. Ready to go. Well, you made it, didn't you? It's a swell job, sweet. Thanks. Your boy's ready to take him out to the coast? Yes, sir. They're in your hands, then. Brief them and drop in to see me before you shove off. Yes, sir. Sweet. Oh, hello, Missy. I was down at the shops. They said you were up here. Yeah, just looking our new crates over. Are you ready to come home now? I sure am. Well, come on, then. Oh, darling, think tomorrow's Sunday. We'll have it all to ourselves. Uh, Missy. And I got the most lovely turkey from the commissary. Missy, I... I you know, wanna... we won't have so many more Sundays, and I thought we could... So... Missy. What, sweet? Look, honey. I won't be here tomorrow. Swede. That's right, honey. I've got to leave tonight. Oh, Swede, why didn't you tell me? I thought it was better this way. But we've had so little time, and, and now it's gone. Why didn't you tell me sooner? Well, I told you as soon as I let the others tell their wives. But why, darling, why? It's easier without long goodbyes. Who oh, is it? Well, maybe they don't think so. Well, but I Maybe their that... wives and their children and their sweethearts don't think so. You see, I... Maybe I... they feel the way I do, that they want to know in time, so they can get ready for it a little. I want to tell so you So they that... can take it and not... Oh, sweet. I know, Missy. Oh, darling. Listen, honey. Do you remember when you were a kid and they used to tie a string around your tooth? Tie the other end of the doorknob and slam the door shut real quick so it wouldn't hurt so much? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but 
That's the way I see it, Missy. If a man went off to fight always wondering when he'd have to leave the people he loved, and then wondering when he got there how soon he'd come back to them, it hurt so much that he couldn't do the job at all, and then he never would come back. Don't you see, Missy, I'm thinking about their wives and their sweethearts, too, just the same as you are. I know. I'm sorry, darling. I know you've got the toughest part, just waiting. I don't mind waiting, Swede. I can wait a long, long time. Swede, take care of yourself. Sure, I will. Uh, Missy. Yes, Swede. I love you, darling. I love you, too. Write to me often. Sure, but don't worry when you don't hear from me. I'll try to call you before I go. Now, you'll be sure to. I'll be waiting. Well, goodbye. Call me when you get there. All right. Goodbye now. I'm trying to get your party now, sir. Okay, but hurry, please. Hello, Birmingham. This is the Birmingham operator. Will you try my party again, please? Mrs. Larson. One moment, please. Please hurry. I'm ringing your party now, operator. I'm sorry, sir. Sailing time. Can't you give me just a minute? It's my wife. I just want to say... Oh, and... Hello? Hello? Ship to shore operator. Hello? Hello? Mrs. Larson? Yes? Your husband was calling, Mrs. Larson. My husband... Hello, Swede. Swede, is that you? I'm sorry, Mrs. Larson, but he was disconnected. Well, how soon can you get the connection through again? Well, I, I'm afraid we can't, Mrs. Larson. The connection has been broken. Oh. I see. I'm all sorry, Mrs. Larson. I know how you feel. I got a guy out there, too. last slender thread is cut, and Swede Larson and the men of Torpedo 8 are out in the broad waters of the Pacific. And Honolulu, Pearl Harbor, there's food enough vengeance there. But they don't know what the word means yet. They can't know until they, in their turn, like others who have gone before, have known the bitterness of sacrifice and death. That lies ahead, but now there's only waiting. Wait, wait, wait. What do we do now, Swede? Pockets, sit on it, and wait some more. Any idea for how long? Take easy, guys. Waiting's part of the war out here. You just have to get used to it. Lieutenant Larson, the Admiral would like to see you, sir. Right. Hey, maybe we're going to work. Try to get some action, will you? Pour it on him, Swede. I'll do everything but hit him. In here, please, Lieutenant. <coughs> Admiral Noyes, Lieutenant Larson. Oh, come in, Larson. Come in. Sit down. Thank you, sir. Larson, I know it's been difficult for you, for all of you, waiting this way. But until we get more stuff out here, we've got to save what we've got and make it count. I know, sir. But I think we've got a chance to make it count now. The Jap is getting set to take a crack at Midway, and we're going to make him pay. That's where Torpedo 8 comes in. 
That's what we've been waiting for, sir. I want six crews to take off for Midway right away. We'll be ready at once, sir. It's not going to be any picnic, Larson. You better tell your men that. It'll be a one-way trip for, well, more of them than I care to estimate. Yes, sir. Can I pick any other five crews I want to go with me? I'm afraid you'll have to pick six, Larson. You're staying here. Staying where? Here. I need you. But Admiral Noyes, to Peter Eight is my job. Those are my boys. I can't send them off to, to something I won't go on myself. I'm and... afraid you have no alternative, Lieutenant. Oh, wait a minute, sir. I've had more training than anyone in the whole squadron. I put those ships in the commission myself, and I know every turn and twist of every one of them. If anybody goes to Midway, I Lieutenant should be... Lieutenant Larson, you may select your crews in any way you like. You will remain here at your post. That's an order. Yes, sir. Is that all, sir? That's all. Hey, Sweet, what's the pitch? Do we get the job? Get the men together. Hey, guys, come on running. Right. Big news. Bobby's going to put us on the first team. Come on. Hey, what's up? What, what's going on? We're going to fight. Okay, pipe down. I got some news. There's a job to do. Six crews are going to Midway. It's going to be tough all the way. A lot of men who go won't come back. All I can promise is that you'll be in a position to dish out more than you take. I'll call for volunteers. Count me in, sweet. All right, quiet. I'll pick the crews myself. I'm staying here. You? Staying? Orders. I'll pick six flight officers and they can choose their own crews. Jogerson. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Don't thank me. Osadi. Yes, sir. McMahon. Yes, sir. Levine. Yes, sir. Johnson. Yes, sir. Ernest. Yes, sir. That's all. Dismiss. Any news yet, Sparks? Uh, nothing new, uh, Lieutenant Larson. There's been a fight at Midway, all right, and uh, Torpedo 8 was in it, but uh, there's nothing more. Let me know as soon as anything breaks, will you? Yes, sir. Oh, oh uh, wait a minute, sir. What? Uh, getting it, sir, right now. Uh, what is it? Well, it's not so good, sir. Uh, what is it? Only one got back, sir. Only one? Yes, sir. Who was it? Lieutenant Ernest. You are listening to Randolph Scott as Lieutenant Sweet Larson in The Vengeance of Torpedo 8 on the Cavalcade of America, presented by DuPont. Lieutenant Larson has just learned that five of the six of his torpedo squadron that he sent to Midway are lost. He is waiting now for the return of the sixth, Lieutenant Ernest. Well, Sweet, I made it. Yeah, I heard about it, Ernie. Oh, Look, Ernie, don't talk about it if you don't want to. I don't mind. I wish I could have been there. So do I, sweet. We all did. It was tough, huh? Plenty. Did you do any good before? The best we could. How did it happen? We just didn't have enough to put up, that's all. We didn't have any fighter protection. We didn't have any dive bombers to break up their ground fire. They just sat upstairs and they waited for us. Mm. Sweet, we were like a raw egg thrown into an electric fan. 
That bad? Yeah. Better get some sleep, kid. Oh, we'll make it up, sweet. Yeah, we'll make it up, kid. That's a promise. I can't tell you men much about what's happened. You know it by now. We sent 44 men to Midway and only two came back. That's in the past. That's a job that's been done. We don't have time to talk about the past. The men have torpedo waiters standing at attention. The men who were left. About 150 of them. Boys from Kentucky and Oregon and Jersey and California. From rich homes and poor homes. From big towns and little ones. From farms and from factories. From the CIO and the AFL and Wall Street and store counters in the docks. Boys from all over America. But they're not boys anymore. They've been through it now. They never will be young again, these boys. And they're waiting for their skipper, for Swede Larson to tell them about what's past and the ones who are no longer there yeah, and about the future and the job ahead. Where do we find them? That's the job we've got to get ready for. That's what I have in mind now, and I think you have too. We're going to work at our job the way none of us have ever worked at anything before, and we're going to like it. Because we're going to hit the Jap wherever we can, and as hard as we can, and as often as we can. We're going to make him pay for Midway. Over and over and over again until he lies down and quits cold, rather than pay anymore. The motto of Torpedo 8 has always been attack. But from today, it's going to be something more. It's going to be attack and vengeance. We're going to make the Jap remember the day that motto was born. And we're going to make him remember those men in whose names it was taken. The name of Oscar Jorgensen, of Frank Osadi, of Patrick McMahon, Harry Levine, George Johnson. From the day that Sweet Larson spoke to them, from that day on, the men of Torpedo 8 committed themselves to vengeance. They stepped with their minds out of their old familiar world into a world in which their dead could live with them more fiercely. Vengeance was their job. When they got to Guadalcanal, they worked at it relentlessly. They're aboard Carrier Hornet now, and the first flight of Avengers of Torpedo 8 take to the air over Guadalcanal. Lawson to squadron. Lawson to squadron. Okay, Skipper. Go ahead, Skipper. Here's the setup. We'll flathead it. Come in as low as we can. Drop one bomb to a pass. We keep radio silence until we hit the jet. And then we tear in and muss him up. Got it? Gotcha, Skipper. Okay, Skipper. Let's go. They hit the Jap at Point Crisp. The Jap headquarters goes up in smoke and flame. Call number two on the list for that day is Langa Langa Harbor. They do a job on the docks, the floats, and the storing boats. They nose inland, knock off a gasoline dump. Day after day, week after week, they have a bill of vengeance to present and collect. Ernest, Frenchy, where are you guys? Right above you, sweet. I'm down below, sweet, looking things over. You see those trucks coming out of the woods down there? I see them. Go get them, Frenchy. On my way, sweet.
How many did you get? How many burning? Can't see. The wind is busted. Did you make them pay for it? I don't know yet. Wait a minute. Yeah. I say three, four, seven trucks burning. All burning. Hey, sweet, this is Ernest. Ship's about 11 o'clock. See him? I got you. Let's go. Torpedo 8 had a bill of vengeance to present and to collect. And they were collecting with interest. The Hornet had put out to sea. And they were working out of Henderson Field when the big day came they'd all been expecting and hoping for. Swede got his squadron together in the briefing room. Everybody here? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, boys, the dope has just come in. It's what we've all been waiting for, and it's our meat. The Jap is getting ready to throw his sun punch. He's heading for Guadalcanal, and not with just little stuff. He's got a whole fleet. We'll take off right away. Yes, sir. Just one thing. Yes, sir. This is it. This is our chance to collect in a big way for Midway and a lot of other things. Torpedo 8 has got just one job to do. For every man in the squadron, get a torpedo into one of those ships and get it in right. Sight the target yet? Not yet, sweet. Any new orders? No, same course. Keep a close watch. Hey, Swede, Swede. I got you, Ernest. What is it? Down there, about two o'clock. That's it, guys. Squadron attention. Target sighted. Target sighted two o'clock. Steaming southwest. What a sight. What a sight. Uh-huh. Isn't that something? Cruisers, battleships, transports. They got their guns. They've spotted us. Okay, guys, let's go. Follow me. Sweet. Sweet, you're going right into their guns. I'm taking that cruiser wherever I'm going. Look at him go. He's crazy. Sweet, look out, look out. Going in. You'll never get through that fire, sweet. Don't do it. You guys stay where you are. Sweet, sweet. Look at him go. Oh, sweet. You'll never make it. Come on, let's go. We can't let the guy go alone. Gotcha. Hey, look, she's going. Sweet. Sweet, you got her. She's going. She's gone, sweet. She's gone. Pull out. Sweet. Yeah, I hear. Sweet, did you see her go? I saw her. Oh, you did it, kid. Yeah. Well, let's shove off for home. Vengeance, a bill to be presented and collected. An itemized account, one Japanese battleship, 
Two Japanese cruisers. Five heavy cruisers. Four light cruisers. One destroyer. One transport. Millions of dollars in Japanese equipment and materiel. And 4,800 Japanese dead. For Lieutenant Oscar Jorgensen. For Lieutenant Frank Osadi. For Lieutenant Patrick McMahon. For Lieutenant Harry Levine. For Lieutenant George Johnson. To all the men, living and dead, who once made up Torpedo 8, salute. Thank you, Randolph Scott. Ladies and gentlemen, in just a few months, Mr. Scott will return to the microphone. Meanwhile, here is Gain Whitman with a message from DuPont. Rainbow-colored signal smokes, red, orange, yellow, green, and violet hues, erupt from tiny canisters, enabling American tanks and vehicles to operate in areas of intense air activity without danger from attack by their own planes. The Panzer type of warfare, in which swift-moving tanks are supported by squadrons of planes, made some sort of precaution imperative. This was evidenced by a savage attack on a German tank division by Nazi dive bombers, who from their high altitude thought they were attacking British tanks. Various schemes for identification were proposed. Painted emblems, signal flags, flares, but none proved successful. It was then suggested that colored smokes might solve the problem. At the time, no practical colored smokes were available. But the knowledge gained in peacetime by DuPont, along with other dye stuffs manufacturers, was made available to the Chemical Warfare Service and contributed to the solution of the problem. The specifications were rigid. There had to be several colors to permit code variations. The colors had to be brilliant, dense, and absolutely uniform. Finally, and most difficult, they had to withstand high temperatures since the heat from the burning charge destroyed the color of ordinary dyes. After literally hundreds of tests, simple colors and techniques were worked out. Before leaving for Africa, Lieutenant General George Patton saw to it that his force embarked for Africa with a plentiful supply of this new life-saving munition. All possible uses for colored smokes have not yet been worked out in detail, and some cannot be disclosed at present. It may be said, however, that various smoke colors can be used to identify command posts to free aircraft, that one airplane may signal another by use of a distinctive color, while canisters attached to a small parachute may be dropped from observation planes to point out enemy targets to artillery by means of colored smoke. Further research has developed special canisters that can also be used on water, while still another kind of canister produces a brilliant white light, which, like the colored smokes used in daylight, can be seen at night from altitudes of 10,000 feet. From thousands of different dyes developed for use on textiles and other materials, has come this interesting wartime use for one of DuPont's peacetime better things for better living through chemistry. You have just heard of the use of DuPont colors in military operations. Another DuPont product which involves color and which does not contain vital materials needed in the war effort is Speed Easy, one of the things DuPont makes for better living today. Speed Easy is a wall paint that covers dingy wallpaper and other interior walls in one quick coat. 
Although Speedeasy thins with water, it is a resin oil paint, not a calcimine. Speedeasy dries in an hour, comes in eight cheerful pastel colors. You can make your home more livable during these war days by redecorating with Speedeasy, made by DuPont. And here is the star of tonight's cavalcade, Randolph Scott. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This account of Torpedo 8 brings us all face-to-face with the great sacrifices our men made against desperate odds in the early days of the war and gives us a clearer understanding of what we're up against today. For most of us, the war is a distant terror until it's brought forcefully home by those very close to our own lives. Let's match their efforts at the front with ours at home. Back the attack with war bonds. Next week, Cavalcade brings you another popular star of the stage, screen, and radio, Basil Rathbone. Our play, The Hated Hero of 76, is the story of the brilliant figure of the days of the American Revolution, Tom Paine, whose fight to instill men with the ideal of liberty remains our heritage today. DuPont invites you to be its guest again next week when we bring you The Hated Hero of 76, a story of courage and confidence in the destiny of the United States, starring Basil Rathbone as Tom Paine. Tonight's musical is composed and conducted by Robert Armbruster. Cavalcade is pleased to advise its listeners that Randolph Scott can soon be seen in the Howard Hawks Universal production, Corvette K-225. Tonight's play was based on fact. With the exception of Lieutenant Larson and Lieutenant Ernest, all of their names were fictitious. This is James Bannon sending best wishes from Cavalcade sponsor, the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. Cavalcade of America came to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company.